there was no way that the remaining $300 billion in TARP funds could cover the current pace of losses. A Federal Reserve analysis predicted that, unless the entire system stabilized soon, the banks might need an additional $300 to $700 billion in government cash infusions. And those numbers didn't include AIG, which would later announce a $62 billion quarterly loss. Rather than pouring more taxpayer dollars into a leaky bucket, we had to find a way to patch its holes. First and foremost, we needed to restore some semblance of market confidence so that investors who'd fled to safety, pulling trillions of dollars in private capital out of the financial sector, would return from the sidelines and reinvest. When it came to Fannie and Freddie, Tim explained, we had the authority to put more money into them without congressional approval, in part because they'd already been placed in government conservatorship. Right away, we agreed to a new $200 billion capital commitment. This wasn't a comfortable choice, but the alternative was to let the entire U.S. mortgage market effectively vanish. As for the rest of the financial system, the choices were dicier. A few days later, in another Oval Office meeting, Tim and Larry outlined three basic options. The first, most prominently advocated by FDIC chair and Bush holdover, Sheila Baer, involved a reprise of Hank Paulson's original idea for TARP, which was to have the government set up a single, quote, bad bank that would buy up all the privately held toxic assets, thereby cleansing the banking sector. This would allow investors to feel some form of trust and banks to start lending again. Not surprisingly, the markets liked this approach, since it effectively dumped future losses in the lap of taxpayers. The problem with the bad bank idea, though, as both Tim and Larry pointed out, was that no one knew how to fairly price all the toxic assets currently on the bank's books. If the government paid too much, it would amount to yet another massive taxpayer bailout with few strings attached. If, on the other hand, the government paid too little, and with an estimated $1 trillion in toxic assets still out there, fire sale prices would be all the government could afford. The banks would have to swallow massive losses right away and would almost certainly go belly up anyway. In fact, it was precisely because of these pricing complications that Hank Paulson had abandoned the idea back at the start of the crisis. We had a second possibility, one that on the surface seemed cleaner, to temporarily nationalize those systematically significant financial institutions that, based on the current market price of their assets and liabilities, were insolvent, and then force them to go through a restructuring similar to a bankruptcy proceeding, including making shareholders and bondholders take, quote, haircuts on their holdings and potentially replacing both management and boards. This option fulfilled my desire to tear the Band-Aid off and fix the system once and for all, rather than letting banks limp along in what was sometimes referred to as a, quote, zombie state, technically still in existence, but without enough capital or credibility to function. It also had the benefit of satisfying what Tim liked to refer to as, quote, Old Testament justice, the public's understandable desire to see those who'd done wrong punished and shamed. As usual, though, what looked like the simplest solution wasn't so simple. Once the government nationalized one bank, stakeholders at every other bank would almost certainly dump their holdings as fast as they could, fearing that their institution would be next. Such runs would likely trigger the need to nationalize the next weakest bank, and the one after that, and the one after that, in what would become a cascading government takeover of America's financial sector. 
Not only would that cost a whole lot of money, it would also require the U.S. government to manage these institutions for as long as it took to eventually sell them off. And while we were busy contending with a million inevitable lawsuits, filed not just by Wall Street types, but also by pension funds and small investors angry over the forced haircut, the question would be who we would put in charge of these banks, especially given that almost everyone with the requisite experience was likely to be tainted by some involvement with subprime lending. Who would set their salaries and bonuses? How would the public feel if these nationalized banks just kept bleeding money? And to whom could the government ultimately sell these banks, other than to other banks that might have been similarly complicit in creating the mess in the first place? In part because there were no good answers to these questions, Tim had cooked up a third option. His theory was this. Although nobody doubted that banks were in bad shape and had a whole bunch of bad assets on their books, the market panic had so deeply depressed all asset prices that their condition might look worse than it really was. After all, the overwhelming majority of mortgages wouldn't end up in default. Not every mortgage-backed security was worthless, and not every bank was awash in bad bets. And yet, as long as the market had trouble discerning genuine insolvency from temporary illiquidity, most investors would simply avoid anything related to the financial sector. Tim's proposed solution would come to be known as a, quote, stress test. The Federal Reserve would set a benchmark for how much capital each of the 19 systematically significant banks needed to survive a worst-case scenario. The Fed would then dispatch regulators to pour over each bank's books, rigorously assessing whether or not it had enough of a financial cushion to make it through a depression. If not, the bank would be given six months to raise that amount of capital from private sources. If it still fell short, the government would then step in to provide enough capital to meet the benchmark, with nationalization coming into play only if the government's infusion exceeded 50%. Either way, the markets would finally have a clear picture of each bank's condition. Shareholders would see their shares in a bank diluted, but only in proportion to the amount of capital needed for the bank to get well. And taxpayers would be on the hook only as a last resort. Tim presented this third option more as a framework than a detailed plan, and Larry voiced some skepticism, believing that the banks were irredeemable, that the markets would never believe in the rigors of a government-managed audit and that the exercise would do little more than delay the inevitable. Tim acknowledged those risks. He added that any stress test would require about three months to complete, during which time the public pressure for us to take more decisive action would only build. In the meantime, any number of events could send the markets into an even sharper tailspin. Larry and Tim stopped talking and waited for my reaction. I sat back in my chair. Anything else on the menu? I asked. Not right now, Mr. President. Not very appetizing. No, Mr. President. I nodded, pondered the probabilities, and after a few more questions, decided that Tim's stress test approach was our best way forward. Not because it was great. Not even because it was good. But because the other approaches were worse. Larry compared it to having a doctor administer a less invasive treatment before opting for radical surgery. If the stress test worked, we could fix the system faster and with less taxpayer money. If it didn't, we'd probably be no worse off and would at least have a better sense of what more radical surgery would entail.
assuming, of course, that the patient didn't die in the meantime. A couple of weeks later, on February 10th, Tim addressed the public for the first time as Treasury Secretary, speaking in a grand hall inside the Treasury building called the Cash Room, which for more than a century following the Civil War had operated as a bank, dispensing currency directly from government vaults. The idea was that Tim would unveil the framework for the stress test and outline other measures we were taking to stabilize the floundering banks, sending a signal that despite the uncertainty of the times, we were calm and had a credible plan. Confidence, of course, is hard to convey if you don't fully feel it. Still bruised by the confirmation hearings, having spent his first few weeks on the job working with only a skeleton staff, and still sorting out the details of how the stress test would work, Tim stepped before a bank of TV cameras and financial journalists that day and promptly tanked. By every estimation, including his own, the speech was a disaster. He looked nervous, was awkwardly using a teleprompter for the first time, and spoke in only vague terms about the overall plan. The White House communications team had been pressing him to emphasize our intent to get tough on the banks even as our economic team emphasized the need to reassure the financial markets that there was no need for panic. Meanwhile, the alphabet soup of independent agencies responsible for regulating the financial system hadn't coalesced around Tim's proposal, and several agency heads, like Sheila Baer, kept pushing their own pet ideas. The result was a classic speech by committee, full of hedged bets and mixed messages, reflecting all the contradictory pressures. And in the rush to get it finished, Tim, who was running on fumes at this point, had devoted almost no time to practicing his delivery. As he was speaking, the stock market dropped by more than 3%. By day's end, it was down almost 5%, with financial stocks falling a full 11%. Tim's speech was all over the news, being parsed every which way. As Larry had predicted, many analysts viewed the stress test as nothing more than an elaborate whitewash a new string of bailouts. Commentators across the political spectrum were now openly wondering whether Tim's tenure, my presidency, and the global financial system were headed for the dumpster. As much as Tim blamed himself during the next morning's postmortem, I recognized it as a systems failure, and a failure on my part to put those who worked under me in a position to succeed. A day earlier, speaking at a press conference of my own, I'd unthinkingly and unfairly put a good deal of advanced hype on Tim's speech, telling reporters that he'd be announcing, quote, clear and specific plans and was set to have his moment in the sun. The lessons all around were painful but useful. In the months that followed, I'd drive our team to run a tighter process with better communications between relevant parts of the administration to anticipate problems and resolve disputes before we took any plans public allowing our ideas appropriate time and space to germinate, regardless of external pressure, to pay careful attention to how big projects were staffed, and to sweat the details not just of substance, but of stagecraft as well. And one more thing. I told myself not to ever open my big mouth again to set up expectations that, given the circumstances, could not possibly be met. Still, the damage was done. The world's first impression of my hard-working all-star economic team was that of a gang that couldn't shoot straight. Republicans crowed. Rom fielded calls from nervous Democrats. About the only positive thing I could draw from the fiasco was Tim's reaction to it, 
his spirit could have been crushed, but it wasn't. Instead, he had the resigned air of someone who would take his punishment for the poor speech performance, but at the same time was confident that on the bigger stuff, he was right. I liked that in him. He was still my guy. The best we could do now was hunker down, execute, and hope that our damn plan actually worked. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. For reasons that still aren't entirely clear to me, a newly elected president's first speech before a joint session of Congress isn't technically considered a State of the Union address. But for all intents and purposes, that's exactly what it is. The first of that annual ritual in which a president has the chance to speak directly to tens of millions of fellow Americans. My own first address was scheduled for February 24th, which meant that even as we were scrambling to get our economic rescue plan in place, I had to steal whatever scraps of time I could to review the drafts Fabs worked up. It wasn't an easy assignment for either of us. Other speeches could traffic in broad themes or focus narrowly on a single issue. In the SOTU, as the West Wing staffers called it, the president was expected to outline both domestic and foreign policy priorities for the coming year. And no matter how much you dressed up your plans and proposals with anecdotes or catchy phrases, Detailed explanations of Medicare expansion or tax credit refundability rarely stirred the heartstrings. Having been a senator, I was well-versed in the politics of standing ovations at the SOTU, the ritualized spectacle in which members of the President's Party leapt to their feet and cheered to the rafters at practically every third line, while the opposition party refused to applaud even the most heartwarming story for fear that the cameras might catch them consorting with the enemy. The sole exception to this rule was any mention of troops overseas. Not only did this absurd bit of theater highlight the country's divisions at a time when we needed unity, the constant interruptions added at least 15 minutes to an already long speech. I had considered beginning my address by asking all those in attendance to hold their applause, but unsurprisingly, Gibbs and the comms team had nixed the idea, insisting that a silent chamber would not play well on TV. But if the process ahead of the SOTU left us feeling harried and uninspired, if at various points I told Favs that after an election night speech, an inauguration speech, and nearly two years of nonstop talking, I had absolutely nothing new to say and would be doing the country a favor by emulating Thomas Jefferson and just dropping off my remarks to Congress for the people to read at their leisure, it all vanished the instant I arrived at the threshold of the ornate house chamber and heard the sergeant-at-arms announce my entrance onto the floor. Madam Speaker, perhaps more than any others, those words and the scene that followed made me conscious of the grandeur of the office I now occupied. There was the thundering applause as I stepped into the chamber, the slow walk down the center aisle through outstretched hands, the members of my cabinet arrayed along the first and second rows, the Joint Chiefs in their crisp uniforms, and the Supreme Court Justices in their black robes like members of an ancient guild. The greetings from Speaker Pelosi and Vice President Biden, positioned on either side of me. And my wife, beaming down from the upper gallery in her sleeveless dress. That was when the cult of Michelle's arms truly took off, waving and blowing a kiss as the Speaker lowered her gavel and the proceedings commenced. Although I spoke about my plans to end the war in Iraq, fortify U.S. efforts in Afghanistan, and prosecute the fight against terrorist organizations, the bulk of my address was devoted to the economic crisis. I went over the Recovery Act, 
our housing plan, the rationale behind the stress test. But there was also a bigger point I wanted to make, that we needed to keep reaching for more. I didn't just want to solve the emergencies of the day. I felt we needed to make a bid for lasting change. Once we'd restored growth to the economy, we couldn't be satisfied with simply returning to business as usual. I made clear that night that I intended to move forward with structural reforms in education, energy, and climate policy, in healthcare and financial regulation that would lay the foundation for long-term and broad-based prosperity in America. The days had long passed since I got nervous on a big stage, and considering how much ground we had to cover, the speech went about as well as I could have hoped. According to Axe and Gibbs, the reviews were fine, the talking heads deeming me suitably, quote, presidential. But apparently they'd been surprised by the boldness of my agenda. My willingness to forge ahead with reforms beyond those that addressed the central business of saving the economy. It was as if nobody had been listening to the campaign promises I'd made, or as if they assumed that I hadn't actually meant what I'd said. The response to my speech gave me an early preview of what would become a running criticism during my first two years in office. That I was trying to do too much. That to aspire to anything more than a return to the pre-crisis status quo, to treat change as more than a slogan, was naive and irresponsible at best, and at worst, a threat to America. As all-consuming as the economic crisis was, my fledgling administration didn't have the luxury of putting everything else on hold, for the machinery of the federal government stretched across the globe, churning every minute of every day, indifferent to overstuffed inboxes and human sleep cycles. Many of its functions, generating social security checks, keeping weather satellites aloft, processing agricultural loans, issuing passports, required no specific instructions from the White House operating much like a human body breathes or sweats, outside the brain's conscious control. But this still left countless agencies and buildings full of people in need of our daily attention, looking for policy guidance or help with staffing, seeking advice because some internal breakdown or external event had thrown the system for a loop. After our first weekly Oval Office meeting, I asked Bob Gates, who'd served under seven previous presidents, for any advice he might have in managing the executive branch. He gave me one of his wry, crinkly smiles. There's only one thing you can count on, Mr. President, he said. On any given moment, in any given day, somebody somewhere is screwing up. We went to work trying to minimize screw-ups. In addition to my regular meetings with the Treasury, State, and Defense Secretaries, and the daily briefings I got from my national security and economic teams, I made a point of sitting down with each member of my cabinet to go over strategic plans for their departments, pushing them to identify roadblocks and set priorities. I visited their respective agencies, often using the occasion to announce a new policy or government practice, and spoke to large gatherings of career government staffers, thanking them for their service and reminding them of the importance of their missions. There was an endless flow of meetings with various constituency groups, the Business Roundtable, the AFL-CIO, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, Veterans Services Organizations, to address their concerns and solicit their support. There were big set pieces that absorbed enormous amounts of time, like the presentation of our first federal budget proposal, and innovative public events designed to increase government transparency, like our first-ever live-streamed town hall. Each week, I delivered a video address, 
I sat down for interviews with various print reporters and TV anchors, both national and local. I gave remarks at the National Prayer Breakfast and threw a Super Bowl party for members of Congress. By the first week of March, I'd also held two summits with foreign leaders, one in D.C. with British Prime Minister Gordon Brown, the other in Ottawa with Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, each involving its own policy objectives and diplomatic protocols. For every event, meeting, and policy rollout, a hundred people or more might be frantically working behind the scenes. Every document issued was fact-checked. Every person who showed up for a meeting was vetted. Every event was planned to the minute, and every policy announcement was carefully scrubbed to make sure it was achievable, affordable, and didn't carry the risk of unforeseen consequences. This kind of focused industriousness extended to the East Wing, where the First Lady had a small suite of offices and a busy schedule of her own. From the moment we'd arrived at the White House, Michelle had thrown herself into her new job while also making a home for our family. Thanks to her, Malia and Sasha seemed to be taking the transition to our strange new life completely in stride. They tossed balls in the long hallway that ran the length of the residence and made cookies with the White House chefs. Their weekends were filled with playdates and birthday parties with new friends, rec basketball, soccer leagues, tennis lessons for Malia, dance classes and taekwondo for Sasha. Much like her mother, Sasha was not to be messed with. Out in public, Michelle sparkled with charm, her fashion choices attracting favorable notice. Tasked with hosting the annual Governor's Ball, Michelle had shaken up tradition by arranging to have Earth, Wind, and Fire provide the entertainment, their horn-blasting R&B funk generating moves on the dance floor that I'd never thought I'd see out of a bipartisan gathering of middle-aged public officials. Look beautiful. Care for your family. Be gracious. Support your man. For most of American history, the First Lady's job had been defined by these tenets, and Michelle was hitting all the marks. What she hid from the outside world, though, was the way her new role initially chafed, how fraught with uncertainty it felt. Not all her frustrations were new. For as long as we'd been together, I'd watched my wife struggle the way many women did, trying to reconcile her identity as an independent, ambitious professional with the desire to mother our girls with the same level of care and attentiveness that Marion had given her. I'd always tried to encourage Michelle in her career, never presuming that household duties were her province alone. And we'd been lucky that our joint income and a strong network of close-by relatives and friends had given us advantages that many families didn't have. Still, this wasn't enough to insulate Michelle from the wildly unrealistic and often contradictory social pressures that women with children absorb from the media, their peers, their employers, and, of course, the men in their lives. My career in politics, with its prolonged absences, had made it even tougher. More than once, Michelle had decided not to pursue an opportunity that excited her, but would have demanded too much time away from the girls. Even in her last job at the University of Chicago Medical Center, with a supportive boss and the ability to make her own schedule, she'd never fully shaken the sense she was shortchanging the girls, her work, or both. In Chicago, she had at least been able to avoid being in the public eye and manage the everyday push and pull on her own terms. Now all that had changed. With my election, she'd been forced to give up a job with real impact for a role that, in its original design at least, was far too small for her gifts. Meanwhile, mothering our kids involved a whole new set of complications 
like having to call a parent to explain why Secret Service agents needed to survey their house before Sasha came for a play date, or working with staffers to press a tabloid not to print a picture of Malia hanging out with her friends at the mall. On top of these things, Michelle suddenly found herself drafted as a symbol in America's ongoing gender wars. Each choice she made, each word she uttered, was feverishly interpreted and judged. When she lightheartedly referred to herself as a, quote, mom-in-chief, some commentators expressed disappointment that she wasn't using her platform to break down stereotypes about a woman's proper place. At the same time, efforts to stretch the boundaries of what a first lady should or should not do carried their own peril. Michelle still smarted from the viciousness of some of the attacks leveled at her during the campaign. And one had only to look at Hillary Clinton's experience to know how quickly people could turn on a first lady who engaged in anything resembling policymaking. Which is why, in those early months, Michelle took her time deciding how she'd use her new office, figuring out how and where she might exert an influence while carefully and strategically setting the tone for her work as first lady. She consulted with Hillary and with Laura Bush. She recruited a strong team, filling her staff with seasoned professionals whose judgment she trusted. Eventually, she decided to take on two causes that were personally meaningful, the alarming jump in America's childhood obesity rates and the embarrassing lack of support for America's military families. It wasn't lost on me that both issues tapped into frustrations and anxieties that Michelle herself sometimes felt. The obesity epidemic had come to her attention a few years earlier when our pediatrician, noticing that Malia's body mass index had increased somewhat, identified too many highly processed, quote, kid-friendly foods as the culprit. The news had confirmed Michelle's worries that our harried, overscheduled lives might be adversely impacting the girls. Similarly, her interest in military families had been sparked by emotional roundtable discussions she'd had during the campaign with spouses of deployed service members as they described feeling a mixture of loneliness and pride, as they'd admitted to occasional resentment at being treated as an afterthought in the larger cause of defending the nation, as they expressed reluctance to ask for help for fear of seeming selfish, Michelle had heard echoes of her own circumstances. Precisely because of these personal connections, I was sure her impact on both issues would be substantial. Michelle was someone who started from the heart and not the head from experience rather than abstractions. I also knew this. My wife didn't like to fail. Whatever ambivalence she felt about her new role, she was nonetheless determined to carry it out well. As a family, we were adapting week by week, each of us finding means to adjust to, cope with, and enjoy our circumstances. Michelle turned to her unflappable mother for counsel anytime she felt anxious, the two of them huddling together on the couch in the solarium on the third floor of the White House. Malia threw herself into her fifth-grade homework and was lobbying us to deliver on our personal campaign promise to get a family dog. Sasha, just seven, still fell asleep at night clutching the frayed chenille blankie she had had since she was a baby, her body growing so fast you could almost see the difference each day. Our new housing arrangement brought one especially happy surprise. Now that I lived above the store, so to speak, I was home basically all the time. On most days, the work came to me, not the other way around. Unless I was traveling, I made a point of being at the dinner table by 6.30 each night, even if it meant that later I needed to go back downstairs to the Oval Office. What a joy that was, 
listening to Malia and Sasha talk about their days, narrating a world of friend drama, quirky teachers, jerky boys, silly jokes, dawning insights, and endless questions. After the meal was over and they bounded off to do homework and get ready for bed, Michelle and I would sit and catch up for a time. Less often about politics and more about news of old friends, movies we wanted to see, and most of all, the wondrous process of watching our daughters grow up. Then we'd read the girls' bedtime stories, hug them tightly, and tuck them in. Malia and Sasha in their cotton pajamas smelling of warmth and life. In that hour and a half or so each evening, I found myself replenished. My mind cleansed and my heart cured of whatever damage a day spent pondering the world and its intractable problems may have done. If the girls and my mother-in-law were our anchors in the White House, there were others who helped me and Michelle manage the stress of those early months. Sam Cass, the young man we'd hired to cook for us part-time back in Chicago as the campaign got busy and our worries about the kids' eating habits peaked, had come with us to Washington, joining the White House not just as a chef, but also as Michelle's point person on the childhood obesity issue. The son of a math teacher at the girls' old school and a former college baseball player, Sam had an easygoing charm and compact good looks that were enhanced by a shiny, clean-shaven head. He was also a genuine food policy expert, conversant in everything from the effects of monoculture farming on climate change to the links between eating habits and chronic disease. Sam's work with Michelle would prove invaluable. It was brainstorming with him, for example, that gave Michelle the idea to plant a vegetable garden in the South Lawn. But what we got in the bargain was a fun-loving uncle to the girls, a favorite younger brother to Michelle and me, and, along with Reggie Love, someone I could shoot hoops or play a game of pool with any time I needed to blow off a little steam. We found similar support from our longtime athletic trainer, Cornell McClellan, a former social worker and martial arts expert who owned his own gym in Chicago. Despite his imposing frame, Cornell was kind and good-humored when he wasn't torturing us with squats, deadlifts, burpees, and lunge walks, and he decided that it was his duty to start splitting his time between D.C. and Chicago to make sure the first family stayed in shape. Each morning, Monday through Thursday, Michelle and I began our days with both Cornell and Sam. The four of us gathered in the small gym on the third floor of the residence, its wall-mounted television reliably set to ESPN's Sports Center. There was no disputing that Michelle was Cornell's star pupil, powering through her workouts with unerring focus, while Sam and I were decidedly slower and given to taking longer breaks between sets, distracting Cornell with heated debates. Jordan versus Kobe, Tom Hanks versus Denzel Washington. Anytime the regiment got too intense for our liking. For both Michelle and me, that daily hour in the gym became one more zone of normalcy shared with friends who still called us by our first names and loved us like family, who reminded us of the world we'd once known, and the version of ourselves that we hoped always to inhabit. There was a final stress reliever that I didn't like to talk about, one that had been a chronic source of tension throughout my marriage. I was still smoking five or six or seven cigarettes a day. It was the lone vice that I'd carried over from the rebel days of my youth. At Michelle's insistence, I had quit several times over the years, and I never smoked in the house or in front of the kids. Once elected to the U.S. Senate, I'd stopped smoking in public. But a stubborn piece of me resisted the tyranny of reason, and the strains of campaign life, the interminable car rides through cornfields, 
the solitude of motel rooms, had conspired to keep me reaching for a pack I kept handy in a suitcase or drawer. After the election, I told myself it was as good a time as any to stop. By definition, I was in public just about any time I was outside the White House residence. But then things got so busy that I found myself delaying my day of reckoning, wandering out to the pool house behind the Oval Office after lunch, or up to the third-floor terrace after Michelle and the girls had gone to sleep, taking a deep drag and watching the smoke curl toward the stars, telling myself I'd stop for good as soon as things settled down. Except things didn't settle down. So much so that by March, my daily cigarette intake had crept up to eight, or nine, or ten. That month, another estimated 663,000 Americans would lose their jobs, with the unemployment rate shooting up to 8.5%. Foreclosures showed no sign of abating, and credit remained frozen. The stock market hit what would be its lowest point of the recession, down 57% from its peak, with shares of Citigroup and Bank of America approaching penny stock status. AIG, meanwhile, was like a bottomless maw, its only apparent function being to gobble up as much tarp money as possible. All this would have been more than enough to keep my blood pressure rising. What made it worse was the clueless attitude of the Wall Street executives whose collective asses we were pulling out of the fire. Just before I took office, for example, the leaders of most of the major banks had gone ahead and authorized more than a billion dollars in year-end bonuses for themselves and their lieutenants, despite having already received TARP funds to prop up their stock prices. Not long after, Citigroup executives somehow decided it was a good idea to order a new corporate jet. Because this happened on our watch, someone on Tim's team was able to call the company's CEO and browbeat him into canceling the order. Meanwhile. Bank executives bristled, sometimes privately, but often in the press, at any suggestion that they had in any way screwed up or should be subject to any constraints when it came to running their business. This last bit of chutzpah was most pronounced in the two savviest operators on Wall Street, Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs and Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase, both of whom insisted that their institutions had avoided the poor management decisions that plagued other banks and neither needed nor wanted government assistance. These claims were true only if you ignored the fact that the solvency of both outfits depended entirely on the ability of the Treasury and the Fed to keep the rest of the financial system afloat, as well as the fact that Goldman in particular had been one of the biggest peddlers of subprime-based derivatives and had dumped them onto less sophisticated customers right before the bottom fell out. Their obliviousness drove me nuts. It wasn't just that Wall Street's attitude toward the crisis confirmed every stereotype of the uber-wealthy being completely out of touch with the lives of ordinary people. Each tone-deaf statement or self-serving action also made our job of saving the economy that much harder. Already, some Democratic constituencies were asking why we weren't being tougher on the banks, why the government wasn't simply taking them over and selling off their assets, for example, or why none of the individuals who had caused such havoc had gone to jail. Republicans in Congress, unburdened by any sense of responsibility for the mess they'd helped create, were more than happy to join in on the grilling. In testimony before various congressional committees, Tim, who was now routinely labeled as a, quote, former Goldman Sachs banker, despite having never worked for Goldman and having spent nearly his entire career in public service, would explain the need to wait for the stress test results. My attorney general, Eric Holder, 
would later point out that, as egregious as the behavior of the banks may have been leading up to the crisis, there were few indications that their executives had committed prosecutable offenses under existing statutes, and we were not in the business of charging people with crimes just to garner good headlines. But to a nervous and angry public, such answers, no matter how rational, weren't very satisfying. Concerned that we were losing the political high ground, Axon Gibbs urged us to sharpen our condemnation of Wall Street. Tim, on the other hand, warned that such populist gestures would be counterproductive, scaring off the investors we needed to recapitalize the banks. Trying to straddle the line between the public's desire for Old Testament justice and the financial market's need for reassurance, we ended up satisfying no one. It's like we got a hostage situation, Gibbs said to me one morning. We know the banks have explosives trapped to their chests, but to the public, it looks like we're just letting them get away with robbery. With tensions growing inside the White House and me wanting to make sure everyone remained on the same page, in mid-March, I called together my economic team for a marathon Sunday session in the Roosevelt Room. For several hours that day, we pressed Tim and his deputies for their thoughts on the ongoing stress test, whether it would work, whether Tim had a plan B if it didn't, Larry and Christie argued that in light of mounting losses at Citigroup and Bank of America, it was time for us to consider preemptive nationalization, the kind of strategy that Sweden had ultimately pursued when it went through its own financial crisis in the 1990s. This was in contrast, they said, to the forbearance strategy that left Japan in a lost decade of economic stagnation. In response, Tim pointed out that Sweden, with a much smaller financial sector, and at a time when the rest of the world was stable, had nationalized only two of its major banks as a last resort, while providing effective guarantees for its remaining four. An equivalent strategy on our part, he said, might cause the already fragile global financial system to unravel and would cost a minimum of 200 to $400 billion. The chances of getting an additional dime of TARP money from this Congress are somewhere between zero and zero, Rom shouted, practically jumping out of his chair. Some on the team suggested we at least take a more aggressive posture towards Citigroup and Bank of America, forcing out their CEOs and current boards, for example, before granting more TARP money. But Tim said such steps would be wholly symbolic and further would make us responsible for finding immediate replacements capable of navigating unfamiliar institutions in the midst of the crisis. It was an exhausting exercise, and as the session ran into the evening hours, I told the team that I was going up to the residence to have dinner and get a haircut and would expect them to have arrived at a consensus by the time I got back. In truth, I'd already gotten what I wanted out of the meeting, confirmation in my own mind that, despite the legitimate issues Larry, Christie, and others had raised about the stress test, it continued to be our best shot under the circumstances. Or, as Tim liked to put it, plan beats no plan. Just as important, I felt assured that we'd run a good process that our team had looked at the problem from every conceivable angle, that no potential solution had been discarded out of hand, and that everyone involved, from the highest-ranking cabinet member to the most junior staffer in the room, had been given the chance to weigh in. For these same reasons, I would later invite two groups of outside economists, one left-leaning, the other conservative, who'd publicly questioned our handling of the crisis to meet me in the Oval, just to see if they had any ideas that we hadn't already considered. They didn't. My emphasis on process was born of necessity. What I was quickly discovering about the presidency was that no problem that landed on my desk, 
foreign or domestic, had a clean 100% solution. If it had, someone else down the chain of command would have solved it already. Instead, I was constantly dealing with probabilities. A 70% chance, say, that a decision to do nothing would end in disaster. A 55% chance that this approach versus that one might solve the problem, with a 0% chance that it would work out exactly as intended. A 30% chance that whatever we chose wouldn't work at all, along with a 15% chance that it would make the problem worse. In such circumstances, chasing after the perfect solution led to paralysis. On the other hand, going with your gut too often meant letting preconceived notions or the path of least political resistance guide a decision, with cherry-picked facts used to justify it. But with a sound process, one in which I was able to empty out my ego and really listen, following the facts and the logic as best as I could, and considering them alongside my goals and my principles, I realized I could make tough decisions and still sleep easy at night, knowing at a minimum that no one in my position, given the same information, could have made the decision any better. A good process also meant I could allow each member of the team to feel ownership over the decision, which meant better execution and less relitigation of White House decisions through leaks to the New York Times or the Washington Post. Returning from my haircut and dinner that night, I sensed that things had played out the way I'd hoped. Larry and Christie agreed that it made sense for us to wait and see how the stress test went before taking more drastic action. Tim accepted some useful suggestions about how to better prepare for possibly bad results. Axe and Gibbs offered ideas about improving our communication strategy. All in all, I was feeling pretty good about the day's work. Until, that is, someone brought up the issue of the AIG bonuses. It seemed that AIG, which had thus far taken more than $170 billion in TARP funds and still needed more, was paying its employees $165 million in contractually obligated bonuses. Worse yet, a big chunk of the bonuses would go to the division directly responsible for leaving the insurance giant wildly overexposed in the subprime derivative business. AIG's CEO, Edward Liddy, who himself was blameless, having only recently agreed to take the helm at the company as a public service and was paying himself just a dollar a year, recognized that the bonuses were unseemly. But according to Tim, Liddy had been advised by his lawyers that any attempt to withhold the payments would likely result in successful lawsuits by the AIG employees and damaged payments potentially coming in at three times the original amount. To cap it off, we didn't appear to have any governmental authority to stop the bonus payments, in part because the Bush administration had lobbied Congress against the inclusion of clawback provisions in the original TARP legislation, fearing that it would discourage financial institutions from participating. I looked around the room. This is a joke, right? You guys are just messing with me. Nobody laughed. Axe started arguing that we had to try to stop the payments, even if our efforts were unsuccessful. Tim and Larry began arguing back, acknowledging the whole thing was terrible, but saying that if the government forced a violation of contracts between private parties, we'd do irreparable damage to our market-based system. Gibbs chimed in to suggest that morality and common sense trumped contract law. After a few minutes, I cut everyone off. I instructed Tim to keep looking at ways we might keep AIG from dispensing the bonuses, knowing full well he'd probably come up empty. Then I told Axe to prepare a statement condemning the bonuses that I could deliver the next day, 
knowing full well that nothing I said would help lessen the damage. Then I told myself that it was still the weekend and I needed a martini. That was another lesson the presidency was teaching me. Sometimes it didn't matter how good your process was. Sometimes you were just screwed, and the best you could do was to have a stiff drink and light up a cigarette. The news of the AIG bonuses brought the pent-up anger of several months to an uncontrolled boil. Newspaper editorials were scathing. The House quickly passed a bill to tax Wall Street bonuses at 90% for people making over $250,000, only to watch it die in the Senate. In the White House briefing room, it seemed like Gibbs fielded questions on no other topic. Code Pink, a quirky anti-war group whose members, mostly women, dressed in pink t-shirts, pink hats, and the occasional pink boa, ramped up protests outside various government buildings and surfaced at hearings where Tim was appearing hoisting signs with slogans like, Give us our money back, clearly unimpressed by any argument about the sanctity of contracts. The following week, I decided to convene a White House meeting with the CEOs of the top banks and financial institutions, hoping to avoid any further surprises. Fifteen of them showed up, all men, all looking dapper and polished, and they all listened with placid expressions as I explained that the public had run out of patience and that given the pain the financial crisis was causing across the country, not to mention the extraordinary measures the government had taken to support their institutions, the least they could do was show some restraint, maybe even sacrifice. When it was the executive's turn to respond, each one offered some version of the following. A. The problems with the financial system really weren't of their making. B. They had made significant sacrifices, including slashing their workforces, and reducing their own compensation packages, and C, they hoped that I would stop fanning the flames of populist anger, which they said was hurting their stock prices and damaging industry morale. As proof of this last point, several mentioned a recent interview in which I'd said that my administration was shoring up the financial system only to prevent a depression, not to help a bunch of, quote, fat cat bankers. When they spoke, it sounded like their feelings were hurt. What the American people are looking for in this time of crisis, one banker said, is for you to remind them that we're all in this together. I was stunned. You think it's my rhetoric that's made the public angry? Taking a deep breath, I searched the faces of the men around the table and realized they were being sincere. Much like the traders in the Santelli video, these Wall Street executives genuinely felt picked on. It wasn't just a ploy. I tried then to put myself in their shoes reminding myself that these were people who had no doubt worked hard to get where they were, who had played the game no differently than their peers, and were long accustomed to adulation and deference for having come out on top. They gave large sums to various charities. They loved their families. They couldn't understand why, as one would later tell me, their children were now asking them whether they were, quote, fat cats, or why no one was impressed that they had reduced their annual compensation from 50 or 60 million to 2 million or why the President of the United States wasn't treating them as true partners and accepting, just to take one example, Jamie Dimon's offered to send over some of J.P. Morgan's top people to help the administration design our proposed regulatory reform. I tried to understand their perspective, but I couldn't. Instead, I found myself thinking about my grandmother, how in my mind her Kansas Prairie character represented what a banker was supposed to be, honest prudent, exacting, risk-averse, 
someone who refused to cut corners, hated waste and extravagance, lived by the code of delayed gratification, and was perfectly content to be a little bit boring in how she did business. I wondered what Toot would make of the bankers who now sat with me in this room, the same kind of men who'd so often been promoted ahead of her, who in a month made more than she'd made in her entire career, at least in part because they were okay with placing billion-dollar bets with other people's money on what they knew or should have known was a pile of bad loans. Finally, I let out something between a laugh and a snort. Let me explain something, gentlemen, I said, careful not to raise my voice. People don't need my prompting to be angry. They've got that covered all on their own. The fact is, we're the only ones standing between you and the pitchforks. I can't say my words that day had much impact, other than reinforcing the view on Wall Street that I was anti-business. Ironically, the same meeting would later be cited by critics on the left as an example of how, in my general fecklessness and alleged chumminess with Wall Street, I had failed to hold the banks accountable during the crisis. Both takes were wrong, but this much was true. By committing to the stress test and the roughly two-month wait for its preliminary results, I'd placed on hold whatever leverage I had over the banks. What was also true was that I felt constrained from making any rash moves while I still had so many fronts of the economic crisis to deal with, including the need to keep the U.S. auto industry from driving over a cliff. Just as the Wall Street implosion was a culmination of long-standing structural problems in the global financial system, what ailed the big three automakers, bad management, bad cars, foreign competition, underfunded pensions, soaring healthcare costs, an over-reliance on the sale of high-margin, gas-guzzling SUVs, had been decades in the making. The financial crisis and the deepening recession had only hastened the reckoning. By the autumn of 2008, auto sales had plunged 30% to their lowest level in more than a decade, and GM and Chrysler were running out of cash. While Ford was in slightly better shape, mainly due to a fortuitous restructuring of its debt just before the crisis hit, Analysts questioned whether it could survive the collapse of the other two, given the reliance of all three automakers on a common pool of parts suppliers across North America. Just before Christmas, Hank Paulson had used a creative reading of the TARP authorization to provide GM and Chrysler with more than $17 billion in bridge loans. But without the political capital to force a more permanent solution, the Bush administration had managed only to kick the can down the road until I took office. Now that the cash was about to run out, it was up to me to decide whether to put billions more into the automakers in order to keep them afloat. Even during the transition, it had been clear to everyone on my team that GM and Chrysler would have to go through some sort of court-structured bankruptcy. Without it, there was simply no way that they could cover the cash they were burning through each month, no matter how optimistic their sales projections. Moreover, bankruptcy alone wouldn't be enough. To justify further government support, the automakers would also have to undergo a painstaking top-to-bottom business reorganization and find a way to make cars that people wanted to buy. I don't understand why Detroit can't make a damn Corolla, I muttered more than once to my staff. Both tasks were easier said than done. For one thing, GM's and Chrysler's top management made the Wall Street crowd look positively visionary. In an early discussion with our transition economic team, GM CEO Rick Wagner's presentation was so slapdash and filled with happy talk, including projections for a 2% increase in sales every year 
despite having seen declining sales for much of the decade preceding the crisis, that it rendered even Larry temporarily speechless. As for bankruptcy, the process for both GM and Chrysler would likely be similar to open-heart surgery. Complicated, bloody, fraught with risk. Just about every stakeholder, management, workers, suppliers, shareholders, pensioners, distributors, creditors, and the communities in which the manufacturing plants were located, stood to lose something in the short term, which would be cause for prolonged bare-knuckle negotiations when it became unclear whether the two companies would even survive another month. We did have a few things going for us. Unlike the situation with the banks, forcing GM and Chrysler to reorganize wasn't likely to trigger widespread panic, which gave us more room to demand concessions in exchange for continued government support. It also helped that I had a strong personal relationship with the United Auto Workers, whose leaders recognized that major changes needed to be made in order for its members to hold on to their jobs. Most important, our White House Auto Task Force, led by Steve Ratner and Ron Bloom, and staffed by a brilliant 31-year-old policy specialist named Brian Dees, was turning out to be terrific, combining analytical rigor with an appreciation for the human dimensions of the million-plus jobs at stake in getting this right. They'd begun negotiations with the carmakers well before I was even sworn in, giving GM and Chrysler 60 days to come up with formal reorganization plans to demonstrate their viability. To make sure the companies didn't collapse during this period, they designed a series of incremental but critical interventions, such as quietly guaranteeing both companies receivables with suppliers so that they didn't run out of parts. In mid-March, the Auto Task Force came to the Oval Office to give me their assessment. Neither of the plans that GM and Chrysler had submitted, they said, passed muster. Both companies were still living in a fantasy world of unrealistic sales projections and vague strategies for getting costs under control. The team felt that with an aggressive, structured bankruptcy, though, GM could get back on track and recommended that we give the company 60 days to revise its reorganization plan, provided it agreed to replace both Rick Wagner and the existing board of directors. When it came to Chrysler, though, our team was split. The smallest of the big three, Chrysler was also in the worst financial shape and, outside of its Jeep brand, had what looked to be an unsalvageable product line. Given our limited resources and the perilous state of auto sales more generally, some on the team argued we'd have a better chance of saving GM if we'd let Chrysler go. Others insisted that we shouldn't underestimate the potential economic shock of allowing an iconic American company to collapse. Either way, the task force let me know. The situation at Chrysler was deteriorating fast enough that I needed to make my decision right away. At this point, my assistant Katie poked her head into the Oval Office, telling me I needed to get to the Situation Room for a meeting with my national security team. Figuring I probably should take more than a half hour to decide the fate of the American auto industry, I asked Rom to reconvene the task force, along with my three senior advisors, Valerie, Pete, and Axe, in the Roosevelt Room later that afternoon so that I could hear from both sides. More process. At that meeting, I listened to Gene Sperling make a pitch for saving Chrysler, and Christy Romer and Austin Goolsby explain why continued support of the company likely amounted to throwing good money after bad. Raman Axe, ever sensitive to the politics of the situation, pointed out that the country opposed, by a stunning two-to-one margin, any further auto bailouts. Even in Michigan, support barely reached a majority. 
Ratner noted that Fiat had recently expressed an interest in buying a significant stake in Chrysler, and that its CEO, Sergio Marchione, had taken over that faltering company in 2004, and impressively, made it profitable within a year and a half. The discussions with Fiat, however, were still tentative, and nobody could guarantee that any intervention would be enough to get Chrysler back on track. A 51-49 decision, Ratner called it, with a strong likelihood that the odds of success would seem bleaker once the company went into bankruptcy and we had a better look under the hood. I was thumbing through the charts, scrutinizing the numbers, occasionally glancing up at the portraits of Teddy and FDR hanging on the wall, when it came time for Gibbs to speak. he previously worked on U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow's campaign in Michigan, and he now pointed to a map in the slide deck that showed every Chrysler plant across the Midwest. Mr. President, he said, I'm not an economist, and I don't know how to run a car company, but I do know we've spent the last three months trying to prevent a second Great Depression. And the thing is, in a lot of these towns, that depression has already arrived. We cut Chrysler off now, and we might as well be signing a death warrant to every spot you see on the map. Each one has thousands of workers counting on us. The kind of people you met on the campaign trail, losing their health care, losing their pensions, too old to start over. I don't know how you walk away from them. I don't think that's why you ran for president. I stared at the points on the map, more than 20 in all, spread across Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio, my mind wandering back to my earliest days as an organizer in Chicago, when I'd met with laid-off steel workers in cold union halls or church basements to discuss their community concerns. I could remember their bodies heavy under winter coats, their hands chapped and calloused, their faces, white, black, brown, betraying the quiet desperation of men who'd lost their purpose. I hadn't been able to help them much then. Their plants had already closed by the time I'd arrived, and people like me had no leverage over the distant executives who made those decisions. I'd entered politics with the notion that I might someday be able to offer something more meaningful to those workers and their families. And now, here I was. I turned to Ratner and Bloom and told them to get Chrysler on the phone. If, with our help, the company could negotiate a deal with Fiat, I said, and deliver a realistic, hard-headed business plan to emerge from a structured bankruptcy within a reasonable time frame, we owed those workers and their communities that chance. It was getting close to dinner time, and I still had several calls to make in the Oval. I was about to adjourn the meeting when I noticed Brian Dees tentatively raising his hand. The youngest member of the task force, he'd barely spoken during the discussion. But unbeknownst to me, he'd actually been the one to prepare the map and brief Gibbs on the human cost involved in letting Chrysler go under. Years later, he'd tell me that he felt the argument would carry more weight coming from a senior staff member. Having seen his side prevail and feeling swept up in the moment, though, Dees started pointing out all the potential upsides of the decision I'd just made, including that a Chrysler-Fiat tandem could end up being the first U.S.-based operation to produce cars capable of getting 40 miles to the gallon. Except, in his nervousness, he said, quote, the first U.S.-produced cars that can go 40 miles an hour. The room was quiet for a moment, then broke into laughter. Realizing his mistake, Dees's face, cherubic beneath his mustache and beard, turned bright red. I smiled and rose from my chair. You know, it just so happens my first car was a 76 Fiat, 
I said, gathering up the papers in front of me. Bought it used, my freshman year of college. Red, five-speed stick. As I remember, it went over 40 miles an hour when it wasn't in the shop. Worst car I ever owned. I walked around the table, patted Dee's on the arm, and turned back as I was heading out the door. The people at Chrysler thank you, I said, for not making that particular argument until after I made my decision. It's often said that a president gets too much credit when the economy is doing well, and too much blame when it slumps. In normal times, that's true. All kinds of factors, from a decision by the Fed, over which a president by law has no authority, to raise or lower interest rates, to the vicissitudes of the business cycle, to bad weather delaying construction projects, or a sudden spike in commodity prices brought on by some conflict on the other side of the world, are likely to have a bigger impact on the day-to-day -day economy than anything the president does. Even major White House initiatives, like a big tax cut or a regulatory overhaul, don't tend to produce any sort of measurable influence on GDP growth or unemployment rates for months or even years. As a result, most presidents labor without knowing the economic impact of their actions. Voters can't gauge it either. There is an inherent unfairness to this, I suppose. Depending on accidents of timing, a president can be punished or rewarded at the polls for things entirely beyond his or her control. At the same time, this also offers an administration a certain margin for error, allowing leaders to set policy while feeling secure in the knowledge that not everything depends on them getting things right. In 2009, however, the situation was different. In the first hundred days of my administration, no margin for error existed. Every move we made counted. Every American was paying attention. Had we restarted the financial system? Had we ended the recession? Put people back to work? Kept people in their homes? Our scorecard was posted daily for everyone to see, with each new fragment of economic data, each news report or anecdote becoming an opportunity for judgment. My team and I carried that knowledge with us the minute we woke up and it stayed with us until we went to bed. Sometimes I think it was only the sheer busyness of those months that kept us from succumbing to the overall stress. After the GM and Chrysler decisions, the main pillars of our strategy were basically in place, which meant we could turn our focus to implementation. The Auto Task Force negotiated a change in GM management, brokered Fiat's stake in Chrysler, and helped put together a plausible plan for the structured bankruptcies and reorganizations of both car companies. The housing team, meanwhile, hammered together the framework for the HAMP and HARP programs. The Recovery Act's tax cuts and grants to states began to flow, with Joe Biden, together with his able chief of staff, Ron Klain, in charge of overseeing the billions of dollars in infrastructure projects with an eye towards minimizing waste or fraud. And Tim and his still skeletal staff at Treasury, along with the Fed, continued to put out fires across the financial system. The pace was relentless. When I met with my economic team for our regular morning briefing, the faces of those arrayed in a horseshoe of chairs and couches around the Oval told a tale of exhaustion. Later, I would hear secondhand accounts of how folks had sometimes yelled at one another during staff meetings, the result of legitimate policy disputes, bureaucratic turf battles, anonymous leaks to the press, the absence of weekends, or too many late-night meals of pizza or chili from the Navy mess on the ground floor of the West Wing. None of this tension spilled into real rancor, 
or kept the work from getting done. Whether due to professionalism or respect for the presidency or awareness of what failure might mean for the country or a solidarity forged from being a collective target for the escalating attacks from all quarters, everyone more or less held it together as we waited for some sign, any sign, that our plans for ending the crisis were in fact going to work. And finally, in late April, it came. Tim dropped by the Oval one day to tell me that the Federal Reserve, which had remained tight-lipped throughout its review of the banks, had at long last given Treasury a preliminary look at the stress test results. So, I said, trying to read Tim's expression, how does it look? Well, the numbers are still subject to some revisions. I threw up my hands in mock exasperation. Better than expected, Mr. President, Tim said. Meaning? Meaning we may have turned the corner. Of the 19 systemically significant institutions subjected to the stress test, the Fed had given nine a clean bill of health, determining that they wouldn't need to raise more capital. Five other banks required more capital to meet the Fed's benchmark, but nonetheless appeared sturdy enough to raise it from private sources. This left five institutions, including Bank of America, Citigroup, and GMAC, the financing arm of General Motors, that were likely to need additional government support. According to the Fed, the collective shortfall looked to be no more than $75 billion, an amount that our remaining TARP funds could comfortably cover if required. Never a doubt, I said deadpan when Tim was finished briefing me. It was the first smile I'd seen on his face in weeks. If Tim felt vindicated by the results of the stress test, he didn't let it show. He did admit several years later that hearing Larry Summers utter the words, you were right, was pretty satisfying. As it was, we kept the early information within our tight circle. The last thing we needed was premature celebration. But when the Fed released its final report two weeks later, its conclusions hadn't changed. And despite some continued skepticism from political commentators, the audience that mattered, the financial markets, found the audit rigorous and credible, inspiring a new rush of confidence. Investors began pumping cash back into financial institutions almost as fast as they'd pulled it out. Corporations found they could borrow again to finance their day-to-day -day operations. Just as fear had compounded the very real losses the banks had suffered from the subprime lending binge, the stress test, along with massive assurances from the U.S. government, had jolted markets back into rational territory. By June, the 10 troubled financial institutions had raised over $66 billion in private capital, leaving only a $9 billion shortfall. The Fed's emergency liquidity fund was able to cut its investment in the financial system by more than two-thirds, and the country's nine largest banks had paid back the U.S. Treasury, returning the $67 billion in TARP funds they'd received with interest. Almost nine months after the fall of Lehman Brothers, the panic appeared to be over. More than a decade has passed since those perilous days at the start of my presidency. And although the details are hazy for most Americans, my administration's handling of the financial crisis still generates fierce debate. Viewed narrowly, it's hard to argue with the results of our actions. Not only did the U.S. banking sector stabilize far sooner than any of its European counterparts, the financial system and the overall economy returned to growth 
faster than those of just about any other nation in history after such a significant shock. If I had predicted on the day of my swearing-in that within a year the U.S. financial system would have stabilized, almost all TARP funds would be fully repaid, having actually made rather than cost taxpayers money, and the economy would have begun what would become the longest stretch of continuous growth and job creation in U.S. history. The majority of pundits and experts would have questioned my mental fitness, or assumed I was smoking something stronger than tobacco. For many thoughtful critics, though, the fact I had engineered a return to pre-crisis normalcy is precisely the problem, a missed opportunity, if not a flat-out betrayal. According to this view, the financial crisis offered me a once-in-a-generation chance to reset the standards for normalcy, remaking not just the financial system, but the American economy overall. If only I had broken up the big banks and sent some white-collar culprits to jail. If only I had put an end to outsized pay packages and Wall Street's heads-I-win, tails-you-lose culture. Then maybe today we'd have a more equitable system that served the interests of working families rather than a handful of billionaires. I understand such frustrations. In many ways, I share them. To this day, I survey reports of America's escalating inequality, its reduced upward mobility, and its still stagnant wages, with all the consequent anger and distortion such trends stir in our democracy. And I wonder whether I should have been bolder in those early months, willing to exact more economic pain in the short term in pursuit of a permanently altered and more just economic order. The thought nags at me. And yet, even if it were possible for me to go back in time and get a do-over, I can't say I would make different choices. In the abstract, all various alternatives and missed opportunities that the critics offer up sound plausible. Simple plot points in a morality tale. But when you dig into the details, each of the options they propose, whether nationalization of the banks or stretching the definitions of criminal statutes to prosecute banking executives or simply letting a portion of the banking system collapse so as to avoid moral hazard, would have required a violence to the social order a wrenching of political and economic norms that almost certainly would have made things worse. Not worse for the wealthy and powerful, who always have a way of landing on their feet. Worse for the very folks I'd be purporting to save. Best case scenario, the economy would have taken longer to recover, with more unemployment, more foreclosures, more business closures. Worst case scenario, it might have tipped into a full-scale depression. Someone with a more revolutionary soul might respond that all this would have been worth it, that you have to break eggs to make an omelet. But as willing as I'd always been to disrupt my own life in pursuit of an idea, I wasn't willing to take those same risks with the well-being of millions of people. In that sense, my first hundred days in office revealed a basic strand of my political character. I was a reformer, conservative in temperament if not in vision. Whether I was demonstrating wisdom or weakness would be for others to judge. And anyway, such ruminations came later. In the summer of 2009, the race had only just started. Once the economy was stabilized, I knew I'd have more time to push through the structural changes in taxes, education, energy, health care, labor law, and immigration that I'd campaigned on. Changes that would make the system fundamentally more fair and expand opportunity for ordinary Americans. 
Already, Tim and his team were preparing options for a comprehensive Wall Street reform package that I would later present to Congress. In the meantime, I tried to remind myself that we had steered the nation away from disaster, that our work was already providing some form of relief. Expanded unemployment insurance payments were keeping families across the country afloat. Tax cuts for small businesses were allowing a few more workers to stay on the payroll. Teachers were in the classroom, and cops were on the beat. An auto factory that had threatened to close was still open, while a mortgage refinancing was keeping someone out there from losing a home. The absence of catastrophe, the preservation of normalcy, wouldn't attract attention. Most of the people impacted wouldn't even know how our policies had touched their lives. But every so often, while reading in the treaty room late at night, I'd come across a letter in my purple folder that began with something like this. Dear President Obama, I'm sure you'll never read this, but I thought you might want to know that a program you started has been a real lifesaver. I'd set down the letter after reading it and pull out a note card to write the person a brief response. I imagined them getting the official envelope from the White House and opening it up with a look of puzzlement, then a smile. They'd show it to their family, maybe even take it to work. Eventually, the letter would fall into a drawer somewhere, forgotten under the accumulation of the new joys and pains that make up a life. That was okay. I couldn't expect people to understand how much their voices actually meant to me, how they had sustained my spirit and beat back whispering doubts on those late, solitary nights. Chapter 13 Before I was inaugurated, Dennis McDonough, my senior campaign foreign policy staffer and soon-to-be head of strategic communications for the National Security Council, insisted that I carve out 30 minutes for what he considered a top-tier priority. We need to make sure you can deliver a proper salute. Dennis himself had never served in the military, although there was an order to his movements, a deliberateness and focus that made some people assume he had. Tall and angular, with a jutting jaw, deep-set eyes, and graying hair that made him appear older than his 39 years, he'd grown up in the small town of Stillwater, Minnesota, one of 11 children in a working-class Irish Catholic family. After graduating from college, he traveled through Latin America and taught high school in Belize gone back to get his master's degree in international affairs, and worked for Tom Daschle, then the Democratic leader in the Senate. In 2007, we recruited Dennis to serve as a foreign policy staffer in my Senate office. And over the course of the campaign, Dennis had assumed more and more responsibility, helping me prepare for debates, putting together briefing books, organizing every aspect of my pre-convention foreign tour, and endlessly jousting with the traveling press corps. Even in a team full of type A personalities, Dennis stood out. He sweated the details, volunteered for the most difficult, thankless tasks, and could not be outworked. During the Iowa campaign, he spent what little spare time he had canvassing door-to-door, famously shoveling snow for folks after a particularly bad storm, hoping to win their commitment to caucus for me. The same disregard for his own physical well-being that had helped him make his college football team as an undersized strong safety, could lead to problems. In the White House, I once had to order him to go home after learning that he'd worked 12 straight hours with a bout of the flu. I came to suspect a religious aspect to this intensity. And though an iconoclastic streak, as well as an adoration of his wife, Kari, 
led him to steer clear of the collar, he approached his work both as a form of service and as self-abnegation. Now, as part of his good works here on Earth, Dennis had taken it upon himself to get me ready for my first day as Commander-in-Chief. On the eve of my inauguration, he invited two military guys, including Matt Flavin, a young Navy veteran who would serve as my White House Veteran Affairs staffer, to the transition office to put me through my paces. They started by showing me a bunch of photos of previous presidential salutes that did not make the grade. Weak wrists, curled fingers, George W. Bush trying to salute while carrying his dog under his arm. Then they evaluated my own form, which was apparently not stellar. Elbow out a little farther, sir, said one. Fingers tighter, sir, said the other. The tip should be right at your eyebrow. After 20 minutes or so, though, my tutors seemed satisfied. Once they'd left, I turned to Dennis. Anything else you're nervous about? I teased. Dennis shook his head unconvincingly. Not nervous, Mr. President-elect. Just want us to be prepared. For what? Dennis smiled. For everything. It's a truism that a president's single most important job is to keep the American people safe. Depending on your political predispositions and electoral mandate, you might have a burning desire to fix public education or restore prayer in schools, raise the minimum wage, or break the power of public sector unions. But whether Republican or Democrat, the one thing every president must obsess over, the source of chronic, unrelenting tension that burrows deep inside you from the moment you are elected, is the awareness that everybody is depending on you to protect them. How you approach the task depends on how you define the threats that the country faces. What do we fear most? Is it the possibility of a Russian nuclear attack? Or that a bureaucratic miscalculation or glitch in the software launches one of our warheads by mistake? Is it some fanatic blowing himself up on a subway? Or the government, under the guise of protecting you from fanatics, tapping into your email account? Is it a gas shortage caused by disruptions to foreign oil supplies? Or the oceans rising and the planet frying? Is it an immigrant family sneaking across a river in search of a better life? Or a pandemic disease, incubated by poverty and a lack of public services in a poor country overseas, drifting invisibly into our homes? For most of the 20th century, for most Americans, the what and why of our national defense seemed pretty straightforward. We lived with the possibility of being attacked by another great power or being drawn into a conflict between great powers or having America's vital interests, as defined by the wise men in Washington, threatened by some foreign actor. After World War II, there were the Soviets and the Communist Chinese and their real or perceived proxies, ostensibly intent on world domination and threatening our way of life. And then came terrorist attacks emanating from the Middle East, at first on the periphery of our vision scary but manageable, until just months into a brand new century, the sight of the Twin Towers crumbling to dust made our worst fears manifest. I grew up with many of these fears imprinted on me. In Hawaii, I knew families who'd lost loved ones at Pearl Harbor. My grandfather, his brother, and my grandmother's brother all fought in World War II. I was raised to believe that nuclear war was a very real possibility. In grade school, I watched coverage of Olympic athletes being slaughtered by masked men in Munich. In college, I listened to Ted Koppel, marking the number of days Americans were being held hostage in Iran. 
Too young to have known the anguish of Vietnam firsthand, I had witnessed only the honor and restraint of our service members during the Gulf War. And like most Americans, I viewed our military operations in Afghanistan after 9-11 as both necessary and just. But another set of stories had also been etched into me, different, though not contradictory, about what America meant to those living in the world beyond it, the symbolic power of a country built upon the ideals of freedom. I remember being seven or eight years old and sitting on the cool floor tiles of our house on the outskirts of Jakarta, proudly showing my friends a picture book of Honolulu with its high-rises and city lights and wide paved roads. I would never forget the wonder in their faces as I answered their questions about life in America, explaining how everybody got to go to school with plenty of books, and there were no beggars because most everyone had a job and enough to eat. Later, as a young man, I witnessed my mother's impact as a contractor with organizations like USAID, helping women in remote Asian villages get access to credit, and the lasting gratitude those women felt that Americans an ocean away actually cared about their plight. When I first visited Kenya, I sat with newfound relatives who told me how much they admired American democracy and rule of law, a contrast, they said, to the tribalism and corruption that plagued their country. Such moments taught me to see my country through the eyes of others. I was reminded how lucky I was to be an American, to take none of those blessings for granted. I saw firsthand the power our example exerted on the hearts and minds of people around the world. But with that came a corollary lesson, an awareness of what we risked when our actions failed to live up to our image and our ideals, the anger and resentment this could breed, the damage that was done. When I heard Indonesians talk about the hundreds of thousands slaughtered in a coup, widely believed to have CIA backing, that had brought a military dictatorship to power in 1967, or listened to Latin American environmental activists detailing how U.S. companies were befouling their countryside, or commiserated with Indian-American or Pakistani-American friends as they chronicled the countless times they'd been pulled aside for, quote, random searches at airports since 9-11. I felt America's defenses weakening, saw chinks in the armor that I was sure over time made our country less safe. That dual vision, as much as my skin color, distinguished me from previous presidents. For my supporters, it was a defining foreign policy strength, enabling me to amplify America's influence around the world and anticipate problems that might arise from ill-considered policies. For my detractors, it was evidence of weakness, raising the possibility that I might hesitate to advance American interests because of a lack of conviction or even divided loyalties. For some of my fellow citizens, it was far worse than that. Having the son of a black African with a Muslim name and socialist ideas ensconced in the White House with the full force of the U.S. government under his command was precisely the thing they wanted to be defended against. As for the senior ranks of my national security team, they all considered themselves internationalists to one degree or another. They believed that American leadership was necessary to keep the world moving in a better direction and that our influence came in many forms. Even the more liberal members of my team, like Dennis, had no qualms about the use of, quote, hard power to go after terrorists and were scornful of leftist critics who'd made a living blaming the United States for every problem around the globe. Meanwhile, the most hawkish members of my team understood the importance of public diplomacy 
and considered the exercise of so-called soft power, like foreign aid and student exchange programs, to be essential ingredients in an effective U.S. foreign policy. The question was one of emphasis. How much concern did we have for the people beyond our borders? And how much should we simply worry about our own citizens? How much was our fate actually tied to the fate of people abroad? To what extent should America bind itself to multilateral institutions like the United Nations? And to what extent should we go it alone in pursuit of our own interests? Should we align ourselves with authoritarian governments that help keep a lid on possible chaos? Or was the smarter long-term play to champion the forces of democratic reform? How members of my administration lined up on these issues wasn't always predictable. But in our internal debates, I could detect a certain generational divide. With the exception of Susan Rice, my youthful UN ambassador, all of my national security principals, Secretaries Gates and Clinton, CIA Director Leon Panetta, members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as my national security advisor, Jim Jones, and my Director of National Intelligence, Denny Blair, had come of age during the height of the Cold War and spent decades as part of Washington's national security establishment, a dense, interlocking network of current and former White House policymakers congressional staffers, academics, heads of think tanks, Pentagon brass, newspaper columnists, military contractors, and lobbyists. For them, a responsible foreign policy meant continuity, predictability, and an unwillingness to stray too far from conventional wisdom. It was this impulse that had led most of them to support the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And if the resulting disaster had forced them to reconsider that particular decision, they were still not inclined to ask whether the bipartisan rush into Iraq indicated the need for a fundamental overhaul of America's national security framework. The younger members of my national security team, including most of the NSC staff, had different ideas. No less patriotic than their bosses, seared by both the horrors of 9-11 and the images of Iraqi prisoners abused by U.S. military personnel at Abu Ghraib, many of them had gravitated to my campaign precisely because I was willing to challenge the assumptions of what we often refer to as the Washington playbook. Whether it was on Middle East policy, our posture on Cuba, our unwillingness to engage adversaries diplomatically, the importance of restoring legal guardrails in the fight against terror, or the elevation of human rights, international development, and climate change from acts of altruism to central aspects of our national security. None of these younger staffers were firebrands, and they respected the institutional knowledge of those with deep foreign policy experience. But they made no apologies for wanting to break from some of the constraints of the past in pursuit of something better. At times, friction between the new and the old guard inside my foreign policy team would spill into the open. When it did, the media tended to attribute it to a youthful impertinence among my staff and a lack of basic understanding about how Washington worked. That wasn't the case. In fact, it was precisely because staffers like Dennis did know how Washington worked, because they'd witnessed how the foreign policy bureaucracy could slow walk, misinterpret, bury, badly execute, or otherwise resist new directions from a president, that they would often end up butting heads with the Pentagon, State Department, and CIA. And in that sense, the tensions that emerged within our foreign policy team were a product of my own design a way for me to work through the tensions in my own head. I imagined myself on the bridge of an aircraft carrier, certain that America needed to steer a new course, 
but entirely dependent on a more seasoned and sometimes skeptical crew to execute that change, mindful that there were limits to what the vessel could do and that too sharp a turn could lead to disaster. With the stakes as high as they were, I was coming to realize that leadership, particularly in the national security arena, was about more than executing well-reasoned policy. Awareness of custom and ritual mattered. Symbols and protocol mattered. Body language mattered. I worked on my salute. At the start of each day of my presidency, I'd find a leather binder waiting for me at the breakfast table. Michelle called it the Death, Destruction, and Horrible Things book, though officially it was known as the President's Daily Brief, or PDB. Top secret, usually about 10 to 15 pages in length, and prepared overnight by the CIA in concert with the other intelligence agencies. The PDB was intended to provide the President a summary of world events and intelligence analysis, particularly anything that was likely to affect America's national security. On any given day, I might read about terrorist cells in Somalia, or unrest in Iraq, or the fact that the Chinese or Russians were developing new weapon systems. Nearly always, there was mention of potential terrorist plots, no matter how vague, thinly sourced, or unactionable, a form of due diligence on the part of the intelligence community meant to avoid the kind of second-guessing that had transpired after 9-11. Much of the time, what I read in the PDB required no immediate response. The goal was to have a continuous, up-to-date sense of all that was roiling in the world the large, small, and sometimes barely perceptible shifts that threatened to upset whatever equilibrium we were trying to maintain. After reading the PDB, I'd head down to the Oval for a live version of the briefing with members of the NSC and National Intelligence staffs, where we'd go over any items considered urgent. The men running those briefings, Jim Jones and Denny Blair, were former four-star officers I'd first met while serving in the Senate. Jones had been Supreme Allied Commander for Europe, while Blair had recently retired from his role as Navy Admiral in charge of Pacific Command. They looked the part, tall and fit, with close-cropped graying hair and ramrod straight bearings. And although I had originally consulted with them on military matters, both prided themselves on having expansive views of what constituted national security priorities. Jones, for example, cared deeply about Africa and the Middle East, and following his military retirement had been involved in security efforts in the West Bank and Gaza. Blair had written extensively on the role of economic and cultural diplomacy in managing a rising China. As a result, the two of them would occasionally arrange for analysts and experts to attend morning PDB sessions and brief me on big-picture, long-term topics. The implications of economic growth in sustaining democratization in sub-Saharan Africa, say, or the possible effects of climate change on future regional conflicts. More often, though, our morning discussions focused on current, and potential mayhem. Coups, nuclear weapons, violent protests, border conflicts, and most of all, war. The war in Afghanistan, soon to be the longest in American history. The war in Iraq, where nearly 150,000 American troops were still deployed. The war against Al-Qaeda, which was actively recruiting converts, building a network of affiliates, and plotting attacks inspired by the ideology of Osama bin Laden. The cumulative costs of what both the Bush administration and the media described as a single, comprehensive war against terrorism had been staggering. Almost a trillion dollars spent, more than 3,000 U.S. troops killed, as many as 10 times that number wounded. 
the toll on Iraqi and Afghan civilians was even higher. The Iraq campaign in particular had divided the country and strained alliances. Meanwhile, the use of extraordinary renditions, black sites, waterboarding, indefinite detention without trial at Guantanamo, and expanded domestic surveillance in the broader fight against terrorism had led people inside and outside the United States to question our nation's commitment to the rule of law. I'd put forward what I considered to be clear positions on all these issues during the campaign. But that had been from the cheap seats, before I had hundreds of thousands of troops and a sprawling national security infrastructure under my command. Any terrorist attack would now happen on my watch. Any American lives lost or compromised, at home or abroad, would weigh uniquely on my conscience. These were my wars now. My immediate goal was to review each aspect of our military strategy so that we could take a thoughtful approach to what came next. Thanks to the Status of Forces Agreement, or SOFA, that President Bush and Prime Minister Maliki had signed about a month before my inauguration, the broad outlines of a U.S. withdrawal from Iraq had largely been settled. American combat forces needed to be out of Iraqi cities and villages by the end of June 2009, and all U.S. forces would leave the country by the end of 2011. The only question remaining was whether we could or should move faster than that. During the campaign, I'd committed to withdrawing U.S. combat forces from Iraq within 16 months of taking office. But after the election, I had told Bob Gates that I'd be willing to show flexibility on the pace of withdrawal so long as we stayed within the SOFA parameters, an acknowledgment that ending a war was an imprecise business. The commanders who were knee-deep in the fighting deserved some deference when it came to tactical decisions and that new presidents couldn't simply tear up agreements reached by their predecessors. In February, Gates and our newly installed commander in Iraq, General Ray Odierno, presented me with a plan that withdrew U.S. combat forces from the country in 19 months, three months later than I had proposed during the campaign, but four months sooner than what military commanders were asking for. The plan also called for maintaining a residual force of 50 to 55,000 non-combat U.S. personnel which would remain in the country till the end of 2011, to train and assist the Iraqi military. Some in the White House questioned the necessity of the extra three months and the large residual force, reminding me that both congressional Democrats and the American people strongly favored an accelerated exit, not a delay. I approved Odierno's plan anyway, traveling to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina to announce the decision before several thousand cheering Marines. As firmly as I had opposed the original decision to invade, I believed America now had both a strategic and a humanitarian interest in Iraq's stability. With combat troops scheduled to leave Iraq's population centers in just five months per the SOFA, our service members' exposure to heavy fighting, snipers, and improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, would be greatly diminished as we progressed with the rest of the drawdown. And given the fragility of Iraq's new government, the ragged state of its security forces, the still-active presence of al-Qaeda in Iraq, or AQI, and the sky-high levels of sectarian hostility sizzling inside the country, it made sense to use the presence of residual forces as a kind of insurance policy against a return to chaos. Once we're out, I told Rahm, explaining my decision, the last thing I want is for us to have to go back in. If arriving at a plan for Iraq was relatively straightforward, Finding our way out of Afghanistan was anything but. Unlike the war in Iraq, 
The Afghan campaign had always seemed to me a war of necessity. Though the Taliban's ambitions were confined to Afghanistan, their leadership remained loosely allied to al-Qaeda, and the return to power could result in the country once again serving as a launching pad for terrorist attacks against the United States and its allies. Moreover, Pakistan had shown neither the capacity nor the will to dislodge al-Qaeda's leadership from its current sanctuary in a remote, mountainous, and barely governed region straddling the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. This meant that our ability to pin down and ultimately destroy the terrorist network depended on the Afghan government's willingness to let U.S. military and intelligence teams operate in its territory. Unfortunately, the six-year diversion of U.S. attention and resources to Iraq had left the situation in Afghanistan more perilous. Despite the fact that we had more than 30,000 U.S. troops on the ground and an almost equal number of international coalition troops there, the Taliban controlled large swaths of the country, particularly in the regions along the border with Pakistan. In places where U.S. or coalition forces weren't present, Taliban fighters overwhelmed a far larger but badly trained Afghan army. Meanwhile, mismanagement and rampant corruption inside the police force, district governorships, and key ministries had eroded the legitimacy of Hamad Karzai's government and siphoned off foreign aid dollars desperately needed to improve living conditions for one of the world's poorest populations. The lack of a coherent U.S. strategy didn't help. Depending on who you talked to, our mission in Afghanistan was either narrow, wiping out al-Qaeda, or broad, transforming the country into a modern democratic state that would be aligned with the West. Our Marines and soldiers repeatedly cleared the Taliban from an area only to see their efforts squandered for lack of even halfway capable local governance. Whether because of overambition, corruption, or lack of Afghan buy-in, U.S.-sponsored development programs often failed to deliver as promised, while the issuance of massive U.S. contracts to some of Kabul's shadiest business operators undermined the very anti-corruption efforts designed to win over the Afghan people. In light of all this, I told Gates that my first priority was to make sure our agencies, both civilian and military, were aligned around a clearly defined mission and a coordinated strategy. He didn't disagree. As a CIA deputy director in the 1980s, Gates had helped oversee the arming of the Afghan Mujahideen in their fight against the Soviet occupation of their country. The experience of watching that loosely organized insurgency bleed the mighty Red Army into retreat only to have elements of that same insurgency later evolve into al-Qaeda, had made Gates mindful of the unintended consequences that could result from rash actions. Unless we established limited and realistic objectives, he told me, we'll set ourselves up for failure. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, also saw the need for a revamped Afghan strategy. But there was a catch. He and our military commanders first wanted me to authorize the immediate deployment of an additional 30,000 U.S. troops. In fairness to Mullen, the request, which had come from the International Security Assistance Force, or ISAF, commander in Afghanistan, General Dave McKiernan, had been pending for several months. During the transition, President Bush had put out feelers to see if we wanted him to order the deployment before I took office, but we'd indicated that our preference was to hold off until the incoming team had fully assessed the situation. According to Mullen, McKiernan's request could no longer wait. At our first full NSC meeting, held in the White House Situation Room, often referred to as the Sit Room, just two days after my inauguration, 
Mullen had explained that the Taliban were likely to mount a summer offensive and that we'd want additional brigades on the ground in time to try to blunt it. He reported that McKiernan was also worried about providing adequate security for the presidential election, which was originally scheduled for May but would be postponed until August. If we wanted to get troops there in time to achieve those missions, Mullen told me, we needed to put things in motion immediately. Thanks to the movies, I'd always imagined the sit-room as a cavernous, futuristic space, ringed by ceiling-high screens full of high-resolution satellite and radar images and teeming with smartly-dressed personnel manning banks of -of state-of-the-art gizmos and gadgets. The reality was less dazzling. Just a small, nondescript conference room, part of a warren of other small rooms wedged into a corner of the West Wing's first floor. Its windows were sealed off with plain wooden shutters. Its walls were bare except for digital clocks showing the time in various world capitals and a few flat screens not much bigger than those found in a neighborhood sports bar. Quarters were close. The principal council members sat around a long conference table with various deputies and staff crammed into chairs lining the sides of the room. Just so I understand, I said to Mullen, trying not to sound too skeptical. After almost five years, where we managed with 20,000 or fewer U.S. troops, and after adding another 10,000 over the past 20 months or so, it's the Pentagon's assessment that we can't wait another two months before deciding to double our troop commitment? I pointed out that I wasn't averse to sending more troops. During the campaign, I had pledged an additional two brigades for Afghanistan once the Iraq withdrawal was underway. But given that everyone in the room had just agreed that we should bring in a well-regarded former CIA analyst and Middle East expert named Bruce Rydell to lead a 60-day review meant to shape our Afghan strategy going forward, sending another 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan before the review was complete felt like a case of putting the cart before the horse. I asked Mullen whether a smaller deployment could serve as a sufficient bridge. He told me that ultimately it was my decision adding pointedly that any reduction in the number or further delay would substantially increase risk. I let others chime in. David Petraeus, who was coming off his success in Iraq and had been elevated to the head of Central Command, which oversaw all military missions in the Middle East and Central Asia, including Iraq and Afghanistan, urged me to approve McKiernan's request. So did Hillary and Panetta, which didn't surprise me. As effective as the two of them would turn out to be in managing their agencies, their hawkish instincts and political backgrounds left them perpetually wary of opposing any recommendations that came from the Pentagon. In private, Gates had expressed to me that he felt some ambivalence about such a significant increase in our Afghan footprint. But given his institutional role, I didn't expect him to directly countermand a recommendation from the chiefs. Among the principals, only Joe Biden voiced his misgivings. He had traveled to Kabul on my behalf during the transition, and what he saw and heard on that trip, particularly during a contentious meeting with Karzai, had convinced him that we needed to rethink our entire approach to Afghanistan. I knew Joe also still felt burned by having supported the Iraq invasion years earlier. Whatever the mix of reasons, he saw Afghanistan as a dangerous quagmire and urged me to delay a deployment, suggesting it would be easier to put troops in once we had a clear strategy as opposed to trying to pull troops out after we'd made a mess with a bad one. Rather than deciding on the spot, I assigned Tom Donlan to convene the NSC deputies over the course of the following week to determine more precisely how additional troops would be used and whether deploying them by summer was even possible logistically. 
We'd revisit the issue, I said, once we had the answer. With the meeting adjourned, I headed out the door and was on my way up the stairs to the Oval when Joe caught up to me and gripped my arm. Listen to me, boss, he said. Maybe I've been around this town for too long, but one thing I know is when these generals are trying to box in a new president. He brought his face a few inches from mine and stage whispered, Don't let them jam you. In later accounts of our Afghanistan deliberations, Gates and others would peg Biden as one of the ringleaders who poisoned relations between the White House and the Pentagon. The truth was, I considered Joe to be doing me a service by asking tough questions about the military's plans. Having at least one contrarian in the room made us all think harder about the issues, and I noticed that everyone was a bit freer with their opinions when that contrarian wasn't me. I never questioned Mullen's motives, or those of the other chiefs and combatant commanders who made up the military's leadership. I found Mullen, a Los Angeles native whose parents had worked in the entertainment business, to be consistently affable, prepared, responsive, and professional. His vice chairman, Marine four-star General James Haas Cartwright, had the sort of self-effacing, pensive manner you wouldn't associate with a former fighter pilot. But when he did speak up, he was full of detailed insights and creative solutions across a whole set of national security problems. Despite differences in temperament, both Mullen and Cartwright shared attributes I found common among the top brass. White men, the military had just one woman and one black four-star general when I took office, in their late 50s or early 60s who had spent decades working their way up the ranks, amassing stellar service records and, in many cases, advanced academic degrees. Their views of the world were informed and sophisticated, and contrary to the stereotypes, they understood all too well the limits of military action because of, and not despite, the fact that they had commanded troops under fire. In fact, during my eight years as president, it was often the generals, rather than civilians, who counseled restraint when it came to the use of force. Still, men like Mullen were creatures of the system to which they devoted their entire adult lives, a U.S. military that prided itself on accomplishing a mission once started, without regard to cost, duration, or whether the mission was the right one to begin with. In Iraq, that had meant an escalating need for more of everything. More troops, more bases, more private contractors, more aircraft, and more intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, or ISR. More had not produced victory, but it had at least avoided humiliating defeat and had salvaged the country from total collapse. Now, with Afghanistan looking like it too was sliding into a sinkhole, it was perhaps natural that the military leadership wanted more there as well and because until recently they'd been working with a president who rarely questioned their plans or denied their requests, it was probably inevitable that the debate over how much more would become a recurring source of strife between the Pentagon and my White House. In mid-February, Donilon reported that the deputies had scrubbed General McKiernan's request and concluded that no more than 17,000 troops, along with 4,000 military trainers, could be deployed in time to have a meaningful impact on the summer fighting season or Afghan election security. Although we were still a month away from completing our formal review, all the principals except Biden recommended that we deploy that number of troops immediately. I gave the order on February 17th, the same day I signed the Recovery Act, having determined that even the most conservative strategy we might come up with would need the additional manpower and knowing that we still had 10,000 troops in reserve if circumstances required their deployment as well. A month later, Rydell and his team completed their report. 
Their assessment offered no surprises, but it did help articulate our principal goal to, quote, disrupt, dismantle, and defeat al-Qaeda in Pakistan and Afghanistan and to prevent their return to either country in the future. The report's added emphasis on Pakistan was key. Not only did the Pakistan military, and in particular its intelligence arm, ISI, tolerate the presence of Taliban headquarters and leadership in Quetta, near the Pakistani border, but it was also quietly assisting the Taliban as a means of keeping the Afghan government weak and hedging against Kabul's potential alignment with Pakistan's arch-rival, India. That the U.S. government had long tolerated such behavior from a purported ally, supporting it with billions of dollars in military and economic aid, despite its complicity with violent extremists, and its record as a significant and irresponsible proliferator of nuclear weapons technology in the world, said something about the pretzel-like logic of U.S. foreign policy. In the short term, at least, a complete cutoff of military aid to Pakistan wasn't an option, since not only did we rely on overland routes through Pakistan to supply our Afghan operations, but the Pakistani government also tacitly facilitated our counterterrorism efforts against al-Qaeda camps within its territory. The Rydell report, though, made one thing clear. Unless Pakistan stopped sheltering the Taliban, our efforts at long-term stability in Afghanistan were bound to fail. The rest of the report's recommendations centered on building capacity. We needed to drastically improve the Karzai government's ability to govern and provide basic services. We needed to train up the Afghan army and police force so that they would be competent and large enough to maintain security within the country's borders without help from U.S. forces. Exactly how we were going to do all that remained vague. What was clear, though, was that the U.S. commitment the Rydell Report was calling for went well beyond a bare-bones counterterrorism strategy and toward a form of nation-building that probably would have made sense if we had started seven years earlier, the moment we drove the Taliban out of Kabul. Of course, that's not what we had done. Instead, we had invaded Iraq, broken that country, helped spawn an even more virulent branch of al-Qaeda, and been forced to improvise a costly counterinsurgency campaign there. As far as Afghanistan was concerned, those years were lost. Due to the continuing, often valiant efforts of our troops, diplomats, and aid workers on the ground, it was an exaggeration to say that we had to start from scratch in Afghanistan. But it nonetheless dawned on me that even in the best-case scenario, even if Karzai cooperated, Pakistan behaved, and our goals were limited to what Gates liked to call Afghan good enough, we were still looking at three to five years of intense effort, costing hundreds of billions more dollars and more American lives. I didn't like the deal, but in what was becoming a pattern, the alternatives were worse. The stakes involved, the risk of a possible collapse of the Afghan government or the Taliban gaining footholds in major cities, were simply too high for us not to act. On March 27th, just four weeks after announcing the Iraqi withdrawal plan, I appeared on television with my national security team behind me and laid out our, quote, AFPAC strategy, based largely on the Rydell recommendations. I knew how the announcement would land. A number of commentators would quickly seize on the irony that having run for president as an anti-war candidate, I'd so far sent more troops into combat than I had brought home. Along with the troop increase, there was one other change in our Afghan posture that Gates asked me to make, one that frankly took me by surprise. In April, during one of our Oval Office meetings, he recommended that we replace our existing commander in Afghanistan, General McKiernan, 
with Lieutenant General Stanley McChrystal, the former commander of Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, and current director of the Joint Chiefs. Dave's a fine soldier, Gates said, acknowledging that McKiernan had done nothing wrong and that changing a commanding general in the middle of a war was a highly unusual step. But he's a manager. In an environment this challenging, we need someone with different skills. I couldn't sleep at night, Mr. President, if I didn't make sure our troops had the best possible commander leading them, and I'm convinced Stan McChrystal's that person. It was easy to see why Gates thought so highly of McChrystal. Within the U.S. military, members of special ops were considered a breed apart, an elite warrior class that carried out the most difficult missions under the most dangerous circumstances. The guys in the movies repelling from helicopters into enemy territory or making amphibious landings under cover of darkness. And within that exalted circle, no one was more admired or elicited more loyalty than McChrystal. A West Point graduate, he'd consistently excelled over the course of a 33-year career. As JSOC commander, he'd helped transform special ops into a central element in America's defense strategy, personally overseeing dozens of counterterrorism operations that had dismantled much of AQI and killed its founder, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Rumor had it that at 54, he still trained with Rangers half his age. And from the looks of him when he stopped by the Oval with Gates for a courtesy visit, I believed it. The man was all muscle, sinew, and bone, with a long, angular face and a piercing avian gaze. In fact, McChrystal's whole manner was that of someone who's burned away frivolity and distractions from his life. With me, at least, that included small talk. During our conversation, it was mostly, yes, sir, and no, sir, and I'm confident we can get the job done. I was sold. The change, when announced, was well-received, with commentators drawing parallels between McChrystal and David Petraeus, battlefield innovators who could turn a war around. Senate confirmation was swift, and in mid-June, as McChrystal, now a four-star general, prepared to assume command of coalition forces in Afghanistan, Gates asked him to provide us with a fresh, top-to-bottom assessment of conditions there within 60 days along with recommendations for any changes in strategy, organization, or resourcing of coalition efforts. Little did I know what this seemingly routine request would bring. One afternoon, a couple of months after the AFPAC announcement, I walked alone across the South Lawn, trailed by a military aide carrying the football and my Veterans Affairs staffer, Matt Flavin, to board the Marine One helicopter and make the brief flight to Maryland for the first of what would be regular visits to Bethesda Naval Hospital and Walter Reed Army Medical Center. On arrival, I was greeted by commanders of the facility, who gave me a quick overview of the number and conditions of wounded warriors on site before leading me through a maze of stairs, elevators, and corridors to the main patient's ward. For the next hour, I proceeded from room to room sanitizing my hands and donning scrubs and surgical gloves where necessary, stopping in the hallway to get some background on the recovering service member from hospital staffers before knocking softly on the door. Though patients at the hospitals came from every branch of the military, many who were there during my first few years in office were members of the U.S. Army and Marine Corps that patrolled the insurgent-dominated areas of Iraq and Afghanistan and had been injured by gunfire or IEDs. Almost all were male and working class. Whites from small rural towns or fading manufacturing hubs. Blacks and Hispanics from cities like Houston or Trenton. Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders from California. Usually, they had family members sitting with them. 
mostly parents, grandparents, and siblings, though if the service member was older, there would be a wife and kids too. Toddlers swarming in laps, five-year-olds with toy cars, teenagers playing video games. As soon as I entered the room, everyone would shift around, smiling shyly, appearing not quite sure what to do. For me, this was one of the vagaries of the job. The fact that my presence reliably caused a disruption and about a nervousness among those I was meeting. I tried always to lighten the mood, doing what I could to put people at ease. Unless fully incapacitated, the service members would usually raise their bed upright, sometimes pulling themselves to a seated position by reaching for the sturdy metal handle on the bedpost. Several insisted on hopping out of bed, often balancing on their good leg to salute and shake my hand. I'd ask them about their hometown and how long they'd been in the service. I'd ask them how they got their injury and how soon they might be starting rehab or getting fitted for a prosthetic. We often talked sports, and some would ask me to sign a unit flag hung on the wall, and I'd give each service member a commemorative challenge coin. Then we'd all position ourselves around the bed as Pete Souza took pictures with his camera and with their phones, and Matt would give out business cards so they could call him personally at the White House if they needed anything at all. How those men inspired me. Their courage and determination their insistence that they'd be back at it in no time, their general lack of fuss. It made so much of what passes for patriotism, the gaudy rituals at football games, the desultory flag-waving at parades, the blather of politicians, seem empty and trite. The patients I met had nothing but praise for the hospital teams responsible for their treatment, the doctors, nurses, and orderlies, most of them service members themselves, but some of them civilians, a surprising number of them foreign-born, originally from places like Nigeria, El Salvador, or the Philippines. Indeed, it was heartening to see how well these wounded warriors were cared for, beginning with the seamless, fast-moving chain that allowed a Marine injured in a dusty Afghan village to be medevaced to the closest base, stabilized, then transported to Germany and onward to Bethesda or Walter Reed for state-of-the-art surgery, all in a matter of days. Because of that system, a melding of advanced technology, logistical precision, and highly trained and dedicated people, the kind of thing that the U.S. military does better than any other organization on Earth. Many soldiers who would have died from similar wounds during the Vietnam era were now able to sit with me at their bedside, debating the merits of the Bears versus the Packers. Still, no level of precision or care could erase the brutal, life-changing nature of the injuries these men had suffered. Those who had lost a single leg, especially if the amputation was below the knee, often described themselves as being lucky. Double or even triple amputees were not uncommon, nor were severe cranial trauma, spinal injuries, disfiguring facial wounds, or the loss of eyesight, hearing, or any number of basic bodily functions. The service members I met were adamant that they had no regrets about sacrificing so much for their country and were understandably offended by anyone who viewed them with even a modicum of pity. Taking their cues from their wounded sons, the parents I met were careful to express only the certainty of their child's recovery, along with their deep wells of pride. And yet, each time I entered a room, each time I shook a hand, I could not ignore how incredibly young most of these service members were, many of them barely out of high school. I couldn't help but notice the rims of anguish around the eyes of the parents, who themselves were often younger than me. 
I wouldn't forget the barely suppressed anger in the voice of a father I met at one point as he explained that his handsome son, who lay before us likely paralyzed for life, was celebrating his 21st birthday that day. Or the vacant expression on the face of a young mother who sat with a baby cheerfully gurgling in her arms, pondering a life with a husband who was probably going to survive but would no longer be capable of conscious thought. Later, toward the end of my presidency, the New York Times would run an article about my visits to the military hospitals. In it, a national security official from a previous administration opined that the practice, no matter how well-intentioned, was not something a commander-in-chief should do. The visits with the wounded inevitably clouded a president's capacity to make clear-eyed, strategic decisions. I was tempted to call that man and explain that I was never more clear-eyed than on the flights back from Walter Reed and Bethesda clear about the true costs of war and who bore those costs, clear about war's folly, the sorry tales we humans collectively store in our heads and pass on from generation to generation, abstractions that fan hate and justify cruelty and force even the righteous among us to participate in carnage, clear that by virtue of my office, I could not avoid responsibility for lives lost or shattered even if I somehow justified my decisions by what I perceived to be some larger good. Looking through the helicopter window at the tidy green landscape below, I thought about Lincoln during the Civil War, his habit of wandering through makeshift infirmaries not so far from where we were flying, talking softly to soldiers who lay on flimsy cots, bereft of antiseptics to staunch infections or drugs to manage pain, the stench of gangrene everywhere, the clattering and wheezing of impending death. I wondered how Lincoln had managed it, what prayers he said afterward. He must have known it was a necessary penance, a penance I, too, had to pay. As all-consuming as war and the threat of terrorism were proving to be, other foreign policy issues also required my attention, including the need to manage the international fallout from the financial crisis. That was the major focus of my first extended foreign trip when I traveled to London for the Group of 20 Leaders Summit in April and then onward to continental Europe, Turkey, and Iraq over the course of eight days. Before 2008, the G20 had been nothing more than a yearly meeting of finance ministers and central bank governors representing the world's 20 largest economies to exchange information and tend to the routine details of globalization. U.S. presidents reserved their attendance for the more exclusive G8, an annual gathering for leaders of the world's seven largest economies, the United States, Japan, Germany, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, and Canada, plus Russia, which for geopolitical reasons Bill Clinton and British Prime Minister Tony Blair had pushed to include in 1997. This changed when, after Lehman's collapse, President Bush and Hank Paulson wisely invited the leaders of all G20 countries to an emergency meeting in Washington, a recognition that in today's interconnected world, a major financial crisis required the broadest possible coordination. Beyond a vague pledge to, quote, take whatever further actions are necessary and an agreement to gather again in 2009, the Washington G20 summit had yielded little in the way of concrete action. But with practically every nation now poised for a recession and global trade projected to contract by 9%, my assignment for the London summit was to unite the diverse set of G20 members around a swift and aggressive joint response. The economic rationale was straightforward. For years, U.S. consumer spending, 
turbocharged with credit card debt and home equity loans, had been the primary engine of global economic growth. Americans bought cars from Germany, electronics from South Korea, and practically everything else from China. These countries, in turn, bought raw materials from countries further down the global supply chain. Now, the party was over. No matter how well the Recovery Act and the stress tests might work, American consumers and businesses were going to be digging themselves out of debt for a while. If other countries wanted to avoid a continued downward spiral, they would have to step up by implementing stimulus packages of their own, by contributing to a $500 billion International Monetary Fund, or IMF, emergency pool that could be tapped as needed by economies in severe distress, and by pledging to avoid a repeat of the protectionist, beggar-thy-neighbor policies that had prolonged the Great Depression. It all made sense, at least on paper. Before the summit, though, Tim Geithner had warned that getting my foreign counterparts to agree to these steps might require some finesse. The bad news is they're all mad at us for blowing up the global economy, he said. The good news is that they're afraid of what will happen if we do nothing. Michelle had decided to join me for the first half of the trip, which made me happy. She was less concerned with my performance at the summit. You'll be fine than she was with how to dress for our planned audience with Her Majesty the Queen of England. You should wear one of those little hats, I said, and carry a little handbag. She gave me a mock scowl. That's not helpful. I'd flown on Air Force One close to two dozen times by then, but it wasn't until that first transatlantic flight that I truly appreciated the degree to which it served as a symbol of American power. The aircrafts themselves, two customized Boeing 747s share the job, were 22 years old, and it showed. The interiors, heavy upholstered leather chairs, walnut tables and paneling, a rust-colored carpet with a pattern of gold stars, called to mind a 1980s corporate boardroom or country club lounge. The communication system for passengers could be spotty. Not until well into my second term would we get Wi-Fi on board. And even then, it was often slower than what was available on most private jets. Still, everything on Air Force One projected solidity, competence, and a touch of grandeur. From the conveniences, the bedroom, private office, and shower for the president up front, spacious seating, a conference room, and a bay of computer terminals for my team, to the exemplary service of the Air Force staff, about 30 on board, willing to cheerfully accommodate the most random requests. To its high-level safety features, the world's best pilots, armored windows, airborne refueling capacity, and an onboard medical unit that included a fold-out operating table, to its 4,000-square-foot interior spread out over three levels, capable of transporting a 14-person press pool, as well as a number of Secret Service agents. Unique among world leaders, the American president travels fully equipped so as not to rely on another government's services or security forces. This meant that an armada of beasts, security vehicles, ambulances, tactical teams, and, when necessary, Marine One helicopters were flown in on Air Force C-17 transport planes in advance and pre-positioned on the tarmac for my arrival. The heavy footprint and its contrast with the more modest arrangements required by other heads of state occasionally prompted consternation from a host country's officials but the U.S. military and Secret Service offered no room for negotiation, and eventually the host country would relent, partly because its own public and press corps expected the arrival of an American president on their soil to look like a big deal. 
That it was. Wherever we landed, I'd see people pressing their faces against airport terminal windows or gathering outside the perimeter fencing. Even ground crews paused whatever they were doing to catch a glimpse of Air Force One slowly taxiing down the runway with its elegant blue undercarriage, the words United States of America appearing crisp and understated on its fuselage, the American flag neatly centered on its tail. Exiting the plane, I'd give the obligatory wave from the top of the stairs, amid the rapid buzz of camera shutters and the eager smiles of the delegation lined up at the base of the steps to greet us, sometimes with a presentation of a bouquet by a woman or child in traditional dress, at other times a full honor guard or military band arrayed on either side of the red carpet that led me to my vehicle. In all of this, one sensed the faint but indelible residue of ancient rituals, rituals of diplomacy, but also rituals of tribute to an empire. America had held a dominant position on the world stage for the better part of the past seven decades. In the wake of World War II, with the rest of the world either impoverished or reduced to rubble, we had led the way in establishing an interlocking system of initiatives, treaties, and new institutions that effectively remade the international order and created a stable path forward. The Marshall Plan to rebuild Western Europe, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, and the Pacific Alliances, to serve as a bulwark against the Soviet Union and bind former enemies into an alignment with the West. Bretton Woods, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or GATT, to regulate global finance and commerce. The United Nations and related multilateral agencies to promote the peaceful resolution of conflicts and cooperation on everything from disease eradication to protection of the oceans. Our motivations for erecting this architecture had hardly been selfless. Beyond helping to assure our security, it pried open markets to sell our goods, kept sea lanes available for our ships, and maintained the steady flow of oil for our factories and cars. It ensured that our banks got repaid in dollars, our multinationals' factories weren't seized, our tourists could cash their travelers' checks, and our international calls would go through. At times, we bent global institutions to serve Cold War imperatives or ignored them altogether. We meddled in the affairs of other countries, sometimes with disastrous results. Our actions often contradicted the ideals of democracy, self-determination, and human rights we professed to embody. Still, to a degree unmatched by any superpower in history, America chose to bind itself to a set of international laws, rules, and norms. More often than not, we exercised a degree of restraint in our dealings with smaller, weaker nations, relying less on threats and coercion to maintain a global pact. Over time, that willingness to act on behalf of a common good, even if imperfectly, strengthened rather than diminished our influence, contributing to the system's overall durability. And if America was not always universally loved, we were at least respected and not merely feared. Whatever resistance there might have been to America's global vision seemed to collapse with the 1991 fall of the Soviet Union. In the dizzying span of little more than a decade, Germany and then Europe were unified. Former Eastern Bloc countries rushed to join NATO and the European Union. China's capitalism took off. Numerous countries across Asia, Africa, and Latin America transitioned from authoritarian rule to democracy and apartheid in South Africa came to an end. 
commentators proclaimed the ultimate triumph of liberal, pluralistic, capitalist, Western-style democracy. Insisting that the remaining vestiges of tyranny, ignorance, and inefficiency would soon be swept away by the end of history, the flattening of the world. Even at the time, such exuberance was easy to mock. This much was true, though. At the dawn of the 21st century, the United States could legitimately claim that the international order we had forged and the principles we had promoted, the Pax Americana, had helped bring about a world in which billions of people were freer, more secure, and more prosperous than before. That international order was still in place in the spring of 2009 when I touched down in London, but faith in American leadership had been shaken, not by the 9-11 attacks, but by the handling of Iraq, by images of corpses floating down the streets of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and most of all, by the Wall Street meltdown. A series of smaller financial crises in the 1990s had hinted at structural weaknesses in the global system. The way that trillions of dollars in private capital moving at the speed of light, unchecked by significant international regulation or oversight, could take an economic disturbance in one country and quickly produce a tsunami in markets around the world. Because many of those tremors had started on what was considered capitalism's periphery, places like Thailand, Mexico, and a still weak Russia. And with the United States and other advanced economies at that point booming, it had been easy to think of these problems as one-offs, attributable to bad decision-making by inexperienced governments. In nearly every instance, the United States had stepped in to save the day. But in exchange for emergency financing and continued access to global capital markets, folks like Bob Rubin and Alan Greenspan, not to mention Rubin's aides at the time, Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, had pushed ailing countries to accept tough medicine, including currency devaluations, deep cuts in public spending, and a number of other austerity measures that shored up their international credit ratings, but visited enormous hardship on their people. Imagine, then, the consternation of these same countries when they learned that even as America lectured them on prudential regulations and responsible fiscal stewardship, our own high priests of finance had been asleep at the switch, tolerating asset bubbles and speculative frenzies on Wall Street that were as reckless as anything happening in Latin America or Asia. The only differences were the amounts of money involved and the potential damage done. After all, having assumed that U.S. regulators knew what they were doing, investors from Shanghai to Dubai had poured massive sums into subprime securities and other U.S. assets. Exporters as big as China and as small as Lesotho had premised their own growth on a stable and expanding U.S. economy. In other words, we had beckoned the world to follow us into a paradisiacal land of free markets, global supply chains, internet connections, easy credit, and democratic governance. And for the moment at least, it felt to them like they might have followed us over a cliff. Part 4. The Good Fight Chapter 14 It turns out that there's a standard design to every international summit. Leaders pull up one by one in their limos to the entrance of a large convention center and then walk past a phalanx of photographers, a bit like a Hollywood red carpet without the fancy gowns and beautiful people. A protocol officer meets you at the door and leads you into a hall where the host leader is waiting a smile and a handshake for the cameras, 
whispered small talk. Then on to the leaders' lounge for more handshakes and small talk, until all the presidents, prime ministers, chancellors, and kings head into an impressively large conference room with a massive circular table. At your seat, you find a small nameplate, your national flag, a microphone with operating instructions, a commemorative writing pad and pen of varying quality, a headset for the simultaneous translation, a glass and bottles of water or juice, and maybe a plate of snacks or bowl of mints. Your delegation is seated behind you to take notes and pass along messages. The host calls the meeting to order. He or she makes opening remarks. And then for the next day and a half, with scheduled breaks for one-on-one meetings with other leaders, known as bilaterals or bilats, a family photo, all the leaders lined up and smiling awkwardly, not unlike a third-grade class picture, and just enough time in the late afternoon to go back to your suite and change clothes before dinner and sometimes an evening session, you sit there, fighting off jet lag and doing your best to look interested as everyone around the table, including yourself, takes turns reading a set of carefully scripted, anodyne, and invariably much longer than the time allotted remarks about whatever topic happens to be on the agenda. Later, after I had had a few summits under my belt, I would adopt the survival tactics of more experienced attendees, making sure I always carried paperwork to do or something to read, or discreetly pulling other leaders aside to do a bit of secondary business while others commanded the mic. But for that first G20 summit in London, I stayed in my seat and listened intently to every speaker. Like the new kid at school, I was aware that others in the room were taking the measure of me, and I figured a bit of rookie humility might go a long way toward rallying people around the economic measures I was there to propose. It helped that I already knew a number of leaders in the room, starting with our host, British Prime Minister Gordon Brown, who had traveled to Washington for a meeting with me just a few weeks earlier. A former Chancellor of the Exchequer in Tony Blair's Labor government, Brown lacked the sparkly political gifts of his predecessor. It seemed as if every media mention of Brown included the term, quote, dour, and he'd suffered the misfortune of finally getting his turn at the prime ministership, just as Britain's economy was collapsing and his public was tiring of the Labour Party's decade-long run. But he was thoughtful, responsible, and understood global finance, and although his time in office would prove short-lived, I was fortunate to have him as a partner during those early months of the crisis. Along with Brown, the most consequential Europeans, not just at the London summit, but throughout my first term, were German Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President Nicolas Sarkozy. The rivalry between the continent's two most powerful countries had caused nearly two centuries of bloody on-and-off war. Their reconciliation following World War II became the cornerstone of the European Union, or EU, and its unprecedented run of peace and prosperity. Accordingly, Europe's ability to move as a bloc and to serve as America's wingman on the world stage depended largely on Merkel's and Sarkozy's willingness to work well together. For the most part, they did, despite the fact that temperamentally, the two leaders could not have been more different. Merkel, the daughter of a Lutheran pastor, had grown up in communist East Germany, keeping her head down and earning a Ph.D. in quantum chemistry. Only after the Iron Curtain fell did she enter politics, methodically moving up the ranks of the center-right Christian Democratic Union Party with a combination of organizational skill, strategic acumen, and unwavering patience. Merkel's eyes were big and bright blue and could be touched by turns with frustration, amusement, or hints of sorrow. Otherwise, her stolid appearance reflected her no-nonsense analytical sensibility. 
She was famously suspicious of emotional outbursts or overblown rhetoric, and her team would later confess that she'd been initially skeptical of me precisely because of my oratorical skills. I took no offense, figuring that in a German leader, an aversion to possible demagoguery was probably a healthy thing. Sarkozy, on the other hand, was all emotional outbursts and overblown rhetoric. With his dark, expressive, vaguely Mediterranean features, he was half Hungarian and a quarter Greek Jew. In small stature, he was about five foot five but wore lifts in his shoes to make himself taller. He looked like a figure out of a Toulouse-Lautrec painting. Despite coming from a wealthy family, he readily admitted that his ambitions were fueled in part by a lifelong sense of being an outsider. Like Merkel, Sarkozy had made his name as a leader of the center-right, winning the presidency on a platform of laissez-faire economics, looser labor regulations, lower taxes, and a less pervasive welfare state. But unlike Merkel, he lurched all over the map when it came to policy, often driven by headlines or political expedience. By the time we arrived in London for the G20, he was already vocally denouncing the excesses of global capitalism. What Sarkozy lacked in ideological consistency, he made up for in boldness, charm, and manic energy. Indeed, conversations with Sarkozy were by turns amusing and exasperating. His hands in perpetual motion, his chest thrust out like a bantam cock's. His personal translator, unlike Merkel, he spoke limited English, always beside him to frantically mirror his every gesture and intonation as the conversation swooped from flattery to bluster to genuine insight, never straying far from his primary, barely disguised interest which was to be at the center of the action and take credit for whatever it was that might be worth taking credit for. As much as I appreciated the fact that Sarkozy had embraced my campaign early on, all but endorsing me in an effusive press conference during my pre-election visit to Paris, it wasn't hard to tell which of the two European leaders would prove to be the more reliable partner. I came, though, to see Merkel and Sarkozy as useful complements to each other. Sarkozy respectful of Merkel's innate caution, but often pushing her to act. Merkel willing to overlook Sarkozy's idiosyncrasies, but deft at reining in his more impulsive proposals. They also reinforced each other's pro-American instincts. Instincts that, in 2009, were not always shared by their constituents. None of this meant that they and the other Europeans were pushovers. Guarding the interests of their countries, both Merkel and Sarkozy strongly favored the Declaration Against Protectionism that we were proposing in London. Germany's economy was especially reliant on exports and recognized the utility of an international emergency fund. But as Tim Geithner had predicted, neither had any enthusiasm for fiscal stimulus. Merkel was worried about deficit spending. Sarkozy preferred a universal tax on stock market transactions and wanted to crack down on tax havens. It took most of the summit for me and Tim to convince the two of them to join us in promoting more immediate ways to address the crisis calling on each G20 country to implement policies that increased aggregate demand. They would do so, they told me, only if I could convince the rest of the G20 leaders, particularly a group of influential non-Western countries that came collectively to be known as the BRICS, to stop blocking proposals that were important to them. Economically, the five countries that made up the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, had little in common and it wasn't until later that they would actually formalize the group. South Africa wouldn't formally join until 2010. But even at the London G20, the animating spirit behind the association was clear. These were big, proud nations that in one way or another had emerged from long slumbers. 
They were no longer satisfied with being relegated to the margins of history or seeing their status reduced to that of regional powers. They chafed at the West's outsized role in managing the global economy, and with the current crisis, they saw a chance to start flipping the script. In theory, at least, I could sympathize with their point of view. Together, the BRICS represented just over 40% of the world's population, but a quarter of the world's GDP, and only a fraction of its wealth. Decisions made in the corporate boardrooms of New York, London, or Paris often had more impact on their economies than the policy choices of their own governments. Their influence within the World Bank and the IMF remained limited, despite the remarkable economic transformations that had taken place in China, India, and Brazil. If the United States wanted to preserve the global system that had long served us, it made sense for us to give these emerging powers a greater say in how it operated, while also insisting that they take more responsibility for the costs of its maintenance. And yet, as I glanced around the table on the summit's second day, I couldn't help but wonder how a larger role for the BRICS in global governance might play out. Brazil's president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, for example, had visited the Oval Office in March, and I'd found him impressive. A grizzled, engaging former labor leader who had been jailed for protesting the previous military government and then elected in 2002. He had initiated a series of pragmatic reforms that sent Brazil's growth rate soaring, expanded its middle class, and provided housing and education to millions of its poorest citizens. He also reportedly had the scruples of a Tammany Hall boss, and rumors swirled about government cronyism, sweetheart deals, and kickbacks that ran into the billions. President Dmitry Medvedev, meanwhile, appeared to be a poster child for the new Russia, young, trim, and clothed in hip, European-tailored suits. Except that he wasn't the real power in Russia. That spot was occupied by his patron, Vladimir Putin, a former KGB officer, two-term president, and now the country's prime minister, and the leader of what resembled a criminal syndicate as much as it did a traditional government, a syndicate that had its tentacles wrapped around every aspect of the country's economy. South Africa at the time was in a transition, with interim president Galema Motlante, soon to be replaced by Jacob Zuma, the leader of Nelson Mandela's party, the African National Congress, which controlled the country's parliament. In subsequent meetings, Zuma struck me as amiable enough. He spoke eloquently of the need for fair trade, human development, infrastructure, and more equitable distributions of wealth and opportunity on the African continent. By all accounts, though, much of the goodwill built up through Mandela's heroic struggle was being squandered by corruption and incompetence under ANC leadership leaving large swaths of the country's black population still mired in poverty and despair. Manmohan Singh, the Prime Minister of India, meanwhile, had engineered the modernization of his nation's economy. A gentle, soft-spoken economist in his 70s, with a white beard and a turban that were the marks of his Sikh faith, but to the Western eye lent him the air of a holy man, he had been India's finance minister in the 1990s, managing to lift millions of people from poverty. For the duration of his tenure as Prime Minister, I would find Singh to be wise, thoughtful, and scrupulously honest. Despite its genuine economic progress, though, India remained a chaotic and impoverished place, largely divided by religion and caste, captive to the whims of corrupt local officials and power brokers, hamstrung by a parochial bureaucracy that was resistant to change. And then there was China. Since the late 1970s, when Deng Xiaoping effectively abandoned Mao Zedong's Marxist-Leninist vision in favor of an export-driven, state-managed form of capitalism, no nation in history had developed faster or moved more people out of abject poverty. 
once little more than a hub of low-grade manufacturing and assembly for foreign companies looking to take advantage of its endless supply of low-wage workers. China now boasted top-flight engineers and world-class companies working at the cutting edge of advanced technology. Its massive trade surplus made it a major investor on every continent. Gleaming cities like Shanghai and Guangzhou had become sophisticated financial centers, home to a burgeoning consumer class. Given its growth rate and sheer size, China's GDP was guaranteed at some point to surpass America's. When you added this to the country's powerful military, increasingly skilled workforce, shrewd and pragmatic government, and cohesive 5,000-year-old culture, the conclusion felt obvious. If any country was likely to challenge U.S. preeminence on the world stage, it was China. And yet, watching the Chinese delegation operate at the G20, I was convinced that any such challenge was still decades away, and that if and when it came, it would most likely happen as a result of America's strategic mistakes. By all accounts, Chinese President Hu Jintao, a nondescript man in his mid-sixties with a mane of jet black hair, as far as I could tell, few Chinese leaders turned gray as they aged, was not seen as a particularly strong leader, sharing authority as he did with other members of the Chinese Communist Party's Central Committee. Sure enough, in our meeting at the margins of the summit, Hu appeared content to rely on pages of prepared talking points, with no apparent agenda beyond encouraging continued consultation and what he referred to as, quote, win-win cooperation. More impressive to me was China's chief economic policymaker, Premier Wen Jiaobao, a small, bespectacled figure who spoke without notes and displayed a sophisticated grasp of the current crisis. His affirmed commitment to a Chinese stimulus package on a scale mirroring that of the Recovery Act was probably the single best piece of news I would hear during my time at the G20. But even so, the Chinese were in no hurry to seize the reins of the international world order, viewing it as a headache they didn't need. Wen had little to say about how to manage the financial crisis going forward. From his country's standpoint, the onus was on us to figure it out. This was the thing that would strike me, not just during the London summit, but at every international forum I attended while president. Even those who complained about America's role in the world still relied on us to keep the system afloat. To varying degrees, other countries were willing to pitch in, contributing troops to UN peacekeeping efforts, say, or providing cash and logistical support for famine relief. Some, like the Scandinavian countries, consistently punched well above their weight. But otherwise, few nations felt obliged to act beyond narrow self-interest. And those that shared America's basic commitment to the principles upon which a liberal, market-based system depended, individual freedom, the rule of law, strong enforcement of property rights, and neutral arbitration of disputes, plus baseline levels of government accountability and competence, lacked the economic and political heft, not to mention the army of diplomats and policy experts, to promote those principles on a global scale. China, Russia, and even genuine democracies like Brazil, India, and South Africa still operated on different principles. For the BRICS, responsible foreign policy meant tending to one's own affairs, they abided by the established rules only insofar as their own interests were advanced, out of necessity rather than conviction, and they appeared happy to violate them when they thought that they could get away with it. If they assisted another country, they preferred to do so on a bilateral basis, expecting some benefit in return. These nations certainly felt no obligation to underwrite the system as a whole. As far as they were concerned, that was a luxury only a fat and happy West could afford. Of all the BRICS leaders in attendance at the G20, 
I was most interested in engaging with Medvedev. The U.S. relationship with Russia was at a particularly low point. The previous summer, a few months after Medvedev had been sworn into office, Russia had invaded the neighboring country of Georgia, a former Soviet republic, and illegally occupied two of its provinces, triggering violence between the two countries and tensions with other border nations. For us, it was a sign of Putin's escalating boldness and general belligerence, a troubling unwillingness to respect another nation's sovereignty and a broader flouting of international law. And in many ways, it appeared he'd gotten away with it. Beyond suspending diplomatic contacts, the Bush administration had done next to nothing to punish Russia for its aggression, and the rest of the world had shrugged its shoulders and moved on, making any belated effort to isolate Russia almost certain to fail. My administration's hope was to initiate what we were calling a reset with Russia, opening a dialogue in order to protect our interests, support our democratic partners in the region, and enlist cooperation on our goals for nuclear nonproliferation and disarmament. To this end, we'd arranged for me to meet privately with Medvedev a day ahead of the summit. I relied on two Russia experts to prepare me for the meeting, the State Department's Undersecretary for Political Affairs, Bill Burns, and our NSC Senior Director for Russia and Eurasian Affairs, Michael McFall. Burns, a career diplomat who'd been the Bush administration's ambassador to Russia, was tall, mustached, and slightly stooped, with a gentle voice and the bookish air of an Oxford don. McFall, on the other hand, was all energy and enthusiasm, with a wide smile and a blonde mop of hair. A native Montanan, he'd advised my campaign while still teaching at Stanford and seemed to end every statement with an exclamation point. Of the two, McFall was more bullish about our ability to have an influence on Russia, partly because he'd lived in Moscow in the early 1990s, during the heady days of political transformation, first as a scholar and later as the in-country director of a pro-democracy organization funded in part by the U.S. government. When it came to Medvedev, though, McFall agreed with Burns that I shouldn't expect too much. Medvedev's going to be interested in establishing a good relationship with you to prove that he belongs on the world stage, he said. But you have to remember that Putin still calls the shots. Looking over his biography, I could see why everyone assumed Dmitry Medvedev was on a short leash. In his early 40s, raised in relative privilege as the only child of two professors, he'd studied law in the late 1980s, lectured at Leningrad State University, and gotten to know Vladimir Putin when they both worked for the mayor of St. Petersburg in the early 1990s after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. While Putin stayed in politics, eventually becoming prime minister under President Boris Yeltsin, Medvedev leveraged his political connections to secure an executive position and ownership stake in Russia's largest lumber company, at a time when the country's chaotic privatization of state-owned assets offered well-connected shareholders a guaranteed fortune. Quietly, he became a wealthy man, called upon to work on various civic projects without having to bear the burden of the spotlight. It wasn't until late 1999 that he got pulled back into government, recruited by Putin for a high-level job in Moscow. Just a month later, Yeltsin abruptly resigned, elevating Putin from prime minister to acting president, with Medvedev rising behind him. In other words, Medvedev was a technocrat and a behind-the-scenes operator, without much of a public profile or political base of his own. And that's exactly how he came across when he arrived for our meeting at Winfield House, the U.S. ambassador's elegant residence in the outskirts of London. He was a small man, dark-haired and affable, with a slightly formal, almost self-deprecating manner, more international management consultant than politician or party apparatchik. 
Apparently, he understood English, although he preferred speaking with a translator. I opened our discussions with the subject of his country's military occupation of Georgia. As expected, Medvedev stuck closely to the official talking points. He blamed the Georgian government for precipitating the crisis and insisted that Russia had acted only to protect Russian citizens from violence. He dismissed my argument that the invasion and continued occupation violated Georgia's sovereignty and international law, and he pointedly suggested that, unlike U.S. forces in Iraq, Russian forces had genuinely been greeted as liberators. Hearing all this, I remember what the dissident writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said about politics during the Soviet era, that, quote, the lie has become not just a moral category, but a pillar of the state. But if Medvedev's rebuttal on Georgia reminded me that he was no Boy Scout, I noticed a certain ironic detachment in his delivery, as if he wanted me to know that he didn't really believe everything he was saying. As the conversation shifted to other topics, so did his disposition. On the steps needed to manage the financial crisis, he was well-briefed and constructive. He expressed enthusiasm for a proposed reset of U.S.-Russian relations, especially when it came to expanding cooperation on non-military issues like education, science, technology, and trade. He surprised us by making an unprompted and unprecedented offer to let the U.S. military use Russian airspace to transport troops and equipment to Afghanistan, an alternative that would reduce our exclusive reliance on expensive and not always reliable Pakistani supply routes. And on my highest priority issue, U.S.-Russian cooperation to curb nuclear proliferation, including Iran's possible pursuit of nuclear weapons, Medvedev showed a readiness to engage with frankness and flexibility. He accepted my proposal to have our respective experts immediately begin negotiations on cuts to each country's nuclear stockpiles as a follow-up to the existing Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or START, which was set to expire at the end of 2009. Although he wasn't prepared to commit to an international effort to constrain Iran, he didn't dismiss it out of hand, going so far as to acknowledge that Iran's nuclear and missile programs had advanced much faster than Moscow had expected, a concession that neither McFall nor Burns could recall a Russian official ever having made, even in private. Still, Medvedev was far from acquiescent. He made clear during our discussions about nonproliferation that Russia had a priority of its own, wanting us to reconsider the Bush administration's decision to build a missile defense system in Poland and the Czech Republic. He was speaking, I assumed, on behalf of Putin, who correctly understood that the main reason the Poles and the Czechs were eager to host our system was that it would guarantee increased U.S. military capabilities on their soil, providing an additional hedge against Russian intimidation. The truth is that, unbeknownst to the Russians, we were already reconsidering the idea of a land-based missile defense in Europe. Before I'd left for London, Robert Gates had informed me that the plans developed under Bush had been judged potentially less effective against the most pressing threats, chiefly Iran, than originally envisioned. Gates had suggested that I order a review of other possible configurations before making any decision. I wasn't willing to grant Medvedev's request to fold missile defense considerations into upcoming START negotiations. I did think, however, that it was in our interest to reduce Russian anxiety. And the fortuitous timing allowed me to make sure Medvedev didn't leave London empty-handed. I presented my intent to review our plans in Europe as a show of willingness to discuss the issue in good faith. I added that progress on halting Iran's nuclear program would almost certainly have a bearing on any decision I might make, a not-so-subtle message to which Medvedev responded before it was even translated. I understand, he said in English, with a slight smile. 
Before leaving, Medvedev also extended an invitation for me to visit Moscow during the summer, a meeting I was inclined to accept. After watching his motorcade drive away, I turned to Burns and McFall and asked what they thought. I'll be honest, Mr. President, McFall said. I don't know how it could have gone much better. He seemed a lot more open to doing business than I would have expected. Mike's right, Burns said, although I do wonder how much of what Medvedev said was cleared with Putin beforehand. I nodded. We'll find out soon enough. By the end of the London summit, the G20 had managed to strike a deal in response to the global financial crisis. The final communique, to be issued jointly by the leaders in attendance, included U.S. priorities like additional commitments to stimulus and a rejection of protectionism, along with measures to eliminate tax havens and improve financial oversight that were important to the Europeans. BRICS nations could point to a commitment from the United States and the European Union to examine possible changes in their World Bank and IMF representation. In a rush of enthusiasm, Sarkozy grabbed both me and Tim as we were about to leave the venue. This agreement is historic, Barack, he said. It has happened because of you. No, no, it's true. And Mr. Geithner here. He is magnificent. Sarkozy then started chanting my Treasury Secretary's last name, like a fan at a football game, loudly enough to turn a few heads in the room. I had to laugh, not only at Tim's evident discomfort, but also at the stricken expression on Angela Merkel's face. She had just finished looking over the wording of the communique and was now eyeing Sarkozy the way a mother eyes an unruly child. The international press deemed the summit a success. Not only was the deal more substantive than expected, but our central role in the negotiations had helped to at least partially reverse the view that the financial crisis had permanently damaged U.S. leadership. At the closing press conference, I was careful to credit everyone who played a role, praising Gordon Brown in particular for his leadership and arguing that in this interconnected world, no single nation could go it alone. Solving big problems, I said, demanded the kind of international cooperation on display in London. Two days later, a reporter followed up on this, asking for my views on American exceptionalism. I believe in American exceptionalism, I said, just as I suspect that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism. Only later would I learn that Republicans and conservative news outlets had seized upon this unremarkable statement, one made in an effort to show modesty and good manners, as evidence of weakness and insufficient patriotism on my part. Pundits began to characterize my interactions with other leaders and citizens of other nations as, quote, Obama's apology tour, although they could never point to any actual apologies. Evidently, my failure to lecture foreign audiences on American superiority, not to mention my willingness to acknowledge our imperfections and take the views of other countries into account, was somehow undermining. It was another reminder of how splintered our media landscape had become and how an increasingly poisonous partisanship no longer stopped at the water's edge. In this new world, a foreign policy victory by every traditional standard could be spun as a defeat, at least in the minds of half the country. Messages that advanced our interests and built goodwill abroad could lead to a host of political headaches back home. On a happier note, Michelle was a hit in her international debut, garnering especially glowing press for a visit she made to an all-girls secondary school in central London. As would be true throughout our time in the White House, Michelle reveled in such interactions, able to connect with kids of any age or background. And apparently that magic traveled well. At the school, she talked about her own childhood and the barriers she'd had to overcome, how education had always provided her a path forward. The girls, working class, 
many of them of West Indian or South Asian descent, listened in rapt attention as this clamorous woman insisted that she had once been just like them. In the coming years, she'd visit with students from the school several times, including hosting a group of them at the White House. Later, an economist would study the data and conclude that Michelle's engagement with the school had led to a noticeable spike in the students' standardized test scores, suggesting that her message of aspiration and connection made a true and measurable difference. This Michelle effect was something I was very familiar with. She had the same effect on me. Things like this helped us remember that our work as a first family wasn't solely a matter of politics and policy. Michelle did generate her own bit of controversy, though. At a reception for the G20 leaders and their spouses with Queen Elizabeth at Buckingham Palace, she was photographed with her hand resting on Her Majesty's shoulder, an apparent breach of royalty commoner protocol, although the Queen didn't seem to mind slipping her arm around Michelle in return. Also, Michelle wore a cardigan sweater over her dress during our private meeting with the Queen, sending Fleet Street into a horrified tizzy. You should have taken my suggestion and worn one of those little hats, I told her the next morning, and a little matching handbag. She smiled and kissed me on the cheek. And I hope you enjoy sleeping on a couch when you get home, she said brightly. The White House has so many to choose from. The next five days were a whirlwind. A NATO summit in Baden-Baden, Germany, in Strasbourg, France. Meetings and speeches in the Czech Republic and Turkey. And an unannounced visit to Iraq where, in addition to thanking a raucous assembly of U.S. troops for their courage and sacrifice, I consulted with Prime Minister Maliki about our withdrawal plans and Iraq's continued transition to parliamentary governance. By the end of the trip, I had every reason to feel pretty good. Across the board, we had successfully advanced the U.S. agenda. There had been no major pratfalls on my part. Everyone on my foreign policy team, from cabinet members like Geithner and Gates to the most junior members of the advance staff, had done outstanding work. And far from shying away from association with the United States, the countries we visited seemed hungry for our leadership. Still, the trip provided sobering evidence of just how much of my first term was going to be spent not on new initiatives, but on putting out fires that predated my presidency. At the NATO summit, for instance, we were able to secure alliance support for our AFPAC strategy, but only after listening to European leaders emphasize how sharply their publics had turned against military cooperation with the United States following the Iraq invasion, and how difficult it was going to be for them to muster political support for additional troops. NATO Central and Eastern European members had also been unnerved by the Bush administration's tepid reaction to Russia's invasion of Georgia, and questioned whether the alliance could be counted on to defend them against similar Russian aggression. They had a point. Before the summit, I'd been surprised to learn that NATO lacked the plans or rapid response capabilities to come to the defense of every ally. It was just one more example of a dirty little secret I was discovering as president, the same thing I'd learned during our Afghanistan review, the same thing the world had learned following the invasion of Iraq. For all their tough talk, Bush administration hawks like Cheney and Rumsfeld had been surprisingly bad at backing up their rhetoric with coherent, effective strategies. Or, as Dennis McDonough more colorfully put it, open any White House drawer and you'll find another turd sandwich. I did what I could to defuse the Central European issue by proposing that NATO develop individualized defense plans for each of its members, and by declaring that when it came to our mutual defense obligations, we should make no distinction between junior and senior members of the alliance. 
This was going to mean more work for our overstretched staff and military, but I tried not to let it raise my blood pressure too much. I reminded myself that every president felt saddled with the previous administration's choices and mistakes. The 90% of the job was navigating inherited problems and unanticipated crises. Only if you did that well enough, with discipline and purpose, did you get a real shot at shaping the future. What did have me worried by the end of the trip was less a particular issue than an overall impression, the sense that for a variety of reasons, some of our own making, some beyond our control, the hopeful tide of democratization, liberalization, and integration that had swept the globe after the end of the Cold War was beginning to recede. Older, darker forces were gathering strength, and the stresses brought about by a prolonged economic downturn were likely to make things worse. Before the financial crisis, for example, Turkey had appeared to be a nation on the upswing, a case study in globalization's positive effects on emerging economies. Despite a history of political instability and military coups, the majority Muslim country had been largely aligned with the West since the 1950s, maintaining NATO membership, regular elections, a market-based system, and a secular constitution that enshrined modern principles like equal rights for women. When its current prime minister, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and his Justice and Development Party had swept into power in 2002-2003, touting populist and often overtly Islamic appeals, it had unsettled Turkey's secular, military-dominated political elite. Erdogan's vocal sympathy for both the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas in their fight for an independent Palestinian state, in particular, had also made Washington and Tel Aviv nervous. Yet, Erdogan's government thus far had abided by Turkey's constitution, met its NATO obligations, and effectively managed the economy, even initiating a series of modest reforms with the hope of qualifying for EU membership. Some observers suggested that Erdogan might offer a model of moderate, modern, and pluralistic political Islam, and an alternative to the autocracies, theocracies, and extremist movements that characterized the region. In a speech before the Turkish parliament and a town hall meeting with Istanbul college students, I tried to echo such optimism. But because of my conversations with Erdogan, I had my doubts. During the NATO summit, Erdogan had instructed his team to block the appointment of highly regarded Danish Prime Minister Anders Rasmussen as the organization's new Secretary General, not because he thought Rasmussen was unqualified, but because Rasmussen's government had declined to act on Turkey's demand that it censor the 2005 publication of cartoons depicting the Prophet Mohammed in a Danish newspaper. European appeals about freedom of the press had left Erdogan unmoved, and he had relented only after I had promised that Rasmussen would have a Turkish deputy and had convinced him that my upcoming visit and U.S. public opinion of Turkey would be adversely affected if Rasmussen's appointment didn't go through. This set a pattern for the next eight years. Mutual self-interest would dictate that Erdogan and I develop a working relationship. Turkey looked to the United States for support for its EU bid, as well as military and intelligence assistance in fighting Kurdish separatists who'd been emboldened by the fall of Saddam Hussein. We, meanwhile, needed Turkey's cooperation to combat terrorism and stabilize Iraq. Personally, I found the prime minister to be cordial and generally responsive to my requests. But whenever I listened to him speak, his tall frame slightly stooped, his voice a forceful staccato that rose an octave in response to various grievances or perceived slights, I got the strong impression that his commitment to democracy and the rule of law might last only as long as it preserved his own power. My questions about the durability of democratic values weren't restricted to Turkey. 
during my stop in Prague, EU officials had expressed alarm about the rise of far-right parties across Europe and how the economic crisis was causing an uptick in nationalism, anti-immigrant sentiment, and skepticism about integration. The sitting Czech president, Václav Klaus, to whom I made a short courtesy visit, embodied some of these trends. A vocal Eurosceptic who'd been in office since 2003, he was both ardently pro-free market and an admirer of Vladimir Putin's. And although we tried to keep things light during our conversation, what I knew of his public record, he had supported efforts to censor Czech television, was dismissive of gay and lesbian rights, and was a notorious climate change denier, didn't leave me particularly hopeful about political trends in Central Europe. It was hard to tell how lasting these trends would be. I told myself it was the nature of democracies, including America's, to swing between periods of progressive change and conservative retrenchment. In fact, what was striking was how easily Klaus would have fit in with the Republican Senate caucus back home, just as I could readily picture Erdogan as a local power broker in the Chicago City Council. Whether this was a source of comfort or concern, I couldn't decide. I had not, however, come to Prague to assess the state of democracy. Instead, we had scheduled my one big public speech of the trip to lay out a top foreign policy initiative, the reduction and ultimate elimination of nuclear weapons. I'd worked on the issue since my election to the Senate four years earlier, and while there were risks promoting what many considered a utopian quest, I told my team that in some ways that was the point. Even modest progress on the issue required a bold and overarching vision. If I hoped to pass one thing on to Malia and Sasha, it was freedom from the possibility of a human-made apocalypse. I had a second, more practical reason for focusing on the nuclear issue in a way that would make headlines across Europe. We needed to find a means to prevent Iran and North Korea from advancing their nuclear programs. The day before the speech, in fact, North Korea had launched a long-range rocket into the Pacific just to get our attention. It was time to ramp up international pressure on both countries, including with enforceable economic sanctions. And I knew this would be a whole lot easier to accomplish if I could show the United States was interested in not just restarting global momentum on disarmament, but also actively reducing its own nuclear stockpile. By the morning of the speech, I was satisfied we had framed the nuclear issue with enough concrete, achievable proposals to keep me from sounding hopelessly quixotic. The day was clear and the setting spectacular, a town square with the ancient Prague Castle, once home to Bohemian kings and the Holy Roman Emperors, looming in the background. As the beast wended its way through the city's narrow and uneven streets, we passed some of the thousands who were gathering to hear the speech. There were people of all ages, but mostly I saw young Czechs, dressed in jeans, sweaters, and scarves, bundled up against a crisp spring wind, their faces flushed and expectant. It was crowds like this, I thought, that had been scattered by Soviet tanks at the end of the 1968 Prague Spring, and it was on these same streets just 21 years later, in 1989 that even bigger crowds of peaceful protesters had, against all odds, brought an end to communist rule. I had been in law school in 1989. I recalled sitting alone in my basement apartment a few miles from Harvard Square, glued to my secondhand TV set as I watched what would come to be known as the Velvet Revolution unfold. I remember being riveted by those protests and hugely inspired. It was the same feeling I'd had earlier in the year, seeing that solitary figure facing down tanks in Tiananmen Square, 
The same inspiration I felt whenever I watched grainy footage of Freedom Riders or John Lewis and his fellow civil rights soldiers marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. To see ordinary people sloughing off fear and habit, to act on their deepest beliefs, to see young people risking everything just to have a say in their own lives, to try to strip the world of the old cruelties, hierarchies, divisions, falsehoods, and injustices that cramp the human spirit, that I had realized was what I believed in and longed to be a part of. That night I had been unable to sleep. Rather than reading my casebooks for class the next day, I had written in my journal deep into the night, my brain bursting with urgent, half-formed thoughts, uncertain of what my role might be in this great global struggle, but knowing even then that the practice of law would be no more than a way station for me, that my heart would take me elsewhere. It felt like a long time ago. And yet looking out from the back seat of the presidential limousine, preparing to deliver an address that would be broadcast around the world, I realized there was a direct, if wholly improbable, line between that moment and this one. I was the product of that young man's dreams. And as we pulled up to the makeshift holding area behind a wide stage, a part of me imagined myself not as the politician I had become, but as one of those young people in the crowd, uncompromised by power, unencumbered by the need to accommodate men like Erdogan and Klaus, obliged only to make common cause with those chasing after a new and better world. After the speech, I had a chance to visit with Václav Havel, the playwright and former dissident who had been president of the Czech Republic for two terms, finishing in 2003. A participant in the Prague Spring, he'd been blacklisted after the Soviet occupation, had his works banned, and been repeatedly jailed for his political activities. Havel, as much as anyone, had given moral voice to the grassroots democracy movements that had brought the Soviet era to an end. Along with Nelson Mandela and a handful of other living statesmen, he'd also been a distant role model for me. I'd read his essays while in law school, watching him maintain his moral compass even after his side had won power and he'd assumed the presidency, had helped convince me that it was possible to enter politics and come out with your soul intact. Our meeting was brief, a victim to my schedule. Howell was in his early 70s but looked younger, with an unassuming manner, a warm, craggy face, rusty blonde hair, and a trim mustache. After posing for pictures and addressing the assembled press, we settled into a conference room where, with the help of his personal translator, we spoke for 45 minutes or so about the financial crisis, Russia, and the future of Europe. He was concerned that the United States might somehow believe that the problems of Europe were solved when, in fact, throughout the former Soviet satellites, the commitment to democracy was still fragile. As memories of the old order faded, and leaders like him who had forged close relationships with America passed from the scene, the dangers of a resurgent illiberalism were real. In some ways, the Soviets simplified who the enemy was, Havel said. Today, autocrats are more sophisticated. They stand for election while slowly undermining the institutions that make democracy possible. They champion free markets while engaging in the same corruption, cronyism, and exploitation as existed in the past. He confirmed that the economic crisis was strengthening the forces of nationalism and populist extremism across the continent. And although he agreed with my strategy to re-engage Russia, he cautioned that the annexation of Georgian territory was just the most overt example of Putin's efforts to intimidate and interfere throughout the region. Without attention from the U.S., he said, freedom here and across Europe will wither. Our time was up. I thanked Havel for his advice and assured him that America would not falter in promoting democratic values. 
He smiled and told me he hoped he had not added to my burdens. You've been cursed with people's high expectations, he said, shaking my hand, because it means that they are also easily disappointed. It's something I'm familiar with. I fear they can be a trap. Seven days after leaving Washington, my team climbed back onto Air Force One, worn out and ready to return home. I was in the plane's front cabin, about to catch up on some sleep, when Jim Jones and Tom Donlan walked in to brief me on a developing situation involving an issue I'd never been asked about during the campaign. Pirates? Pirates, Mr. President, Jones said. Off the coast of Somalia, they boarded a cargo ship captained by an American and appeared to be holding the crew hostage. This problem wasn't new. For decades, Somalia had been a failed state, a country on the Horn of Africa carved up and shared uneasily by various warlords, clans, and, more recently, a vicious terrorist organization called Al-Shabaab. Without the benefit of a functioning economy, gangs of jobless young men equipped with motorized skiffs, AK-47s, and makeshift ladders had taken to boarding commercial vessels traveling the busy shipping route connecting Asia to the West via the Suez Canal and holding them for ransom. This was the first time an American flagged ship was involved. We had no indication that the four Somalis had harmed any members of the 20-person crew, but Secretary Gates had ordered the Navy destroyer USS Bainbridge and the frigate USS Halliburton to the area, and they were expected to have the hijacked vessel within their sights by the time we landed in Washington. We'll wake you, sir, if there are any further developments, Jones said. Got it, I said, feeling the weariness I'd staved off over the past few days starting to settle in my bones. Also wake me if the locusts come, I said, or the plague. Sir, Jones paused. Just a joke, Jim. Good night. Chapter 15 Our entire national security team spent the next four days absorbed by the drama unfolding in the open seas off Somalia. The quick-thinking crew of the cargo-carrying Maersk, Alabama, had managed to disable the ship's engine before the pirates boarded, and most of its members had hidden in a secure room. Their American captain, a courageous and level-headed Vermonter named Richard Phillips, meanwhile, had stayed on the bridge. With the 508-foot ship inoperable and their small skiff no longer seaworthy, the Somalis decided to flee on a covered lifeboat, taking Phillips as a hostage and demanding a $2 million ransom. Even as one of the hostage-takers surrendered, negotiations to release the American captain went nowhere. The drama only heightened when Phillips attempted escape by jumping overboard, only to be recaptured. With the situation growing more tense by the hour, I issued a standing order to fire on the Somali pirates if, at any point, Phillips appeared to be in imminent danger. Finally, on the fifth day, we got the word. In the middle of the night, as two of the Somalis came out into the open and the other could be seen through a small window holding a gun to the American captain, Navy SEAL snipers took three shots. The pirates were killed. Phillips was safe. The news elicited high fives all around the White House. The Washington Post headline declared it an early military victory for Obama. But as relieved as I was to see Captain Phillips reunited with his family, and as proud as I was of our Navy personnel for their handling of the situation, I wasn't inclined to beat my chest over the episode. Partly, it was a simple recognition that the line between success and complete disaster had been a matter of inches, three bullets finding their targets through the darkness, rather than being thrown off just a tad by a sudden ocean swell. But I also realized that around the world, in places like Yemen and Afghanistan, 
Pakistan, and Iraq. The lives of millions of young men like these three dead Somalis, some of them boys really, since the oldest pirate was believed to be 19, had been warped and stunted by desperation, ignorance, dreams of religious glory, the violence of their surroundings, or the schemes of older men. They were dangerous, these young men, often deliberately and casually cruel. Still, in the aggregate at least, I wanted somehow to save them, send them to school, give them a trade, drain them of the hate that had been filling their heads. And yet the world they were a part of, and the machinery I commanded, more often had me killing them instead. That part of my job involved ordering people to be killed wasn't a surprise, although it was rarely framed that way. Fighting terrorists on their ten-yard line and not ours, as Gates liked to put it, had provided the entire rationale behind the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. But as Al-Qaeda had scattered and gone underground, metastasizing into a complex web of affiliates, operatives, sleeper cells, and sympathizers connected by the Internet and burner phones, our national security agencies had been challenged to construct new forms of more targeted, non-traditional warfare, including operating an arsenal of lethal drones to take out Al-Qaeda's operatives within the territory of Pakistan. The National Security Agency, or NSA, already the most sophisticated electronic intelligence-gathering organization in the world, employed new supercomputers and decryption technology worth billions of dollars to comb cyberspace in search of terrorist communications and potential threats. The Pentagon's Joint Special Operations Command, anchored by Navy SEAL teams and Army Special Forces, carried out nighttime raids and hunted down terrorist suspects mostly inside, but sometimes outside, the war zones of Afghanistan and Iraq and the CIA developed new forms of analysis and intelligence gathering. The White House, too, had reorganized itself to manage the terrorist threat. Each month, I chaired a meeting in the Situation Room, bringing all the intelligence agencies together to review recent developments and ensure coordination. The Bush administration had developed a ranking of terrorist targets, a kind of top-20 list, complete with photos, alias information, and vital statistics reminiscent of those on baseball cards. Generally, whenever someone on the list was killed, a new target was added, leading Rom to observe that Al-Qaeda's HR department must have trouble filling out that number 21 slot. In fact, my hyperactive chief of staff, who'd spent enough time in Washington to know that his new liberal president couldn't afford to look soft on terrorism, was obsessed with the list, cornering those responsible for our targeting operations to find out what was taking so long when it came to locating number 10 or 14. I took no joy in any of this. It didn't make me feel powerful. I'd entered politics to help kids get a better education, to help families get health care, to help poor countries grow more food. It was that kind of power that I measured myself against. But the work was necessary, and it was my responsibility to make sure our operations were as effective as possible. Moreover, unlike some on the left, I'd never engaged in wholesale condemnation of the Bush administration's approach to counterterrorism, or CT. I'd seen enough of the intelligence to know that Al-Qaeda and its affiliates were continuously plotting horrific crimes against innocent people. Its members weren't amenable to negotiations or bound by the normal rules of engagement. Thwarting their plots and rooting them out was a task of extraordinary complexity. In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, President Bush had done some things right, including swiftly and consistently trying to tamp down anti-Islamic sentiment in the United States. No small feat, especially given our country's history with McCarthyism and Japanese internment. 
and mobilizing international support for the early Afghan campaign. Even controversial Bush administration programs like the Patriot Act, which I myself had criticized, seemed to me potential tools for abuse more than wholesale violations of American civil liberties. The way the Bush administration had spun the intelligence to gain public support for invading Iraq, not to mention its use of terrorism as a political cudgel in the 2004 elections, was more damning. And of course, I considered the invasion itself to be as big a strategic blunder as the slide into Vietnam had been decades earlier. But the actual wars in Afghanistan and Iraq hadn't involved the indiscriminate bombing or deliberate targeting of civilians that had been a routine part of even, quote, good wars like World War II. And with glaring exceptions, like Abu Ghraib, our troops in theater had displayed a remarkable level of discipline and professionalism. As I saw it then, my job was to fix those aspects of our CT effort that needed fixing, rather than tearing it out root and branch to start over. One such fix was closing Gitmo, the military prison at Guantanamo Bay, and thus halting the continuing stream of prisoners placed in indefinite detention there. Another was my executive order ending torture. Although I had been assured during my transition briefings that extraordinary renditions and, quote, enhanced interrogations had ceased during President Bush's second term, the disingenuous, cavalier, and sometimes absurd ways that a few high-ranking holdovers from the previous administration described those practices to me. A doctor was always present to ensure that the suspect didn't suffer permanent damage or death, had convinced me of the need for bright lines. Beyond that, my highest priority was creating strong systems of transparency, accountability, and oversight, ones that included Congress and the judiciary, and would provide a credible legal framework for what I sadly suspected would be a long-term struggle. For that, I needed the fresh eyes and critical mindset of the mostly liberal lawyers who worked under me in the White House, Pentagon, CIA, and State Department counsel's offices. But I also needed someone who had operated at the very center of USCT efforts, someone who could help me sort through the various policy trade-offs that were sure to come, and then reach into the bowels of the system to make sure the needed changes actually happened. John Brennan was that person. In his early 50s, with thinning gray hair, a bad hip, a consequence of his dunking exploits as a high school basketball player, and the face of an Irish boxer, he had taken an interest in Arabic in college, studied at the American University in Cairo, and joined the CIA in 1980 after answering an ad in the New York Times. He would spend the next 25 years with the agency, as an intelligence briefer, a station chief in the Middle East, and eventually the deputy executive director under President Bush, charged with putting together the agency's integrated CT unit after 9-11. Despite the resume and the tough guy appearance, what struck me most about Brennan was his thoughtfulness and lack of bluster, along with his incongruously gentle voice. Although unwavering in his commitment to destroy al-Qaeda and its ilk, he possessed enough appreciation of Islamic culture and the complexities of the Middle East to know that guns and bombs alone wouldn't accomplish that task. When he told me he had personally opposed waterboarding and other forms of enhanced interrogation sanctioned by his boss, I believed him, and I became convinced that his credibility with the intel community would be invaluable to me. Still, Brennan had been at the CIA when waterboarding took place and that association made him a non-starter as my first agency director. Instead, I offered him the staff position of Deputy National Security Advisor for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. Your job, I told him, will be to help me protect this country in a way that's consistent with our values and to make sure that everyone else is doing the same. Can you do that? He said he could. 
For the next four years, John Brennan would fulfill that promise, helping manage our efforts at reform and serving as my go-between with a sometimes skeptical and resistant CIA bureaucracy. He also shared my burden of knowing that any mistake we made could cost people their lives, which was the reason he could be found stoically working in a windowless West Wing office below the Oval through weekends and holidays, awake while others were sleeping, poring over every scrap of intelligence with a grim, dogged intensity that led folks around the White House to call him the Sentinel. It became clear pretty quickly that putting the fallout from past CT practices behind us and instituting new ones where needed was going to be a slow, painful grind. Closing Gitmo meant we needed to figure out alternative means to house and legally process both existing detainees and any terrorists captured in the future. Prompted by a set of Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, requests that had worked their way through the courts, I had to decide whether documents related to the CIA's Bush-era waterboarding and rendition programs should be declassified. Yes, to legal memos justifying such practices, since both the memos and the programs themselves were already widely known. No to the photos of the practices themselves, which the Pentagon and State Department feared might trigger international outrage and put our troops or diplomats in greater danger. Our legal teams and national security staff wrestled daily with how to set up stronger judicial and congressional oversight for our CT efforts, and how to meet our obligations for transparency without tipping off New York Times reading terrorists. Rather than continue with what looked to the world like a bunch of ad hoc foreign policy decisions, we decided I'd deliver two speeches related to our anti-terrorism efforts. The first, intended for mainly domestic consumption, would insist that America's long-term national security depended on fidelity to our Constitution and the rule of law, acknowledging that in the aftermath of 9-11 we'd sometimes fallen short of those standards and laying out how my administration would approach counterterrorism going forward. The second, scheduled to be given in Cairo, would address a global audience. In particular, the world's Muslims. I'd promised to deliver a speech like this during the campaign, and although with everything else going on, some of my team suggested canceling it, I told Rom that backing out was not an option. We may not change public attitudes in these countries overnight, I said, but if we don't squarely address the sources of tension between the West and the Muslim world and describe what peaceful coexistence might look like, we'll be fighting wars in the region for the next 30 years. To help write both speeches, I enlisted the immense talents of Ben Rhodes, my 31-year-old NSC speechwriter and soon-to-be Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications. If Brennan represented someone who could act as a conduit between me and the national security apparatus I'd inherited, Ben connected me to my younger, more idealistic self. Raised in Manhattan by a liberal Jewish mother and a Texas lawyer father, both of whom had held government jobs under Lyndon Johnson, he had been pursuing a master's degree in fiction writing at NYU when 9-11 happened. Fueled by patriotic anger, Ben had headed to D.C. in search of a way to serve, eventually finding a job with former Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton and helping to write the influential 2006 Iraq Study Group report. Short and prematurely balding, with dark brows that seemed perpetually furrowed, Ben had been thrown into the deep end of the pool immediately asked by our understaffed campaign to crank out position papers, press releases, and major speeches. There had been some growing pains. In Berlin, for example, he and Favs landed on a beautiful German phrase, a community of fate, to tie together the themes of my one big pre-election speech on foreign soil, 
only to discover a couple of hours before I was to go on stage that the phrase had been used in one of Hitler's first addresses to the Reichstag. Probably not the effect you're going for, Reggie Love deadpanned as I burst into laughter and Ben's face turned bright red. Despite his youth, Ben wasn't shy about weighing in on policy or contradicting my more senior advisors. With a sharp intelligence and a stubborn earnestness that was leavened with a self-deprecating humor and a healthy sense of irony, he had a writer's sensibility, one I shared, and it formed the basis for a relationship not unlike the one I developed with Favs. I could spend an hour with Ben, dictating my arguments on a subject, and count on getting a draft a few days later that not only captured my voice, but also channeled something more essential, my bedrock view of the world, and sometimes even my heart. Together, we knocked out the counterterrorism speech fairly quickly, though Ben reported that each time he sent a draft to the Pentagon or CIA for comments, it would come back with edits, red lines drawn through any word, proposal, or characterization deemed even remotely controversial or critical of practices like torture, not-so-subtle acts of resistance from the career folks, many of whom had come to Washington with the Bush administration. I told Ben to ignore most of their suggestions. On May 21st, I delivered the speech at the National Archives, standing beside original copies of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, just in case anybody inside or outside the government missed the point. The Muslim speech, as we took to calling the second major address, was trickier. Beyond the negative portrayals of terrorists and oil shakes found on news broadcasts or in the movies, most Americans knew little about Islam. Meanwhile, surveys showed that Muslims around the world believed the United States was hostile towards their religion, and that our Middle East policy was based not on an interest in improving people's lives, but rather on maintaining oil supplies, killing terrorists, and protecting Israel. Given this divide, I told Ben that the focus of our speech had to be less about outlining new policies and more geared toward helping the two sides understand each other. That meant recognizing the extraordinary contributions of Islamic civilizations in the advancement of mathematics, science, and art, and acknowledging the role colonialism had played in some of the Middle East's ongoing struggles. It meant admitting past U.S. indifference towards corruption and repression in the region, and our complicity in the overthrow of Iran's democratically elected government during the Cold War, as well as acknowledging the searing humiliations endured by Palestinians living in occupied territory. Hearing such basic history from the mouth of a U.S. president would catch many people off guard, I figured, and perhaps open their minds to other hard truths, that the Islamic fundamentalism that had come to dominate so much of the Muslim world was incompatible with the openness and tolerance that fueled modern progress, that too often Muslim leaders ginned up grievances against the West in order to distract from their own failures, that a Palestinian state would be delivered only through negotiations and compromise, rather than incitements to violence and anti-Semitism and that no society could truly succeed while still systematically repressing its women. We were still working on the speech when we landed in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, where I was scheduled to meet with King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz Al Saud, custodian of the two holy mosques in Mecca and Medina, and the most powerful leader in the Arab world. I'd never set foot in the kingdom before, and at the lavish airport welcoming ceremony, the first thing I noticed was the complete absence of women or children on the tarmac or in the terminals, just rows of black-mustached men in military uniforms, or the traditional thwab and gutra. I'd expected as much, of course. That's how things were done in the Gulf. But as I climbed into the beast, 
I was still struck by how oppressive and sad such a segregated place felt, as if I'd suddenly entered a world where all the colors had been muted. The king had arranged for me and my team to stay at his horse ranch outside Riyadh, and as our motorcade and police escorts sped down a wide, spotless highway under a blanched sun. The massive, unadorned office buildings, mosques, retail outlets, and luxury car showrooms quickly giving way to scrabbly desert. I thought about how little the Islam of Saudi Arabia resembled the version of the faith I'd witnessed as a child while living in Indonesia. In Jakarta in the 1960s and 70s, Islam had occupied roughly the same place in that nation's culture as Christianity did in the average American city or town. Relevant, but not dominant. The Muezzin's call to prayer punctuated the days. Weddings and funerals followed the faith's prescribed rituals. Activities slowed down during fasting months. And pork might be hard to find on a restaurant's menu. Otherwise, people lived their lives, with women riding Vespas in short skirts and high heels on their way to office jobs, boys and girls chasing kites, and long-haired youths dancing to the Beatles and the Jackson 5 at the local disco. Muslims were largely indistinguishable from the Christians, Hindus, or college-educated non-believers like my stepfather, as they crammed into Jakarta's overcrowded buses, filled theater seats at the latest kung fu movie, smoked outside roadside taverns, or strolled down the cacophonous streets. The overtly pious were scarce in those days, if not the object of derision, then at least set apart, like Jehovah's Witnesses handing out pamphlets in a Chicago neighborhood. Saudi Arabia had always been different. Abdul Aziz ibn Saud, the nation's first monarch and the father of King Abdullah, had begun his reign in 1932 and been deeply wedded to the teachings of the 18th century cleric Muhammad ibn al-Wahhab. Abd al-Wahhab's followers claimed to practice an uncorrupted version of Islam, viewing Shia and Sufi Islam as heretical and observing religious tenets that were considered conservative even by the standards of traditional Arab culture, public segregation of the sexes, avoidance of contact with non-Muslims, and the rejection of secular art, music, and other pastimes that might distract from the faith. Following the post-World War I collapse of the Ottoman Empire, Abdulaziz consolidated control over rival Arab tribes and founded modern Saudi Arabia in accordance with these Wahhabist principles. His conquest of Mecca, birthplace of the Prophet Muhammad, and the destination for all Muslim pilgrims seeking to fulfill the five tenets of Islam, as well as the holy city of Medina, provided him with a platform from which to exert an outsized influence over Islamic doctrine around the world. The discovery of Saudi oil fields and the untold wealth that came from it extended that influence even further. But it also exposed the contradictions of trying to sustain such ultra-conservative practices in the midst of a rapidly modernizing world. Abdulaziz needed Western technology, know-how, and distribution channels to fully exploit the kingdom's newfound treasure and formed an alliance with the United States to obtain modern weapons and secure the Saudi oil fields against rival states. Members of the extended royal family retained Western firms to invest their vast holdings and sent their children to Cambridge and Harvard to learn modern business practices. Young princes discovered the attractions of French villas, London nightclubs, and Vegas gaming rooms. I've wondered sometimes whether there was a point when the Saudi monarchy might have reassessed its religious commitments acknowledging that Wahhabist fundamentalism, like all forms of religious absolutism, was incompatible with modernity and used its wealth and authority to steer Islam toward a gentler, more tolerant course. Probably not. The old ways were too deeply embedded 
and as tensions with fundamentalists grew in the late 1970s, the royals may have accurately concluded that religious reform would lead inevitably to uncomfortable political and economic reform as well. Instead, in order to avoid the kind of revolution that had established an Islamic republic in nearby Iran, the Saudi monarchy struck a bargain with its most hardline clerics. In exchange for legitimizing the House of Saud's absolute control over the nation's economy and government, and for being willing to look the other way when members of the royal family succumbed to certain indiscretions, the clerics and religious police were granted authority to regulate daily social interactions, determine what was taught in schools, and mete out punishments to those who violated religious decrees, from public floggings to the removal of hands to actual crucifixions. Perhaps more important, the royal family steered billions of dollars to these same clerics to build mosques and madrasas across the Sunni world. As a result, from Pakistan to Egypt to Mali to Indonesia, fundamentalism grew stronger. Tolerance for different Islamic practices grew weaker. Drives to impose Islamic governance grew louder. And calls for a purging of Western influences from Islamic territory, through violence if necessary, grew more frequent. The Saudi monarchy could take satisfaction in having averted an Iranian-style revolution, both within its borders and among its Gulf partners, although maintaining such orders still required a repressive internal security service and broad media censorship. But it had done so at the price of accelerating a transnational fundamentalist movement that despised Western influences, remained suspicious of Saudi dalliances with the United States and served as a petri dish for the radicalization of many young Muslims. Men like Osama bin Laden, the son of a prominent Saudi businessman close to the royal family, and the 15 Saudi nationals who, along with four others, planned and carried out the September 11th attacks. Ranch turned out to be something of a misnomer. With its massive grounds and multiple villas fitted with gold-plated plumbing, crystal chandeliers, and plush furnishings, King Abdullah's complex looked more like a Four Seasons hotel plopped in the middle of the desert. The king himself, an octogenarian with a jet-black mustache and beard, male vanity seemed to be a common trait among world leaders, greeted me warmly at the entrance of what appeared to be the main residence. With him was the Saudi ambassador to the United States, Adil al-Jabir, a clean-shaven, U.S.-educated diplomat whose impeccable English, ingratiating manner, PR-savvy, and deep Washington connections had made him the ideal point person for the kingdom's attempts at damage control in the wake of 9-11. The king was in an expansive mood that day. With Al-Jabir acting as translator, he fondly recalled the 1945 meeting between his father and FDR aboard the USS Quincy, emphasized the great value he placed on the U.S.-Saudi alliance, and described the satisfaction he had felt at seeing me elected president. He approved of the idea of my upcoming speech in Cairo, insisting that Islam was a religion of peace and noting the work he had personally done to strengthen interfaith dialogues. He assured me, too, that the kingdom would coordinate with my economic advisors to make sure oil prices didn't impede the post-crisis recovery. But when it came to two of my specific requests, that the kingdom and other members of the Arab League consider a gesture to Israel that might help jumpstart peace talks with the Palestinians, and that our teams discuss the possible transfer of some Gitmo prisoners to Saudi rehabilitation centers. The king was noncommittal, clearly wary of potential controversy. The conversation lightened during the midday banquet the king hosted for our delegation. It was a lavish affair, 
like something out of a fairy tale. The 50-foot table laden with whole roasted lambs and heaps of saffron rice and all manner of traditional and Western delicacies. Of the 60 or so people eating, my scheduling director, Alyssa Mastromonaco, and senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett, were two of the three women present. Alyssa seemed cheery enough as she chatted with Saudi officials across the table, although she appeared to have some trouble keeping the headscarf she was wearing from falling into the soup bowl. The king asked about my family, and I described how Michelle and the girls were adjusting to life in the White House. He explained that he had 12 wives himself. News reports put the number closer to 30, along with 40 children and dozens more grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I hope you don't mind me asking, Your Majesty, I said, but how do you keep up with 12 wives? Very badly, he said, shaking his head warily. One of them is always jealous of the others. It's more complicated than Middle East politics. Later, Ben and Dennis came by the villa where I was staying so we could talk about final edits to the Cairo speech. Before settling into work, I noticed a large travel case on the mantelpiece. I unsnapped the latches and lifted the top. On one side, there was a large desert scene on a marble base featuring miniature gold figurines, as well as a glass clock powered by changes in temperature. On the other side, set in a velvet case, was a necklace half the length of a bicycle chain, encrusted with what appeared to be hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of rubies and diamonds, along with a matching ring and earrings. I looked up at Ben and Dennis. A little something for the missus, Dennis said. He explained that others in the delegation had found cases with expensive watches waiting for them in their rooms. Apparently nobody told the Saudis about our prohibition on gifts. Lifting the heavy jewels, I wondered how many times gifts like this had been discreetly left for other leaders during official visits to the kingdom, leaders whose countries didn't have rules against taking gifts, or at least not ones that were enforced. I thought again about the Somali pirates I had ordered killed, Muslims all, and the many young men like them across the nearby borders of Yemen and Iraq and in Egypt, Jordan, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, whose earnings in a lifetime would probably never touch the cost of that necklace in my hands. Radicalize just 1% of those young men, and you had yourself an army of half a million, ready to die for eternal glory, or maybe just a taste of something better. I set the necklace down and closed the case. All right, I said, let's work. The greater Cairo metropolitan area contained more than 16 million people. We didn't see any of them on the following day's drive from the airport. The famously chaotic streets were empty for miles, save for police officers posted everywhere, a testimony to the extraordinary grip Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak held on his country, and the fact that an American president was a tempting target for local extremist groups. If Saudi Arabia's tradition-bound monarchy represented one path of modern Arab governance, Egypt's autocratic regime represented the other. In the early 1950s, a charismatic and urbane army colonel named Gamal Abdel Nasser had orchestrated a military overthrow of the Egyptian monarchy and instituted a secular, one-party state. Soon after, he nationalized the Suez Canal, overcoming attempted military interventions by the British and French, which made him a global figure in the fight against colonialism and far away the most popular leader in the Arab world. Nasser went on to nationalize other key industries, initiate domestic land reform, and launched huge public works projects, all with the goal of eliminating vestiges of both British rule and Egypt's feudal past. Overseas, he actively promoted a secular, 
vaguely socialist pan-Arab nationalism, fought a losing war against the Israelis, helped form the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO, and the Arab League, and became a charter member of the Non-Aligned Movement, which ostensibly refused to take sides in the Cold War, but drew the suspicion and ire of Washington, in part because Nasser was accepting economic and military aid from the Soviets. He also ruthlessly cracked down on dissent and the formation of competing political parties in Egypt, particularly targeting the Muslim Brotherhood, a group that sought to establish an Islamic government through grassroots political mobilization and charitable works, but also included members who occasionally turned to violence. So dominant was Nasser's authoritarian style of governance that even after his death in 1970, Middle Eastern leaders sought to replicate it. Lacking Nasser's sophistication and ability to connect with the masses, though, men like Syria's Hafez al-Assad, Iraq's Saddam Hussein, and Libya's Muammar Gaddafi would maintain their power largely through corruption, patronage, brutal repression, and a constant, if ineffective, campaign against Israel. After Nasser's successor, Anwar Sadat, was assassinated in 1981, Hosni Mubarak took control using roughly the same formula, with one notable difference. Sadat's signing of a peace accord with Israel had made Egypt a U.S. ally, leading successive American administrations to overlook the regime's increasing corruption, shabby human rights record, and occasional anti-Semitism. Flush with aid, not just from the United States, but from the Saudis and other oil-rich Gulf states, Mubarak never bothered to reform his country's stagnant economy, which now left a generation of disaffected young Egyptians unable to find work. Our motorcade arrived at Kuba Palace, an elaborate mid-19th century structure in one of three presidential palaces in Cairo. And after a greeting ceremony, Mubarak invited me to his office for an hour-long discussion. He was 81, but still broad-shouldered and sturdy, with a Roman nose, dark hair combed back from his forehead, and heavy-lidded eyes that gave him the air of a man both accustomed to and slightly weary of his own command. After talking with him about the Egyptian economy, and soliciting suggestions on how to reinvigorate the Arab-Israeli peace process, I raised the issue of human rights, suggesting steps he might take to release political prisoners and ease restrictions on the press. Speaking accented but passable English, Mubarak politely deflected my concerns, insisting that his security services targeted only Islamic extremists and that the Egyptian public strongly supported his firm approach. I was left with an impression that would become all too familiar in my dealings with aging autocrats. Shut away in palaces, their every interaction mediated by the hard-faced, obsequious functionaries that surrounded them, they were unable to distinguish between their personal interests and those of their nations, their actions governed by no broader purpose beyond maintaining the tangled web of patronage and business interests that kept them in power. What a contrast it was, then to walk into Cairo University's Grand Hall and to find a packed house absolutely crackling with energy. We'd pressed the government to open my address to a wide cross-section of Egyptian society, and it was clear that the mere presence of university students, journalists, scholars, leaders of women's organizations, community activists, and even some prominent clerics and Muslim Brotherhood figures among the 3,000 people present would help make this a singular event one that would reach a wide global audience via television. As soon as I stepped onto the stage and delivered the Islamic salutation, Assalamu alaikum, the crowd roared its approval. 
I was careful to make clear that no one speech was going to solve entrenched problems. But as the cheers and applause continued through my discussion of democracy, human rights, and women's rights, religious tolerance, and the need for a true and lasting peace between a secure Israel and an autonomous Palestinian state, I could imagine the beginnings of a new Middle East. In that moment, it wasn't hard to envision an alternate reality in which the young people in that auditorium would build new businesses and schools, lead responsive functioning governments, and begin to reimagine their faith in a way that was at once true to tradition and open to other sources of wisdom. Perhaps the high-ranking government officials who sat grim-faced in the third row could imagine it as well. I left the stage to a prolonged standing ovation and made a point of finding Ben, who as a rule got too nervous to watch any speech he'd helped to write and instead holed up in some back room tapping into his Blackberry. He was grinning from ear to ear. I guess that worked, I said. That was historic, he said, without a trace of irony. In later years, critics and even some of my supporters would have a field day contrasting the lofty, hopeful tone of the Cairo speech with the grim realities that would play out in the Middle East during my two terms in office. For some, it showed the sin of naivete, one that undermined key U.S. allies like Mubarak and thus emboldened the forces of chaos. For others, the problem was not the vision set forth in the speech, but rather what they considered my failure to deliver on that vision with effective, meaningful action. I was tempted to answer, of course, to point out that I'd be the first to say that no single speech would solve the region's long-standing challenges, that we'd pushed hard on every initiative I mentioned that day, whether large, a deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians, or small, the creation of training programs for would-be entrepreneurs that the arguments I made in Cairo were ones I'd still make. But in the end, the facts of what happened are the facts. And I'm left with the same set of questions I first wrestled with as a young organizer. How useful is it to describe the world as it should be, when efforts to achieve that world are bound to fall short? Was Baslav Havel correct in suggesting that by raising expectations, I was doomed to disappoint them? Was it possible that abstract principles and high-minded ideals were, and always would be, nothing more than a pretense, a palliative, a way to beat back despair, but no match for the more primal urges that really moved us so that no matter what we said or did, history was sure to run along its predetermined course, an endless cycle of fear, hunger, and conflict, dominance, and weakness. Even at the time, doubts came naturally to me. The sugar high of the speech quickly replaced with thoughts of all the work awaiting me back home and the many forces arrayed against what I hoped to do. The excursion we took immediately after the speech deepened my brooding. A 15-minute helicopter ride, high over the sprawling city, until suddenly the jumble of cream-colored, cubist-looking structures was gone, and there was only desert and sun and the wondrous geometric lines of the pyramids cutting across the horizon. Upon landing, we were greeted by Cairo's leading Egyptologist, a happily eccentric gentleman with a floppy, wide-brimmed hat straight out of an Indiana Jones movie. And for the next several hours, my team and I had the place to ourselves. We scaled the ancient, boulder-like stones of each pyramid's face. We stood in the shadow of the Sphinx, staring up at its silent, indifferent gaze. We climbed a narrow, vertical chute to stand within one of the Pharaoh's dark inner chambers 
the mystery of which was punctuated by Axe's timeless words during our careful descent back down the ladder. God damn it, Rom, slow down. Your ass is in my face. At one point, as I stood watching Gibbs and some of the other staffers trying to mount camels for the obligatory tourist pictures, Reggie and Marvin motioned for me to join them inside the corridor of one of the pyramid's lesser temples. Check it out, boss, Reggie said, pointing at the wall. There, carved in the smooth, porous stone, was the dark image of a man's face. Not the profile typical of hieroglyphics, but a straight-on headshot. A long, oval face, prominent ears sticking straight out like handles. A cartoon of me, somehow forged in antiquity. Must be a relative, Marvin said. We all had a laugh then, and the two of them wandered off to join the camel riders. Our guide couldn't tell me just who it was that the image depicted, or even whether it dated back to the time of the pyramids. But I stood at the wall for an extra beat, trying to imagine the life behind that etching. Had he been a member of the royal court? A slave? A foreman? Maybe just a bored vandal, camped out at night centuries after the wall had been built, inspired by the stars and his own loneliness to sketch his own likeness. I tried to imagine the worries and strivings that might have consumed him and the nature of the world he occupied, likely full of its own struggles and palace intrigues, conquests and catastrophes, events that probably at the time felt no less pressing than those I'd face as soon as I got back to Washington. All of it was forgotten now. None of it mattered. The pharaoh, the slave, and the vandal all long turned to dust. Just as every speech I delivered, every law I passed and decision I made, would soon be forgotten. Just as I and all those I loved would someday turn to dust. Before returning home, I retraced a more recent history. President Sarkozy had organized a commemoration of the 65th anniversary of the Allied landing at Normandy and had asked me to speak. Rather than head directly to France, we stopped first in Dresden, Germany, where Allied bombing toward the end of World War II resulted in a firestorm that engulfed the city, killing an estimated 25,000 people. My visit was a purposeful gesture of respect for a now stalwart ally. Angela Merkel and I toured a famous 18th-century church that had been destroyed by the air raids, only to be rebuilt 50 years later with a golden cross and orb crafted by a British silversmith whose father had been one of the bomber pilots. The silversmith's work served as a reminder that even those on the right side of war must not turn away from their enemy's suffering or foreclose the possibility of reconciliation. Merkel and I were later joined by the writer and Nobel laureate Elie Wiesel, for a visit to the former Buchenwald concentration camp. This, too, had practical political significance. We'd originally considered a trip to Tel Aviv to follow my speech in Cairo, but in deference to the Israeli government's wishes that I not make the Palestinian question the primary focus of my speech, nor feed the perception that the Arab-Israeli conflict was the root cause of the Middle East's turmoil, we had settled instead on a tour of one of the epicenters of the Holocaust to signal my commitment to the security of Israel and the Jewish people. I had a more personal reason as well for wanting to make this pilgrimage. As a young man in college, I'd had a chance to hear Wiesel speak and had been deeply moved by how he chronicled his experiences as a Buchenwald survivor. Reading his books, I'd found an impregnable moral core that both fortified me and challenged me to be better. It had been one of the great pleasures of my time in the Senate 
that Ellie and I became friends. When I told him that one of my great uncles, Toot's brother Charles Payne, had been a member of the U.S. Infantry Division that reached one of Buchenwald's subcamps in April 1945 and began the liberation there, Ellie had insisted that one day we would go together. Being with him now fulfilled that promise. If these trees could talk, Ellie said softly, waving toward a row of stately oaks as the two of us and Merkel slowly walked the gravel path toward Buchenwald's main entrance. The sky was low and gray, the press at a respectful distance. We stopped at two memorials to those who died at the camp. One was a set of stone slabs featuring the names of the victims, including Ellie's father. The other was a list of the countries they came from, etched on a steel plate that was kept heated to 37 degrees Celsius, the temperature of the human body, meant to be a reminder, in a place premised on hate and intolerance, of the common humanity we share. For the next hour, we wandered the grounds, passing guard towers and walls lined with barbed wire, staring into the dark ovens of the crematorium and circling the foundations of the prisoners' barracks. There were photographs of the camp as it had once been, mostly taken by U.S. Army units at the moment of liberation. One showed Elliot 16, looking out from one of the bunks, the same handsome face and mournful eyes, but jagged with hunger and illness and the enormity of all he had witnessed. Ellie described to me and Merkel the daily strategies he and other prisoners had used to survive, how the stronger or luckier ones would sneak food to the weak and the dying, how resistance meetings took place in latrines so foul that no guard ever entered them, how adults organized secret classes to teach children math, poetry, history, not just for learning's sake, but so those children might maintain a belief that they would one day be free to pursue a normal life. In remarks to the press afterward, Merkel spoke clearly and humbly of the necessity for Germans to remember the past, to wrestle with the agonizing question of how their homeland could have perpetrated such horrors and recognize the special responsibility they now shouldered to stand up against bigotry of all kinds. Then Ellie spoke, describing how in 1945, paradoxically, he had emerged from the camp feeling hopeful about the future, Hopefully said because he assumed that the world had surely learned once and for all that hatred was useless and racism stupid, and the will to conquer other people's minds or territories or aspirations is meaningless. He wasn't so sure now that such optimism was justified, he said, not after the killing fields of Cambodia, Rwanda, Darfur, and Bosnia. But he beseeched us, beseeched me, to leave Buchenwald with resolve, to try to bring about peace, to use the memory of what had happened on the ground where we stood to see past anger and division and find strength and solidarity. I carried his words with me to Normandy, my second-to-last stop on the trip. On a bright, nearly cloudless day, thousands of people had gathered at the American cemetery there, set atop a high coastal bluff that overlooked the English Channel's blue, white-capped waters. Coming in by helicopter, I gazed down at the pebbled beaches below, where 65 years earlier more than 150,000 Allied troops, half of them American, had pitched through high surf to land under relentless enemy fire. They had taken the serrated cliffs of Point de Hoc, eventually establishing the beachhead that would prove decisive in winning the war. The thousands of marble headstones, bone-white rows across the deep green grass, spoke to the price that had been paid. 
I was greeted by a group of young Army Rangers who earlier in the day had recreated the parachute jumps that had accompanied D-Day's amphibious landings. They were in dress uniform now, handsome and fit, smiling with a well-earned swagger. I shook hands with each of them, asking where they were from and where they were currently deployed. A sergeant first class named Corey Remsburg explained that most of them had just come back from Iraq. He'd be heading out to Afghanistan in the coming weeks, he said, for his 10th deployment. He quickly added, That's nothing compared to what the men did here 65 years ago, sir. They made our way of life possible. A survey of the crowd that day reminded me that very few D-Day or World War II vets were still alive and able to make the trip. Many who had made it needed wheelchairs or walkers to get around. Bob Dole, the acerbic Kansan who had overcome devastating injuries during World War II to become one of the most accomplished and respected senators in Washington, was there. So was my Uncle Charlie, Toot's brother, who'd come with his wife, Melanie, as my guest. A retired librarian, he was one of the most gentle and unassuming men I knew. According to Toot, he had been so shaken by his experiences as a soldier that he barely spoke for six months after returning home. Whatever wounds they carried, these men exuded a quiet pride as they gathered in their veterans' caps and neat blazers pinned with well-polished service medals. They swapped stories, accepted handshakes and words of thanks from me and other strangers, and were surrounded by children and grandchildren, who knew them less for their war heroism than for the lives they had led afterward, as teachers, engineers, factory workers, or store owners, men who had married their sweethearts, worked hard to buy a house, fought off depression and disappointments, coached Little League, volunteered at their churches or synagogues, and seen their sons and daughters marry and have families of their own. Standing on the stage as the ceremony began, I realized that the lives of these 80-something-year-old veterans more than answered whatever doubts stirred in me. Maybe nothing would come of my Cairo speech. Maybe the dysfunction of the Middle East would play itself out regardless of what I did. Maybe the best we could hope for was to placate men like Mubarak and kill those who would try to kill us. Maybe, as the pyramids had whispered, none of it mattered in the long run. But on the only scale that any of us can truly comprehend, the span of centuries, the actions of an American president 65 years earlier had set the world on a better course. The sacrifices these men had made, at roughly the same age as the young army rangers I just met, had made all the difference. Just as the witness of Elie Wiesel, a beneficiary of those sacrifices, made a difference. Just as Angela Merkel's willingness to absorb the tragic lessons of her own nation's past made a difference. It was my turn to speak. I told the stories of a few of the men we had come to honor. Our history has always been the sum total of the choices made and the actions taken by each individual man and woman, I concluded. It has always been up to us. Turning back to look at the old men sitting behind me on the stage, I believe this to be true. Chapter 16 Our first spring in the White House arrived early. By mid-March, the air had softened and the days grown longer. As the weather warmed, the South Lawn became almost like a private park to explore. There were acres of lush grass ringed by massive shady oaks and elms and a tiny pond tucked behind the hedges with the handprints of presidential children and grandchildren pressed into the paved pathway that led to it. 
There were nooks and crannies for games of tag and hide-and-go-seek, and there was even a bit of wildlife. Not just squirrels and rabbits, but a red-tailed hawk that a group of visiting fourth graders named Lincoln, and a slender, long-legged fox that could sometimes be spotted at a distance in the late afternoon, and occasionally got bold enough to wander down the colonnade. Cooped up as we'd been through the winter, we took full advantage of the new backyard. We had a swing set installed for Sasha and Malia, near the swimming pool and directly in front of the Oval Office. Looking up from a late afternoon meeting on this or that crisis, I might glimpse the girls playing outside, their faces set in bliss as they soared high on the swings. We also set up a couple of portable basketball hoops on either end of the tennis courts so that I could sneak out with Reggie for a quick game of horse and the staff could play inter-office games of five-on-five. And with the help of Sam Cass, as well as the White House horticulturalist and a crew of enthusiastic fifth graders from a local elementary school, Michelle planted her garden. What we expected to be a meaningful but modest project to encourage healthy eating ended up becoming a genuine phenomenon, inspiring schools and community gardens across the country, attracting worldwide attention, and generating so much produce by the end of that first summer. Collards, carrots, peppers, fennel, onions, lettuce, broccoli, strawberries, blueberries, you name it, that the White House kitchen started donating crates of spare vegetables to the local food banks. As an unexpected bonus, a member of the groundskeeping crew turned out to be an amateur beekeeper, and we gave him the okay to set up a small hive. Not only did it end up producing more than 100 pounds of honey a year, but an enterprising microbrewer in the Navy mess suggested that we could use the honey in a beer recipe, which led to the purchase of a home brew kit and made me the first presidential brewmaster. George Washington, I was told, made his own whiskey. But of all the pleasures that first year in the White House would deliver, none quite compared to the mid-April arrival of Bo, a huggable, four-legged black bundle of fur with a snowy white chest and front paws. Malia and Sasha, who'd been lobbying for a puppy since before the campaign, squealed with delight upon seeing him for the first time letting them lick their ears and faces as the three of them rolled around on the floor of the residence. It wasn't just the girls who fell in love either. Michelle spent so much time with Beau, teaching him tricks, cradling him in her lap, sneaking him bacon, that Marion confessed to feeling like a bad parent for never having given in to Michelle's girlhood wish for a family dog. As for me, I got what someone once described as the only reliable friend a politician can have in Washington. Bo also gave me an added excuse to put off my evening paperwork and join my family on meandering after-dinner walks around the South Lawn. It was during those moments, with the light fading into streaks of purple and gold, Michelle smiling and squeezing my hand as the dog bounded in and out of the bushes with the girls giving chase, Malia eventually catching up to us to interrogate me about things like birds' nests or cloud formations, while Sasha wrapped herself around one of my legs to see how far I could carry her along that I felt normal and whole and as lucky as any man has a right to expect. Bo had come to us as a gift from Ted and Vicky Kennedy, part of a litter that was related to Teddy's own beloved pair of Portuguese water dogs. It was an incredibly thoughtful gesture, not only because the breed was hypoallergenic, a necessity due to Malia's allergies, but also because the Kennedys made sure that Bo was housebroken before he came to us. When I called to thank them, though, it was only Vicky I could speak with. It had been almost a year since Teddy was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor, and although he was still receiving treatment in Boston, it was clear to everyone, Teddy included, that the prognosis was not good. 
I'd seen him in March, when he'd made a surprise appearance at a White House conference we held to get the ball rolling on universal health care legislation. Vicky had worried about the trip, and I understood why. Teddy's walk was unsteady that day. His suit barely fit after all the weight he'd lost. And despite his cheerful demeanor, his pinched, cloudy eyes showed the strain it took just to hold himself upright. And yet he'd insisted on coming anyway. Because 35 years earlier, the cause of getting everyone decent, affordable health care had become personal for him. His son, Teddy Jr., had been diagnosed with a bone cancer that led to a leg amputation at the age of 12. While at the hospital, Teddy had gone to know other parents whose children were just as ill, but who had no idea how they'd pay the mounting medical bills. Then and there, he had vowed to do something to change that. Through seven presidents, Teddy had fought the good fight. During the Clinton administration, he helped secure passage of the Children's Health Insurance Program. Over the objections of some of his own party, he worked with President Bush to get drug coverage for seniors. But for all his power and legislative skill, the dream of establishing universal health care, a system that delivered quality medical care to all people, regardless of their ability to pay, continued to elude him. Which is why Ted Kennedy had forced himself out of bed to come to our conference, knowing that while he could no longer lead the fight, his brief but symbolic presence might have an effect. Sure enough, when he walked into the East Room, the 150 people who were present erupted into cheers and lengthy applause. After opening the conference, I called upon him to speak first, and some of his former staffers could be seen tearing up at the sight of their old boss rising to speak. His remarks were short. His baritone didn't boom quite as loudly as it used to when he had roared on the Senate floor. He looked forward, he said, to being a foot soldier in the upcoming effort. By the time we'd moved on to the third or fourth speaker, Vicky had quietly escorted him out the door. I saw him only once more in person, a couple of weeks later, at a signing ceremony for a bill expanding national service programs, which Republicans and Democrats alike had named in his honor. But I would think of Teddy sometimes when Bo wandered into the treaty room, his head down, his tail wagging, before he curled up at my feet. And I'd recall what Teddy had told me that day, just before we walked into the East Room together. This is the time, Mr. President, he had said. Don't let it slip away. The quest for some form of universal health care in the United States dates back to 1912, when Theodore Roosevelt, who had previously served nearly eight years as a Republican president, decided to run again, this time on a progressive ticket and with a platform that called for the establishment of a centralized national health service. At the time, few people had or felt the need for private health insurance. Most Americans paid their doctors visit by visit, but the field of medicine was quickly growing more sophisticated, and as more diagnostic tests and surgeries became available, the attendant costs began to rise, tying health more explicitly to wealth. Both the United Kingdom and Germany had addressed similar issues by instituting national health insurance systems, and other European nations would eventually follow suit. While Roosevelt ultimately lost the 1912 election, his party's progressive ideals planted a seed that accessible and affordable medical care might be viewed as a right more than a privilege. It wasn't long, however, before doctors and Southern politicians vocally opposed any type of government involvement in healthcare, branding it as a form of Bolshevism. After FDR imposed a nationwide wage freeze meant to stem inflation during World War II, many companies began offering private health insurance and pension benefits 
as a way to compete for the limited number of workers not deployed overseas. Once the war ended, this employer-based system continued, in no small part because labor unions liked the arrangement, since it enabled them to use the more generous benefit packages negotiated under collective bargaining agreements as a selling point to recruit new members. The downside was that it left those unions unmotivated to push for government-sponsored health programs that might help everybody else. Harry Truman proposed a national health care system twice, once in 1945 and again as part of his Fair Deal package in 1949. But his appeal for public support was no match for the well-financed PR efforts of the American Medical Association and other industry lobbyists. Opponents didn't just kill Truman's effort. They convinced a large swath of the public that, quote, socialized medicine would lead to rationing, the loss of your family doctor, and the freedoms Americans hold so dear. Rather than challenging private insurance head-on, progressives shifted their energy to help those populations the marketplace had left behind. These efforts bore fruit during LBJ's Great Society campaign, when a universal single-payer program, partially funded by payroll tax revenue, was introduced for seniors, that is, Medicare, and a not-so-comprehensive program, based on a combination of federal and state funding, was set up for the poor, that is, Medicaid. During the 1970s and early 1980s, this patchwork system functioned well enough, with roughly 80% of Americans covered through either their jobs or one of these two programs. Meanwhile, defenders of the status quo could point to the many innovations brought to market by the for-profit medical industry, from MRIs to life-saving drugs. Useful as they were, though, these innovations also further drove up healthcare costs. And with insurers footing the nation's medical bills, patients had little incentive to question whether drug companies were overcharging or if doctors and hospitals were ordering redundant tests and unnecessary treatments in order to pad their bottom lines. Meanwhile, nearly a fifth of the country lived just an illness or accident away from potential financial ruin. Forgoing regular checkups and preventive care because they couldn't afford it, the uninsured often waited until they were very sick before seeking care at hospital emergency rooms, where more advanced illnesses meant more expensive treatment. Hospitals made up for this uncompensated care by increasing prices for insured customers, which in turn further jacked up premiums. All this explained why the United States spent a lot more money per person on health care than any other advanced economy. 112% more than Canada, 109% more than France, 117% more than Japan, and for similar or worse results. The difference amounted to hundreds of billions of dollars per year, money that could have been used instead to provide quality childcare for American families, or to reduce college tuition, or to eliminate a good chunk of the federal deficit. Spiraling healthcare costs also burdened American businesses. Japanese and German automakers didn't have to worry about the extra $1,500 in worker and retiree health care costs that Detroit had to build into the price of every car rolling off the assembly line. In fact, it was in response to foreign competition that U.S. companies began offloading rising insurance costs onto their employees in the late 1980s and 90s, replacing traditional plans that had few, if any, out-of-pocket costs with cheaper versions that included higher deductibles co-pays, lifetime limits, and other unpleasant surprises hidden in the fine print. Unions often found themselves able to preserve their traditional benefit plans only by agreeing to forego increases in wages. 
Small businesses found it tough to provide their workers with health benefits at all. Meanwhile, insurance companies that operated in the individual market perfected the art of rejecting customers who, according to their actuarial data, were most likely to make use of the healthcare system, especially anyone with a, quote, pre-existing condition, which they often defined to include anything from a previous bout of cancer to asthma and chronic allergies. It's no wonder, then, that by the time I took office, there were very few people ready to defend the existing system. More than 43 million Americans were now uninsured. Premiums for family coverage had risen 97% since 2000, and costs were only continuing to climb. And yet, the prospect of trying to get a big health care reform bill through Congress at the height of a historic recession made my team nervous. Even Axe, who'd experienced the challenges of getting specialized care for a daughter with severe epilepsy and had left journalism to become a political consultant in part to pay for her treatment, had his doubts. The data is pretty clear, Axe said when we discussed the topic early on. People may hate the way things work in general, but most of them have insurance. They don't really think about the flaws in the system until somebody in their own family gets sick. They like their doctor. They don't trust Washington to fix anything. And even if they think you're sincere, they worry that any changes you make will cost them money and help somebody else. Plus, when you ask them what changes they'd like to see to the healthcare system, they basically want every possible treatment, regardless of cost or effectiveness, from whatever provider they choose whenever they want it, for free. Which, of course, we can't deliver. And that's before the insurance companies, the drug companies, the docs start running ads. What Axe is trying to say, Mr. President, Rahm interrupted, his face screwed up in a frown, is that this can blow up in our faces. Rom went on to remind us that he'd had a front-row seat at the last push for universal health care when Hillary Clinton's legislative proposal crashed and burned, creating a backlash that contributed to Democrats losing control of the House in the 1994 midterms. Republicans will say health care is a big new liberal spending binge and that it's a distraction from solving the economic crisis. Unless I'm missing something, I said, we're doing everything we can on the economy. I know that, Mr. President but the American people don't know that. So what are we saying here, I asked? That despite having the biggest Democratic majorities in decades, despite the promises we made during the campaign, we shouldn't try to get health care done? Rom looked to Axe for help. We all think we should try, Axe said. You just need to know that if we lose, your presidency will be badly weakened. And nobody understands that better than McConnell and Boehner. I stood up, signaling that the meeting was over. We better not lose them, I said. When I think back on those early conversations, it's hard to deny my overconfidence. I was convinced that the logic of healthcare reform was so obvious that even in the face of well-organized opposition, I could rally the American people's support. Other big initiatives, like immigration reform and climate change legislation, would probably be even harder to get through Congress. I figured that scoring a victory on the item that most affected people's day-to-day -day lives was our best shot at building momentum for the rest of my legislative agenda. As for the political hazards Axe and Rom worried about, the recession virtually ensured that my poll numbers were going to take a hit anyway. Being timid wouldn't change that reality. Even if it did, passing up a chance to help millions of people just because it might hurt my re-election prospects? Well, that was exactly the kind of myopic, self-preserving behavior I'd vowed to reject. My interest in healthcare went beyond policy or politics. 
It was personal, just as it was for Teddy. Each time I met a parent struggling to come up with money to get treatment for a sick child, I thought back to the night Michelle and I had to take a three-month-old Sasha to the emergency room for what turned out to be viral meningitis, the terror and helplessness we felt as the nurses whisked her away for a spinal tap, and the realization that we might never have caught the infection in time had the girls not had a regular pediatrician we felt comfortable calling in the middle of the night. When on the campaign trail, I met farm workers or supermarket cashiers suffering from a bum knee or bad back because they couldn't afford a doctor's visit. I thought about one of my best friends, Bobby Titcomb, a commercial fisherman in Hawaii who resorted to professional medical help only for life-threatening injuries, like the time a diving accident resulted in a spear puncturing his lung, because the monthly cost of insurance would have wiped out what he earned from an entire week's catch. Most of all, I thought about my mom. In mid-June, I headed to Green Bay, Wisconsin, for the first of a series of healthcare town hall meetings we would hold around the country, hoping to solicit citizen input and educate people on the possibilities for reform. Introducing me that day was Laura Klitska, who was 35 years old and had been diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer that had spread to her bones. Even though she was on her husband's insurance plan, repeated rounds of surgery, radiation, and chemo had bumped her up against the policy's lifetime limits leaving them with $12,000 in unpaid medical bills. Over her husband Peter's objections, she was now pondering whether more treatment was worth it. Sitting in their living room before we headed for the event, she smiled wanly as we watched Peter doing his best to keep track of the two young kids playing on the floor. I want as much time with them as I can get, Laura said to me, and I don't want to leave them with a mountain of debt. I feel selfish. Her eyes started misting, and I held her hand, Remembering my mom wasting away in those final months, the time she had put off checkups that might have caught her disease because she was in between consulting contracts and didn't have coverage, the stress she carried to her hospital bed when her insurer refused to pay her disability claim, arguing that she had failed to disclose a pre-existing condition despite the fact that she hadn't even been diagnosed when her policy started, the unspoken regrets. Passing a health care bill wouldn't bring my mom back. It wouldn't douse the guilt I still felt for not having been at her side when she took her last breath. It would probably come too late to help Laura Klitska and her family. But it would save somebody's mom out there, somewhere down the line. And that was worth fighting for. The question was whether we could get it done. As tough as it had been to pass the Recovery Act, the concept behind the stimulus legislation was pretty simple enable the government to pump out money as fast as it could in order to keep the economy afloat and people employed. The law didn't take cash out of anyone's pockets or force a change in how businesses operated or discontinue old programs in order to pay for new ones. In the immediate term, there were no losers in the deal. By contrast, any major health care bill meant rejiggering one-sixth of the American economy. Legislation of this scope was guaranteed to involve hundreds of pages of endlessly fussed-over amendments and regulations, some of them new, some of them rewrites of previous law, all of them with their own high stakes. A single provision tucked inside the bill could translate to billions of dollars in gains or losses for some sector of the healthcare industry. A shift in one number, a zero here or a decimal point there, could mean a million more families getting coverage or not. Across the country, insurance companies like Aetna and United Healthcare were major employers, 
and local hospitals served as the economic anchor for many small towns and counties. People had good reasons, life and death reasons, to worry about how any change would affect them. There was also the question of how to pay for the loan. To cover more people, I had argued, America didn't need to spend more money on health care. We just needed to use that money more wisely. In theory, that was true. But one person's waste and inefficiency was another person's profit or convenience. Spending on coverage would show up on the federal books much sooner than the savings from reform. And unlike the insurance companies or big pharma, whose shareholders expected them to be on guard against any change that might cost them a dime, most of the potential beneficiaries of reform, the waitress, the family farmer, the independent contractor, the cancer survivor, didn't have gaggles of well-paid and experienced lobbyists roaming the halls of Congress on their behalf. In other words, both the politics and the substance of healthcare were mind-numbingly complicated. I was going to have to explain to the American people, including those with quality health insurance, why and how reform could work. For this reason, I thought we'd use as open and transparent a process as possible when it came to developing the necessary legislation. Everyone will have a seat at the table, I told voters during the campaign. Not negotiating behind closed doors, but bringing all parties together and broadcasting those negotiations on C-SPAN so that the American people can see what the choices are. When I later brought this idea up with Rom, he looked like he wished I weren't the president, just so he could more vividly explain the stupidity of my plan. If we were going to get a bill passed, he told me, the process would involve dozens of deals and compromises along the way and it wasn't going to be conducted like a civic seminar. Making sausage isn't pretty, Mr. President, he said. And you're asking for a really big piece of sausage. One thing Ram and I did agree on was that we had months of work ahead of us, parsing the costs and outcomes of each piece of possible legislation, coordinating every effort across different federal agencies and both houses of Congress, and all the while looking for leverage with major players in the healthcare world from medical providers and hospital administrators to insurers and pharmaceutical companies. To do all this, we needed a top-notch healthcare team to keep us on track. Luckily, we were able to recruit a remarkable trio of women to help run the show. Kathleen Sebelius, the two-term Democratic governor from Republican-leaning Kansas, came on as Secretary of Health and Human Services, or HHS. A former state insurance commissioner, she knew both the politics and the economics of healthcare and was a gifted enough politician, smart, funny, outgoing, tough, and media savvy, to serve as the public face of health reform, someone we could put on TV or send to town halls around the country to explain what we were doing. Jean Lambrew, a professor at the University of Texas and an expert on Medicare and Medicaid, became the director of the HHS Office of Health Reform, basically our chief policy advisor. Tall, earnest, and often oblivious to political constraints, she had every fact and nuance of every health care proposal at her fingertips and could be counted on to keep the room honest if we veered too far in the direction of political expediency. But it was Nancy Ann DeParle who I would come to rely on most as our campaign took shape. A Tennessee lawyer who'd run the state's health programs before serving as the Medicare administrator in the Clinton administration, Nancy Ann carried herself with the crisp professionalism of someone accustomed to seeing hard work translate into success. How much that drive could be traced to her experiences growing up Chinese-American in a tiny Tennessee town, I couldn't say. Nancy Ann didn't talk much about herself, at least not with me. 
I do know that when she was 17, her mom died of lung cancer, which might have had something to do with her willingness to give up a lucrative position at a private equity firm to work in a job that required even more time away from a loving husband and two young sons. It seems I wasn't the only one for whom getting health care passed was personal. Along with Rom, Phil Shaliro, and Deputy Chief of Staff Jim Messina, who had served as Pluff's right hand in the campaign and was one of our shrewdest political operators, our healthcare team began to map out what a legislative strategy might look like. Based on our experiences with the Recovery Act, we had no doubt that Mitch McConnell would do everything he could to torpedo our efforts, and the chances of getting Republican votes in the Senate for something as big and controversial as a healthcare bill were slim. We could take heart from the fact that instead of the 58 senators who were caucusing with the Democrats when we passed the stimulus bill, we were likely to have 60 by the time any health care bill actually came to a vote. Al Franken had finally taken his seat after a contentious election recount in Minnesota, and Arlen Specter had decided to switch parties after being effectively driven out of the GOP, just like Charlie Crist, for supporting the Recovery Act. Still, our filibuster-proof headcount was tenuous, for it included a terminally ill Ted Kennedy and the frail and ailing Robert Byrd of West Virginia, not to mention conservative Dems like Nebraska's Ben Nelson, a former insurance company executive who could go sideways on us at any minute. Beyond wanting some margin for error, I also knew that passing something as monumental as health care reform on a purely party-line vote would make the law politically more vulnerable down the road. Consequently, we thought it made sense to shape our legislative proposal in such a way that it at least had a chance of winning over a handful of Republicans. Fortunately, we had a model to work with, one that, ironically, had grown out of a partnership between Ted Kennedy and former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney, one of John McCain's opponents in the Republican primary for president. Confronting budget shortfalls and the prospect of losing Medicaid funding a few years earlier, Romney had become fixated on finding a way to get more Massachusetts residents properly insured, which would then reduce state spending on emergency care for the uninsured and, ideally, lead to a healthier population in general. He and his staff came up with a multi-pronged approach in which every person would be required to purchase health insurance, also known as an individual mandate, the same way every car owner was required to carry auto insurance. Middle-income people who couldn't access insurance through their job, didn't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, and were unable to afford insurance on their own, would get a government subsidy to buy coverage. Subsidies would be determined on a sliding scale, according to each person's income. And a central online marketplace, an exchange, would be set up so that consumers could shop for the best insurance deal. Insurers, meanwhile, would no longer be able to deny people coverage based on pre-existing conditions. These two ideas, the individual mandate and protecting people with pre-existing conditions, went hand in hand. With a huge new pool of government-subsidized customers, insurers no longer had an excuse for trying to cherry-pick only the young and healthy for coverage to protect their profits. Meanwhile, the mandate ensured that people couldn't game the system by waiting until they got sick to purchase insurance. Touting the plan to reporters, Romney called the individual mandate, quote, the ultimate conservative idea because it promoted personal responsibility. Not surprisingly, Massachusetts' Democratic-controlled state legislature had initially been suspicious of the Romney plan, 
and not just because a Republican had proposed it. Among many progressives, the need to replace private insurance and for-profit health care with a single-payer system like Canada's was an article of faith. Had we been starting from scratch, I would have agreed with them. The evidence from other countries showed that a single national system, basically Medicare for all, was a cost-effective way to deliver quality health care. But neither Massachusetts nor the United States was starting from scratch. Teddy, who despite his reputation as a wide-eyed liberal was ever practical, understood that trying to dismantle the existing system and replace it with an entirely new one would not only be a political non-starter, but hugely disruptive economically. Instead, he'd embraced the Romney proposal with enthusiasm and helped the governor line up the Democratic votes in the state legislature required to get it passed into law. Romney Care, as it eventually became known, was now two years old and had been a clear success, driving the uninsured rate in Massachusetts down to just under 4%, the lowest in the country. Teddy had used it as the basis for draft legislation he'd started preparing many months ahead of the election in his role as chair of the Senate Health and Education Committee. And though Pluff and Axe had persuaded me to hold off endorsing the Massachusetts approach during the campaign, the idea of requiring people to buy insurance was extremely unpopular with voters, and I'd instead focused my plan on lowering costs. I was now convinced, as were most healthcare advocates, that Romney's model offered us the best chance of achieving our goal of universal coverage. People still differed on the details of what a national version of the Massachusetts plan might look like. And as my team and I mapped out our strategy, a number of advocates urged us to settle these issues early by putting out a specific White House proposal for Congress to follow. We decided against that. One of the lessons from the Clinton's failed effort was the need to involve key Democrats in the process so they'd feel a sense of ownership of the bill. Insufficient coordination, we knew, could result in legislative death by a thousand cuts. On the House side, this meant working with old-school liberals like Henry Waxman, the wily, pugnacious congressman from California. In the Senate, the landscape was different. With Teddy convalescing, the main player was Max Baucus, a conservative Democrat from Montana who chaired the powerful Finance Committee. When it came to the tax issues that occupied most of the committee's time, Baucus often aligned himself with business lobbies, which I found worrying. And in three decades as a senator, he had yet to spearhead the passage of any major legislation. Still, he appeared to be genuinely invested in the issue, having organized a congressional health care summit the previous June and having spent months working with Ted Kennedy and his staff on early drafts of a reform bill. Baucus also had a close friendship with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, the Finance Committee's ranking Republican, and was optimistic that he could win Grassley's support for a bill. Rahm and Phil Shalira were skeptical that Grassley was gettable. After all, we'd been down that rabbit hole during the Recovery Act debate. But we decided it was best to let Baucus's process play itself out. He'd already outlined some of his ideas in the press and would soon pull together a health care reform working group that included Grassley and two other Republicans. During an Oval Office meeting, though, I made a point of warning him not to let Grassley string him along. Trust me, Mr. President, Baucus said. Chuck and I have already discussed it, we're going to have this thing done by July. Every job has its share of surprises. A key piece of equipment breaks down. A traffic accident forces a change in delivery routes. A client calls to say you've won the contract, but they need the order filled three months earlier than planned. 
If it's the kind of thing that's happened before, the place where you work may have systems and procedures to handle the situation. But even the best organizations can't anticipate everything, in which case you learn to improvise to meet your objectives, or at least to cut your losses. The presidency was no different, except that the surprises came daily, often in waves. And over the course of the spring and summer of that first year, as we wrestled with the financial crisis, two wars, and the push for health care reform, several unexpected items got added to our already overloaded plate. The first carried the possibility of a genuine catastrophe. In April, reports surfaced of a worrying flu outbreak in Mexico. The flu virus usually hits vulnerable populations like the elderly, infants, and asthma sufferers hardest. But this strain appeared to strike young, healthy people and was killing them at a higher-than-usual rate. Within weeks, people in the United States were falling ill with the virus. One in Ohio, two in Kansas, eight in a single high school in New York City. By the end of the month, both our own Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, and the World Health Organization, or the WHO, had confirmed that we were dealing with a variation of the H1N1 virus. In June, the WHO officially declared the first global pandemic in 40 years. I had more than a passing knowledge of H1N1 after working on U.S. pandemic preparedness when I was in the Senate. What I knew scared the hell out of me. In 1918, a strain of H1N1 that came to be known as the Spanish flu had infected an estimated half a billion people and killed somewhere between 50 and 100 million, roughly 4% of the world's population. In Philadelphia alone, more than 12,000 died in the span of a few weeks. The effects of the pandemic went beyond the stunning death tolls and shutdown of economic activity. Later research would reveal that those who were in utero during the pandemic grew up to have lower incomes, poorer educational outcomes, and higher rates of physical disability. It was too early to tell how deadly this new virus would be, but I wasn't interested in taking any chances. On the same day that Kathleen Sebelius was confirmed as HHS secretary, I sent a plane to pick her up from Kansas, flew her into the Capitol to be sworn in at a makeshift ceremony, and immediately asked her to spearhead a two-hour conference call with WHO officials and health ministers from Mexico and Canada. A few days later, we pulled together an interagency team to evaluate how ready the United States was for a worst-case scenario. The answer was, we weren't at all ready. Annual flu shots didn't provide protection against H1N1, it turned out. And because vaccines generally weren't a moneymaker for drug companies, the few U.S. vaccine makers that existed had a limited capacity to ramp up production of a new one. Then we faced questions of how to distribute antiviral medicines, what guidelines hospitals used in treating cases of the flu, and even how we'd handle the possibility of closing schools and imposing quarantines if things got significantly worse. Several veterans of the Ford administration's 1976 swine flu response team warned us of the difficulties involved in getting out in front of an outbreak without overreacting or triggering a panic. Apparently, President Ford, wanting to act decisively in the middle of a re-election campaign, had fast-tracked mandatory vaccinations before the severity of the pandemic had been determined, with the result that more Americans developed a neurological disorder connected to the vaccine than died from the flu. You need to be involved, Mr. President, one of Ford's staffers advised but you need to let the experts run the process. I put my arm around Sebelius's shoulders. 
You see this? I said, nodding her way. This is the face of the virus. Congratulations, Kathleen. Happy to serve, Mr. President, she said brightly. Happy to serve. My instructions to Kathleen and the public health team were simple. Decisions would be made based on the best available science, and we were going to explain each step of our response to the public, including detailing what we did and didn't know. Over the course of the next six months, we did exactly that. A summertime dip in H1N1 cases gave the team time to work with drug makers and incentivize new processes for quicker vaccine production. They pre-positioned medical supplies across regions and gave hospitals increased flexibility to manage a surge in flu cases. They evaluated and ultimately rejected the idea of closing schools for the rest of the year, but worked with school districts, businesses, and state and local officials to make sure that everyone had the resources they needed to respond in the event of an outbreak. Although the United States did not escape unscathed, more than 12,000 Americans lost their lives. We were fortunate that this particular strain of H1N1 turned out to be less deadly than the experts had feared, and news that the pandemic had abated by mid-2010 didn't generate headlines. Still, I took great pride in how well our team had performed. Without fanfare or fuss, not only had they helped keep the virus contained, but they'd strengthened our readiness for any future public health emergency, which would make all the difference several years later when the Ebola outbreak in West Africa would trigger a full-blown panic. This, I was coming to realize, was the nature of the presidency. Sometimes your most important work involved the stuff nobody noticed. The second turn of events was an opportunity rather than a crisis. At the end of April, Supreme Court Justice David Souter called to tell me he was retiring from the bench giving me my first chance to fill a seat on the highest court in the land. Getting somebody confirmed to the Supreme Court has never been a slam dunk, in part because the court's role in American government has always been controversial. After all, the idea of giving nine unelected, tenured-for-life lawyers in black robes the power to strike down laws passed by a majority of the people's representatives doesn't sound very democratic. But since Marbury versus Madison, the 1803 Supreme Court case that gave the court final say on the meaning of the U.S. Constitution and established the principle of judicial review over the actions of Congress and the President. That's how our system of checks and balances has worked. In theory, Supreme Court justices don't make law when exercising these powers. Instead, they're supposed to merely interpret the Constitution, helping to bridge how its provisions were understood by the framers and how they apply to the world we live in today. For the bulk of constitutional cases coming before the court, the theory holds up pretty well. Justices have, for the most part, felt bound by the text of the Constitution and precedents set by earlier courts, even when doing so results in an outcome they don't personally agree with. Throughout American history, though, the most important cases have involved deciphering the meaning of phrases like due process, privileges and immunities, equal protection, or establishment of religion term so vague, it's doubtful any two founding fathers agreed on exactly what they meant. This ambiguity gives individual justices all kinds of room to, quote, interpret in ways that reflect their moral judgments, political preferences, biases, and fears. That's why in the 1930s, a mostly conservative court could rule that FDR's New Deal policies violated the Constitution, 
while 40 years later, a mostly liberal court could rule that the Constitution grants Congress almost unlimited power to regulate the economy. It's how one set of justices, in Plessy v. Ferguson, could read the Equal Protection Clause to permit, quote, separate but equal, and another set of justices, in Brown v. Board of Education, could rely on the exact same language to unanimously arrive at the opposite conclusion. It turned out that Supreme Court justices made law all the time. Over the years, the press and the public started paying more attention to court decisions and, by extension, to the process of confirming justices. In 1955, Southern Democrats, in a fit of pique over the Brown decision, institutionalized the practice of having Supreme Court nominees appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee to be grilled on their legal views. The 1973 Roe v. Wade decision focused further attention on court appointments, with every nomination from that point on triggering a pitched battle between pro-choice and anti-abortion forces. The high-profile rejection of Robert Bork's nomination in the late 1980s and the Clarence Thomas-Anita Hill hearings in the early 1990s, in which the nominee was accused of sexual harassment, proved to be irresistible TV drama. All of which meant that when it came time for me to replace Justice Souter, identifying a well-qualified candidate was the easy part. The hard part would be getting that person confirmed while avoiding a political circus that could sidetrack our other business. We already had a team of lawyers in place to manage the process of filling scores of lower court vacancies, and they immediately began compiling an exhaustive list of possible Supreme Court candidates. In less than a week, we'd narrowed it down to a few finalists who would be asked to submit to an FBI background check and come to the White House for an interview. The short list included former Harvard Law School Dean and current Solicitor General Elena Kagan and Seventh Circuit Appellate Judge Diane Wood, both first-rate legal scholars whom I knew from my time teaching constitutional law at the University of Chicago. But as I read through the fat briefing books my team had prepared on each candidate, it was someone I'd never met, Second Circuit Appellate Judge Sonia Sotomayor, who most piqued my interest. A Puerto Rican from the Bronx, she'd been raised mostly by her mom, a telephone operator who eventually earned her nurse's license. After her father, a tradesman with a third-grade education, died when Sonia was just nine years old. Despite speaking mostly Spanish at home, Sonia had excelled in parochial school and won a scholarship to Princeton. There, her experiences echoed what Michelle would encounter at the university a decade later. An initial sense of uncertainty and displacement that came with being just one of a handful of women of color on campus. The need to sometimes put in extra work to compensate for the gaps in knowledge that more privileged kids took for granted. The comfort in finding community among other black students and supportive professors. And the realization over time that she was as smart as any of her peers. Sotomayor graduated from Yale Law School and went on to do standout work as a prosecutor in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which helped catapult her to the federal bench. Over the course of nearly 17 years as a judge, she'd developed a reputation for thoroughness, fairness, and restraint, ultimately leading the American Bar Association to give her its highest rating. Still, when word leaked that Sotomayor was among the finalists I was considering, some in the legal priesthood suggested that her credentials were inferior to those of Kagan or Wood, and a number of left-leaning interest groups questioned whether she had the intellectual heft to go toe-to-toe with conservative ideologues like Justice Antonin Scalia. 
maybe because of my own background in legal and academic circles, where I'd met my share of highly credentialed, high IQ morons, and had witnessed firsthand the tendency to move the goalposts when it came to promoting women and people of color, I was quick to dismiss such concerns. Not only were Judge Sotomayor's academic credentials outstanding, but I understood the kind of intelligence, grit, and adaptability required of someone of her background to get where she was. A breadth of experience, familiarity with the vagaries of life, the combination of brains and heart, that, I thought, was where wisdom came from. When asked during the campaign what qualities I'd look for in a Supreme Court nominee, I had talked not only about legal qualifications, but also about empathy. Conservative commentators had scoffed at my answer, citing it as evidence that I planned to load up the court with woolly-headed social engineering liberals who cared nothing about the, quote, objective application of the law. But as far as I was concerned, they had it upside down. It was precisely the ability of a judge to understand the context of his or her decisions, to know what life was like for a pregnant teen as well as for a Catholic priest, a self-made tycoon as well as an assembly line worker, the minority as well as the majority, that was the wellspring of objectivity. There were other considerations that made Sotomayor a compelling choice. She'd be the first Latina, and only the third woman, to serve on the Supreme Court. And she'd already been confirmed twice by the Senate, once unanimously, making it harder for Republicans to argue that she was an unacceptable choice. Given my high regard for Kagan and Wood, I was still undecided when Judge Sotomayor came to the Oval Office for a get-to-know-you session. She had a broad, kind face and a ready smile. Her manner was formal, and she chose her words carefully, though her years at Ivy League schools and on the federal bench hadn't sanded away the Bronx accent. I'd been warned by my team not to ask candidates their positions on specific legal controversies like abortion. Republicans on the committee were sure to ask about any conversation between me and a nominee to see if I had applied a, quote, litmus test in making my choice. Instead, the judge and I talked about her family, her work as a prosecutor, and her broad judicial philosophy. By the end of the interview, I was convinced that Sotomayor had what I was looking for, although I didn't say so on the spot. I did mention that there was one aspect of her resume that I found troubling. What's that, Mr. President? she asked. You're a Yankees fan, I said. But since you grew up in the Bronx and were brainwashed early in life, I'm inclined to overlook it. A few days later, I announced my selection of Sonia Sotomayor as a Supreme Court nominee. The news was positively received, and in the run-up to her appearance before the Senate Judiciary Committee, I was happy to see that Republicans had trouble identifying anything in the judge's written opinions or conduct on the bench that might derail her confirmation. Instead, they fastened on two race-related issues to justify their opposition. The first involved a 2008 case in New Haven, Connecticut, in which Sotomayor joined the majority in ruling against a group of primarily white firefighters who'd filed a reverse discrimination claim. The second issue concerned a 2001 speech Sotomayor had delivered at the University of California, Berkeley, in which she'd argued that female and minority judges added a much-needed perspective to the federal courts, triggering charges from conservatives that she was incapable of impartiality on the bench. Despite the temporary dust-up, the confirmation hearings proved anticlimactic. Justice Sotomayor was confirmed by a Senate vote of 68 to 31, with nine Republicans joining all the Democrats except for Ted Kennedy, 
who was undergoing treatment for his cancer. About as much support as any nominee was likely to get, given the polarized environment we were operating in. Michelle and I hosted a reception for Justice Sotomayor and her family at the White House in August, after she was sworn in. The new justice's mother was there, and I was moved to think what must be going through the mind of this elderly woman who'd grown up on a distant island, who'd barely spoken English when she had signed up for the Women's Army Corps during World War II, and who, despite the odds stacked against her, had insisted that somehow her kids would count for something. It made me think of my own mother and Tootin' Gramps, and I felt a flash of sorrow that none of them had ever had a day like this. They were gone before they'd seen what their dreams for me had come to. Tamping down my emotions as the justice spoke to the audience, I looked over at a pair of handsome young Korean-American boys, Sotomayor's adopted nephews, squirming in their Sunday best. They would take for granted that their aunt was on the U.S. Supreme Court, shaping the life of a nation, as would kids across the country. Which was fine. That's what progress looks like. The slow march towards health care reform consumed much of the summer. As the legislation lumbered through Congress, we looked for any opportunity to help keep the process on track. Since the White House summit in March, members of my health care and legislative teams had participated in countless meetings on the subject up on Capitol Hill, trudging into the Oval at the end of the day like weary field commanders back from the front, offering me reports on the ebb and flow of battle. The good news was that the key Democratic chairs, especially Baucus and Waxman, were working hard to craft bills they could pass out of their respective committees before the traditional August recess. The bad news was that the more everyone dug into the details of reform, the more differences in substance and strategy emerged, not just between Democrats and Republicans, but between House and Senate Democrats, between us and Congressional Democrats, and even between members of my own team. Most of the arguments revolved around the issue of how to generate a mix of savings and new revenue to pay for expanding coverage to millions of uninsured Americans. Because of his own inclinations and his interest in producing a bipartisan bill, Baucus hoped to avoid anything that could be characterized as a tax increase. Instead, he and his staff had calculated the windfall profits that a new flood of insured customers would bring to hospitals, drug companies, and insurers, and had used those figures as a basis for negotiating billions of dollars in upfront contributions through fees or Medicare payment reductions from each industry. To sweeten the deal, Baucus was also prepared to make certain policy concessions. For example, he promised the pharmaceutical lobbyists that his bill wouldn't include provisions allowing the reimportation of drugs from Canada, a popular Democratic proposal that highlighted the way Canadian and European government-run healthcare systems used their massive bargaining power to negotiate much cheaper prices than Big Pharma charged inside the United States. Politically and emotionally, I would have found it a lot more satisfying to just go after the drug and insurance companies and see if we could beat them into submission. They were wildly unpopular with voters, and for good reason. But as a practical matter, it was hard to argue with Baucus's more conciliatory approach. We had no way to get to 60 votes in the Senate for a major health care bill without at least the tacit agreement of the big industry players. Drug reimportation was a great political issue. But at the end of the day, we didn't have the votes for it, partly because plenty of Democrats had major pharmaceutical companies headquartered 
or operating in their states. With these realities in mind, I signed off on having Rom, Nancy Ann, and Jim Messina, who'd once been on Baucus's staff, sit in on Baucus's negotiations with healthcare industry representatives. By the end of June, they'd hashed out a deal, securing hundreds of billions of dollars in givebacks and broader drug discounts for seniors using Medicare. Just as important, they'd gotten a commitment from the hospitals, insurers, and drug companies to support, or at least not oppose, the emerging bill. It was a big hurdle to clear, a case of politics as the art of the possible. But for some of the more liberal Democrats in the House, where no one had to worry about a filibuster, and among progressive advocacy groups that were still hoping to lay the groundwork for a single-payer health care system, our compromises smacked of capitulation, a deal with the devil. It didn't help that, as Rahm had predicted, none of the negotiations with the industry had been broadcast on C-SPAN. The press started reporting on details of what they would call, quote, backroom deals. More than a few constituents wrote in to ask whether I'd gone over to the dark side. And Chairman Waxman made a point of saying he didn't consider his work bound by whatever concessions Baucus or the White House had made to industry lobbyists. Quick as they were to mount their high horse, House Dems were also more than willing to protect the status quo when it threatened their prerogatives or benefited politically influential constituencies. For example, more or less every healthcare economist agreed that it wasn't enough just to pry money out of insurance and drug company profits and use it to cover more people. In order for reform to work, we also had to do something about the skyrocketing costs charged by doctors and hospitals. Otherwise, any new money we put into the system would yield less and less care for fewer and fewer people over time. One of the best ways to, quote, bend the cost curve was to establish an independent board, shielded from politics and special interest lobbying, that would set reimbursement rates for Medicare based on the comparative effectiveness of particular treatments. House Democrats hated the idea. It would mean giving away their power to determine what Medicare did and didn't cover along with the potential campaign fundraising opportunities that came with that power. They also worried that they'd get blamed by cranky seniors who found themselves unable to get the latest drug or diagnostic test advertised on TV, even if an expert could prove that it was actually a waste of money. They were similarly skeptical of the other big proposal to control costs, a cap on the tax deductibility of so-called Cadillac insurance plans, high cost employer-provided policies that paid for all sorts of premium services but didn't improve health outcomes. Other than corporate managers and well-paid professionals, the main group covered by such plans were union members, and the unions were adamantly opposed to what would come to be known as, quote, the Cadillac tax. It didn't matter to labor leaders that their members might be willing to trade a deluxe hospital suite or a second unnecessary MRI for a chance at higher take-home pay. They didn't trust that any savings from reform would accrue to their members, and they were absolutely certain they'd catch flack for any changes to their existing health care plans. Unfortunately, so long as the unions were opposed to the Cadillac tax, most House Democrats were going to be too. The squabbles quickly found their way into the press, making the whole process appear messy and convoluted. By late July, Polls showed that more Americans disapproved than approved of the way I was handling health care reform, prompting me to complain to Axe about our communications strategy. 
We're on the right side of this stuff, I insisted. We just have to explain it better to voters. Axe was irritated that his shop was seemingly getting blamed for the very problem he'd warned me about from the start. You can explain it till you're blue in the face, he told me, but people who already have health care are skeptical that reform will benefit them, and a whole bunch of facts and figures won't change that. Unconvinced, I decided I needed to be more public in selling our agenda, which is how I found myself in a primetime press conference devoted to health care, facing an East Room full of White House reporters, many of whom were already writing the obituary on my number one legislative initiative. In general, I enjoyed the unscripted nature of live press conferences. And unlike the first healthcare forum during the campaign, in which I'd laid an egg as Hillary and John Edwards shined, I now knew my subject cold. In fact, I probably knew it too well. During the press conference, I succumbed to an old pattern, giving exhaustive explanations of each facet of the issue under debate. It was as if, having failed to get the various negotiations involving the bill on C-SPAN, I was going to make up for it by offering the public a one-hour, highly detailed crash course on U.S. healthcare policy. The press corps didn't much appreciate the thoroughness. One news story made a point of noting that at times I adopted a, quote, professorial tone. Perhaps that was why, when the time came for the last question, Lynn Sweet, a veteran Chicago Sun-Times reporter I'd known for years, decided to ask me something entirely off the topic. Recently. Lynn said, Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. was arrested at his home in Cambridge. What does that incident say to you, and what does it say about race relations in America? Where to start? Henry Louis Gates Jr. was a professor of English and Afro-American studies at Harvard and one of the country's most prominent black scholars. He was also a casual friend, someone I'd occasionally run into at social gatherings. Earlier that week, Gates had returned to his home in Cambridge after a trip to China and found his front door jammed shut. A neighbor, having witnessed Gates trying to force the door open, called the police to report a possible break-in. When the responding officer, Sergeant James Crowley, arrived, he asked Gates for identification. Gates refused at first, and according to Crowley, called him racist. Eventually, Gates produced his identification but allegedly continued to berate the departing officer from his porch. When a warning failed to quiet Gates down, Crowley and two other officers that he'd called for backup handcuffed him, took him to the police station, and booked him for disorderly conduct. The charges were quickly dropped. Predictably, the incident had become a national story. For a big swath of white America, Gates's arrest was entirely deserved a simple case of someone not showing the proper respect for a routine law enforcement procedure. For blacks, it was just one more example of the humiliations and inequities, large and small, suffered at the hands of the police specifically and white authority in general. My own guess as to what had happened was more particular, more human, than the simple black and white morality tale being portrayed. Having lived in Cambridge, I knew that its police department didn't have a reputation for harboring a whole bunch of Bull Connor types. Meanwhile, Skip, as Gates was known to his friends, was brilliant and loud, one part W.E.B. Du Bois, one part Mars Blackman, and cocky enough that I could easily picture him cussing out a cop to the point where even a relatively restrained officer might feel his testosterone kick in. Still, while no one had been hurt, I found the episode depressing. 
a vivid reminder that not even the highest level of black achievement and the most accommodating of white settings could escape the cloud of our racial history. Hearing about what had happened to Gates, I found myself almost involuntarily conducting a quick inventory of my own experiences. The multiple occasions when I'd been asked for my student ID while walking to the library on Columbia's campus, something that never seemed to happen to my white classmates. The unmerited traffic stops while visiting certain, quote, nice Chicago neighborhoods. Being followed around by department store security guards while doing my Christmas shopping. The sound of car locks clicking as I walked across the street, dressed in a suit and tie in the middle of the day. Moments like these were routine among black friends, acquaintances, guys in the barbershop. If you were poor or working class or lived in a rough neighborhood or didn't properly signify being a respectable Negro, the stories were usually worse. For just about every black man in the country and every woman who loved a black man and every parent of a black boy, it was not a matter of paranoia or, quote, playing the race card or disrespecting law enforcement to conclude that whatever else had happened that day in Cambridge, this much was almost certainly true. A wealthy, famous, 5'6", 140-pound, 58-year-old white Harvard professor who walked with a cane because of a childhood leg injury would not have been handcuffed and taken down to the station merely for being rude to a cop who'd forced him to produce some form of identification while standing on his own damn property. Of course, I didn't say all that. Maybe I should have. Instead, I made what I thought were some pretty unremarkable observations, beginning with the acknowledgement that the police had responded appropriately to the 911 call, and also that Gates was a friend, which meant I might be biased. I don't know, not having been there and not seeing all the facts, what role race played in that, I said. But I think it's fair to say, number one, any one of us would be pretty angry. Number two, that the Cambridge police acted stupidly in arresting somebody when there was already proof that they were in their own home. And number three, what I think we know, separate and apart from this incident, is that there is a long history in this country of African Americans and Latinos being stopped by law enforcement disproportionately. That was it. I left the evening press conference assuming that my four minutes on the Gates affair would be a brief sidebar to the hour I'd spend on healthcare. Boy, was I wrong. The next morning, my suggestion that the police had acted, quote, stupidly, led every news broadcast. Police union representatives suggested that I had vilified Officer Crowley and law enforcement in general and were demanding an apology. Anonymous sources claimed that strings had been pulled to get Gates's charges dropped without a court appearance. Conservative media outlets barely hid their glee, portraying my comments as a case of an elitist, professorial uppity, black president, siding with his well-connected, mouthy, race-card-wielding Harvard friend over a white working-class cop who was just doing his job. In the Daily White House press briefing, Gibbs fielded questions on little else. Afterward, he asked whether I'd consider issuing a clarification. What am I clarifying? I asked. I thought I was pretty clear the first time. The way it's being consumed, people think you call the police stupid. I didn't say they were stupid. I said they acted stupidly. There's a difference. I get it, but we're not doing a clarification, I said. It'll blow over. The next day, though, it hadn't blown over. Instead, the story had completely swamped everything else, including our healthcare message. Fielding nervous calls from Democrats on the Hill, 
Rom looked like he was ready to jump off a bridge. You would have thought that in the press conference, I had donned a dashiki and cussed out the police myself. Eventually, I agreed to a damage control plan. I began by calling Sergeant Crowley to let him know I was sorry for having used the word stupidly. He was gracious and good-humored, and at some point I suggested that he and Gates come visit the White House. The three of us could have a beer, I said, and show the country that good people could get past misunderstandings. Both Crowley and Gates, who I called immediately afterward, were enthusiastic about the idea. In a press briefing later that day, I told reporters that I continued to believe that the police had overreacted in arresting Gates, just as the professor had overreacted to their arrival at his home. I acknowledged that I could have calibrated my original comments more carefully. Much later, I'd learned through David Seamus, our in-house polling guru and Axe's deputy, that the Gates affair caused a huge drop in my support among white voters, bigger than would come from any single event during the eight years of my presidency. It was support that I'd never completely get back. Six days later, Joe Biden and I sat down with Sergeant Crowley and Skip Gates at the White House for what came to be known as the Beer Summit. It was a low-key, friendly, and slightly stilted affair. As I'd expected based on our phone conversation, Crowley came across as a thoughtful, decent man, while Skip was on his best behavior. For an hour or so, the four of us talked about our upbringings, our work, and ways to improve trust and communication between police officers and the African-American community. When our time was up, both Crowley and Gates expressed appreciation for the tours my staff had given their families, though I joked that next time they could probably find easier ways to score an invitation. After they were gone, I sat alone in the Oval Office, reflecting on it all. Michelle, friends like Valerie and Marty, black senior officials like Attorney General Eric Holder, Ambassador to the U.N. Susan Rice, and U.S. Trade Representative Ron Kirk. We were all accustomed to running the obstacle course necessary to be effective inside of predominantly white institutions. We'd grown skilled at suppressing our reactions to minor slights, ever ready to give white colleagues the benefit of the doubt, remaining mindful that all but the most careful discussions of race risk triggering in them a mild panic. Still, the reaction to my comments on Gates surprised us all. It was my first indicator of how the issue of black folks and the police was more polarizing than just about any other subject in American life. It seemed to tap into some of the deepest undercurrents of our nation's psyche, touching on the rawest of nerves, perhaps because it reminded all of us, black and white alike, that the basis of our nation's social order had never been simply about consent, that it was also about centuries of state-sponsored violence by whites against black and brown people and that who controlled legally sanctioned violence, how it was wielded, and against whom, still mattered in the recesses of our tribal minds, much more than we cared to admit. My thoughts were interrupted by Valerie, who poked her head in to check on me. She said that the coverage of the beer summit had been generally positive, although she admitted to having received a bunch of calls from black supporters who weren't happy. They don't understand why we'd bend over backward to make Crowley feel welcome, she said. What'd you tell them? I asked. I said the whole thing has become a distraction, and you're focused on governing and getting health care passed. I nodded. And our black folks on staff? How are they doing? Valerie shrugged. The younger ones are a little discouraged, but they get it. With all you've got on your plate, they just don't like seeing you being put in this position. Which position? I said. Being black 
or being president. We both got a good laugh out of that. Chapter 17 By the end of July 2009, some version of the health care bill had passed out of all the relevant House committees. The Senate Health and Education Committee had completed its work as well. All that remained was getting a bill through Max Baucus's Senate Finance Committee. Once that was done, we could consolidate the different versions into one House and one Senate bill, ideally passing each before the August recess, with the goal of having a final version of the legislation on my desk for signature before the end of the year. No matter how hard we pressed, though, we couldn't get Baucus to complete his work. I was sympathetic to his reasons for delay. Unlike the other Democratic committee chairs who'd passed their bills on straight party-line votes without regard for the Republicans, Baucus continued to hope that he could produce a bipartisan bill. But as summer wore on, that optimism began to look delusional. McConnell and Boehner had already announced their vigorous opposition to our legislative efforts, arguing that it represented an attempted, quote, government takeover of the healthcare system. Frank Luntz, a well-known Republican strategist, had circulated a memo stating that after market testing no fewer than 40 anti-reform messages, he concluded that invoking a government takeover was the best way to discredit the healthcare legislation. From that point on, conservatives followed the script, repeating the phrase like an incantation. Senator Jim DeMint, the conservative firebrand from South Carolina, was more transparent about his party's intentions. If we're able to stop Obama on this, he announced on a nationwide conference call with conservative activists, it will be his Waterloo. It will break him. Unsurprisingly, given the atmosphere, the group of three GOP senators who'd been invited to participate in bipartisan talks with Baucus was now down to two, Chuck Grassley and Olympia Snow, the moderate from Maine. My team and I did everything we could to help Baucus win their support. I had Grassley and Snow over to the White House repeatedly and called them every few weeks to take their temperature. We signed off on scores of changes they wanted made to Baucus's draft bill. Nancy Ann became a permanent fixture in their Senate offices and took Snow out to dinner so often that we joked that her husband was getting jealous. Tell Olympia she can write the whole damn bill, I said to Nancy Ann as she was leaving for one such meeting. We'll call it the Snow Plan. Tell her, if she votes for the bill, she can have the White House. Michelle and I will move to an apartment. And still we were getting nowhere. Snow took pride in her centrist reputation, and she cared deeply about health care. She had been orphaned at the age of nine, losing her parents in rapid succession to cancer and heart disease. But the Republican Party's sharp rightward tilt had left her increasingly isolated within her own caucus, making her even more cautious than usual, prone to wrapping her indecision in the guise of digging into policy minutiae. Grassley was a different story. He talked a good game about wanting to help the family farmers back in Iowa who had trouble getting insurance they could count on. And when Hillary Clinton had pushed health care reform in the 1990s, he'd actually co-sponsored an alternative that in many ways resembled the Massachusetts-style plan we were proposing, complete with an individual mandate. But unlike Snow, Grassley rarely bucked his party leadership on tough issues. With his long hangdog face and throaty Midwestern drawl, he'd ham and haw about this or that problem he had with the bill without ever telling us what exactly it would take to get him to yes. Phil's conclusion was that Grassley was just stringing Baucus along at McConnell's behest, 
trying to stall the process and prevent us from moving on to the rest of our agenda. Even I, the resident White House optimist, finally got fed up and asked Baucus to come by for a visit. Time's up, Max, I told him in the Oval during a meeting in late July. You've given it your best shot. Grassley's gone. He just hasn't broken the news to you yet. Baucus shook his head. I'd respectfully disagree, Mr. President, he said. I know Chuck. I think we're this close to getting him. He held his thumb and index finger an inch apart, smiling at me like someone who's discovered a cure for cancer and is forced to deal with foolish skeptics. Let's just give Chuck a little more time and have the vote when we get back from recess. A part of me wanted to get up, grab Baucus by the shoulders, and shake him till he came to his senses. I decided that this wouldn't work. Another part of me considered threatening to withhold my political support the next time he ran for re-election. But since he polled higher than I did in his home state of Montana, I figured that wouldn't work either. Instead, I argued and cajoled for another half hour, finally agreeing to his plan to delay an immediate party-line vote and instead call the bill to a vote within the first two weeks of Congress's reconvening in September. With the House and the Senate adjourned, and both votes still looming, we decided I'd spend the first two weeks of August on the road, holding healthcare town halls in places like Montana, Colorado, and Arizona, where public support for reform was shakiest. As a sweetener, my team suggested that Michelle and the girls join me, and that we visit some national parks along the way. I was thrilled by the suggestion. It's not as if Malia and Sasha were deprived of fatherly attention or in need of extra summer fun. They'd had plenty of both, with playdates and movies and a whole lot of loafing. Often, I'd come home in the evening and go up to the third floor to find the solarium overtaken by pajama-clad 8- or 11-year-old girls settling in for a sleepover, bouncing on inflatable mattresses, scattering popcorn and toys everywhere, giggling nonstop at whatever was on Nickelodeon. But as much as Michelle and I, with the help of infinitely patient Secret Service agents, tried to approximate a normal childhood for my daughters, it was hard, if not impossible, for me to take them places like an ordinary dad would. We couldn't go to an amusement park together, making an impromptu stop for burgers along the way. I couldn't take them as I once had on lazy Sunday afternoon bike rides. A trip to get ice cream or a visit to a bookstore was now a major production, involving road closures, tactical teams, and the omnipresent press pool. If the girls felt a sense of loss over this, they didn't show it. But I felt it acutely. I especially mourned the fact that I'd probably never get a chance to take Malia and Sasha on the sort of long summer road trip I'd made when I was 11, after my mother and toot decided it was time for Maya and me to see the mainland of the United States. It had lasted a month and burned a lasting impression into my mind and not just because we went to Disneyland, although that was obviously outstanding. We had dug for clams during low tide in Puget Sound, ridden horses through a creek at the base of Canyon de Chez in Arizona, watched the endless Kansas prairie unfold from a train window, spotted a herd of bison on a dusky plain in Yellowstone, and ended each day with the simple pleasures of a motel ice machine, the occasional swimming pool, or just air conditioning and clean sheets. That one trip gave me a glimpse of the dizzying freedom of the open road, how vast America was, and how full of wonder. I couldn't duplicate that experience for my daughters, not when we flew on Air Force One 
rode in motorcades, and never bunked down in a place like Howard Johnson's. Getting from point A to point B happened too fast and too comfortably. The days were too stuffed with pre-scheduled, staff-monitored activity, absent that familiar mix of surprises, misadventures, and boredom to fully qualify as a road trip. But over the course of an August week, Michelle, the girls, and I had fun all the same. We watched Old Faithful blow and looked out over the ochre expanse of the Grand Canyon. The girls went intertubing. At night, we played board games and tried to name the constellations. Tucking the girls into bed, I hoped that despite all the fuss that surrounded us, their minds were storing away a vision of life's possibilities and the beauty of the American landscape, just as mine once had, and that they might someday think back on our trips together and be reminded that they were so worthy of love, so fascinating and electric with life, that there was nothing their parents would rather do than share those vistas with them. Of course, one of the things Malia and Sasha had to put up with on our trip out west was their dad peeling off every other day to appear before large crowds and TV cameras and talk about health care. The town halls themselves weren't very different from the ones I'd held earlier in the spring. People shared stories about how the existing healthcare system had failed their families and asked questions about how the emerging bill might affect their own insurance. Even those who opposed our effort listened attentively to what I had to say. Outside, though, the atmosphere was very different. We were in the middle of what came to be known as the Tea Party Summer, an organized effort to marry people's honest fears about a changing America with a right-wing political agenda. Heading to and from every venue, we were greeted by dozens of angry protesters. Some shouted through bullhorns. Others flashed a single-fingered salute. Many held up signs with messages like, Obamacare sucks. Or the unintentionally ironic, keep government out of my Medicare. Some waved doctored pictures of me looking like Heath Ledger's Joker in the dark night, with blackened eyes and thickly caked makeup, appearing almost demonic. Still others wore colonial-era patriot costumes and hoisted the don't-tread-on-me flag. All of them seemed most interested in expressing their general contempt for me, a sentiment best summed up by a refashioning of the famous Shepherd Fairy poster from our campaign. The same red, white, and blue rendering of my face, but with the word hope replaced by nope. This new and suddenly potent force in American politics had started months earlier as a handful of ragtag, small-scale protests against TARP and the Recovery Act. A number of the early participants had apparently migrated from the quixotic, libertarian presidential campaign of Republican Congressman Ron Paul, who called for the elimination of the federal income tax and the Federal Reserve, a return to the gold standard, and withdrawal from the U.N. and NATO. Rick Santelli's notorious television rant against our housing proposal back in February had provided a catchy rallying cry for the loose network of conservative activists, and soon websites and email chains had begun spawning bigger rallies, with Tea Party chapters proliferating across the country. In those early months, they hadn't had enough traction to stop the stimulus package from passing, and a national protest on tax day in April hadn't amounted to much. But helped by endorsements from conservative media personalities like Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck, the movement was picking up steam with local and then national Republican politicians embracing the Tea Party label. 
By summer, the group was focused on stopping the abomination they dubbed, quote, Obamacare, which they insisted would introduce a socialistic, oppressive new order to America. As I was conducting my own relatively sedate healthcare town halls out west, newscasts started broadcasting scenes from parallel congressional events around the country, with House and Senate members suddenly confronted by angry, heckling crowds in their home districts and with Tea Party members deliberately disrupting the proceedings rattling some of the politicians enough that they were canceling public appearances altogether. It was hard for me to decide what to make of all this. The Tea Party's anti-tax, anti-regulation, anti-government manifesto was hardly new. Its basic storyline, the corrupt liberal elites had hijacked the federal government to take money out of the pockets of hard-working Americans in order to finance welfare patronage and reward corporate cronies, was one that Republican politicians and conservative media had been peddling for years. Nor, it turned out, was the Tea Party the spontaneous, grassroots movement it purported to be. From the outset, Koch brother affiliates like Americans for Prosperity, along with other billionaire conservatives who'd been part of the Indian Wells gathering hosted by the Kochs just after I was inaugurated, had carefully nurtured the movement by registering Internet domain names and obtaining rally permits training organizers and sponsoring conferences, and ultimately providing much of the Tea Party's financing, infrastructure, and strategic direction. Still, there was no denying that the Tea Party represented a genuine populist surge within the Republican Party. It was made up of true believers, possessed with the same grassroots enthusiasm and jagged fury we'd seen in Sarah Palin's supporters during the closing days of the campaign. Some of that anger I understood even if I considered it misdirected. Many of the working and middle-class whites gravitating to the Tea Party had suffered for decades from sluggish wages, rising costs, and the loss of steady blue-collar work that provided secure retirements. Bush and establishment Republicans hadn't done anything for them, and the financial crisis had further hollowed out their communities. And so far, at least, the economy had gotten steadily worse with me in charge despite more than a trillion dollars channeled into stimulus spending and bailouts. For those already predisposed towards conservative ideas, the notion that my policies were designed to help others at their expense, that the game was rigged and I was part of the rigging, must have seemed entirely plausible. I also had a grudging respect for how rapidly Tea Party leaders had mobilized a strong following and managed to dominate the news coverage, using some of the same social media and grassroots organizing strategies we'd deployed during my own campaign. I'd spent my entire political career promoting civic participation as a cure for much of what ailed our democracy. I could hardly complain, I told myself, just because it was opposition to my agenda that was now spurring such passionate citizen involvement. As time went on, though, it became hard to ignore some of the more troubling impulses driving the movement. As had been true at Palin rallies, reporters at Tea Party events caught attendees comparing me to animals, or Hitler. Signs turned up showing me dressed like an African witch doctor with a bone through my nose, and the caption, Obamacare coming soon to a clinic near you. Conspiracy theories abounded, that my health care bill would set up, quote, death panels to evaluate whether people deserve treatment, clearing the way for government-encouraged euthanasia, or that it would benefit illegal immigrants in the service of my larger goal of flooding the country with welfare-dependent, reliably democratic voters. The Tea Party also resurrected and poured gas on an old rumor from the campaign that not only was I Muslim, but I'd actually been born in Kenya 
and was therefore constitutionally barred from serving as president. By September, the question of how much nativism and racism explained the Tea Party's rise became a major topic of debate on the cable shows, especially after former president and lifelong Southerner Jimmy Carter offered up the opinion that the extreme vitriol directed toward me was at least in part spawned by racist views. At the White House, we made a point of not commenting on any of this, not just because Axe had reams of data telling us that white voters, including many who supported me, reacted poorly to lectures about race. As a matter of principle, I didn't believe a president should ever publicly whine about criticism from voters. It's what you signed up for in taking the job. And I was quick to remind both reporters and friends that my white predecessors had all endured their share of vicious personal attacks and obstructionism. More practically, I saw no way to sort out people's motives, especially given that racial attitudes were woven into every aspect of our nation's history. Did that Tea Party member support states' rights because he genuinely thought it was the best way to promote liberty, or because he continued to resent how federal intervention had led to an end to Jim Crow, desegregation, and rising black political power in the South? Did that conservative activist oppose any expansion of the social welfare state because she believed it sapped individual initiative or because she was convinced that it would benefit only brown people who'd just crossed the border? Whatever my instincts might tell me, whatever truths the history books might suggest, I knew I wasn't going to win over any voters by labeling my opponents racist. One thing felt certain. A pretty big chunk of the American people including some of the very folks I was trying to help, didn't trust a word I said. One night around then, I watched a news report on a charitable organization called Remote Area Medical that provided medical services in temporary pop-up clinics around the country, operating out of trailers parked outside arenas and fairgrounds. Almost all the patients in the report were white Southerners from places like Tennessee, Georgia, and West Virginia men and women who had jobs but no employer-based insurance or had insurance with deductibles they couldn't afford. Many had driven hundreds of miles, some sleeping in their cars overnight, leaving the engines running to stay warm, to join hundreds of other people lined up before dawn to see one of the volunteer doctors who might pull an infected tooth, diagnose debilitating abdominal pain, or examine a lump in their breast. The demand was so great that patients who arrived after sunup sometimes got turned away. I found the story both heartbreaking and maddening, an indictment of a wealthy nation that failed too many of its citizens. And yet I knew that almost every one of those people waiting to see a free doctor came from a deep red Republican district, the sort of place where opposition to our health care bill, along with support of the Tea Party, was likely to be strongest. There had been a time back when I was still a state senator driving around southern Illinois or later traveling through rural Iowa during the earliest days of the presidential campaign, when I could reach such voters. I wasn't yet well known enough to be the target of caricature, which meant that whatever preconceptions people may have had about a black guy from Chicago with a foreign name could be dispelled by some simple conversation, a small gesture of kindness. After sitting down with folks in a diner or hearing their complaints at a county fair, I might not get their vote or even agreement on most issues, but we would at least make a connection, and we'd come away from such encounters understanding that we had hopes, struggles, and values in common. I wondered if any of that was still possible, now that I lived locked behind gates and guardsmen, 
My image filtered through Fox News and other media outlets whose entire business model depended on making their audience angry and fearful. I wanted to believe that the ability to connect was still there. My wife wasn't so sure. One night toward the end of our road trip, after we tucked the girls in, Michelle caught a glimpse of a Tea Party rally on TV with its enraged flag-waving and inflammatory slogans. She seized the remote and turned off the set, her expression hovering somewhere between rage and resignation. It's a trip, isn't it, she said. What is? That they're scared of you. Scared of us. She shook her head and headed for bed. Ted Kennedy died on August 25th. The morning of his funeral, the skies over Boston darkened, and by the time our flight landed, the streets were shrouded in thick sheets of rain. The scene inside the church befitted the largeness of Teddy's life. The pews packed with former presidents and heads of state, senators and members of Congress, hundreds of current and former staffers, the honor guard, and the flag-draped casket. But it was the stories told by his family, most of all his children, that mattered most that day. Patrick Kennedy recalled his father attending to him during crippling asthma attacks, pressing a cold towel to his forehead until he fell asleep. He described how his father would take him out to sail, even in stormy seas. Teddy Jr. told the story of how, after he'd lost his leg to cancer, his father had insisted they go sledding, trudging with him up a snowy hill, picking him up when he fell, and wiping away his tears when he wanted to give up the two of them eventually getting to the top and racing down the snowy banks. It had been proof, Teddy Jr. said, that his world had not stopped. Collectively, it was a portrait of a man driven by great appetites and ambitions, but also by great loss and doubt. A man making up for things. My father believed in redemption, Teddy Jr. said, and he never surrendered, never stopped trying to right wrongs, be they the result of his own failings or of ours. I carried those words with me back to Washington, where a mood of surrender increasingly prevailed, at least when it came to getting a health care bill passed. The Tea Party had accomplished what it had set out to do, generating reams of negative publicity for our efforts, stoking public fear that reform would be too costly, too disruptive, or would help only the poor. A preliminary report by the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, the independent, professionally-staffed operation charged with scoring the cost of all federal legislation priced the initial House version of the health care bill at an eye-popping $1 trillion. Although the CBO score would eventually come down as the bill was revised and clarified, the headlines gave opponents a handy stick with which to beat us over the head. Democrats from swing districts were now running scared, convinced that pushing forward with the bill amounted to a suicide mission. Republicans abandoned all pretense of wanting to negotiate, with members of Congress regularly echoing the Tea Party's claim that I wanted to put Grandma to sleep. The only upside to all this was that it helped me cure Max Baucus of his obsession with trying to placate Chuck Grassley. In a last stab Oval Office meeting with the two of them in early September, I listened patiently as Grassley ticked off five new reasons why he still had problems with the latest version of the bill. Let me ask you a question, Chuck, I said finally. If Max took every one of your latest suggestions, could you support the bill? Well, are there any changes, any at all, that would get us your vote? There was an awkward silence before Grassley looked up and met my gaze.
I guess not, Mr. President. I guess not. At the White House, the mood rapidly darkened. Some of my team began asking whether it was time to fold our hand. Rom was especially dour. Having been to this rodeo before with Bill Clinton, he understood all too well what my declining poll numbers might mean for the re-election prospects of swing district Democrats, many of whom he'd personally recruited and helped elect, not to mention how it could damage my own prospects in 2012. Discussing our options in a senior staff meeting, Rahm advised that we try to cut a deal with the Republicans for a significantly scaled-back piece of legislation, perhaps allowing people between 60 and 65 to buy into Medicare or widening the reach of the Children's Health Insurance Program. It won't be everything you wanted, Mr. President, he said, but it'll still help a lot of people and it'll give us a better chance to make progress on the rest of your agenda. Some in the room agreed. Others felt it was too early to give up. After reviewing his conversations on Capitol Hill, Phil Shaliro said he thought there was still a path to passing a comprehensive law with only Democratic votes, but he admitted that it was no sure thing. I guess the question for you, Mr. President, is do you feel lucky? I looked at him and smiled. Where are we, Phil? Phil hesitated, wondering if it was a trick question. The Oval Office? And what's my name? Barack Obama? I smiled. Barack Hussein Obama, and I'm here with you in the Oval Office. Brother, I always feel lucky. I told the team we were staying the course. But honestly, my decision didn't have much to do with how lucky I felt. Rahm wasn't wrong about the risks. And perhaps in a different political environment, on a different issue, I might have accepted his idea of negotiating with the GOP for half a loaf. On this issue, though, I saw no indication that Republican leaders would throw us a lifeline. We were wounded. Their base wanted blood. And no matter how modest the reform we proposed, they were sure to find a whole new set of reasons for not working with us. More than that, a scaled-down bill wasn't going to help millions of people who were desperate, people like Laura Klitska in Green Bay. The idea of letting them down of leaving them to fend for themselves because their president hadn't been sufficiently brave, skilled, or persuasive to cut through the political noise and get what he knew to be the right thing done was something I couldn't stomach. At that point, I'd held town hall meetings in eight states, explaining in both broad and intricate terms what healthcare reform could mean. I'd taken phone calls from AARP members on live television fielding questions about everything from Medicare coverage gaps to living wills. Late at night in the treaty room, I pored over the continuing flow of memos and spreadsheets, making sure I understood the finer points of risk corridors and reinsurance caps. If I sometimes grew despondent, even angry, over the amount of misinformation that had flooded the airwaves, I was grateful for my team's willingness to push harder and not give up, even when the battle got ugly and the odds remained long such tenacity drove the entire White House staff. Dennis McDonough at one point distributed stickers to everyone, emblazoned with the words, Fight Cynicism. This became a useful slogan, an article of our faith. Knowing we had to try something big to reset the health care debate, Axe suggested I deliver a primetime address before a joint session of Congress. It was a high-stakes gambit, he explained, used only twice in the past 16 years but it would give me a chance to speak directly to millions of viewers. 
I asked what the other two joint addresses had been about. The most recent was when Bush announced the war on terror after 9-11. And the other? Bill Clinton talking about his health care bill. I laughed. <laughs> well, that worked out great, didn't it? Despite the inauspicious precedent, we decided it was worth a shot. Two days after Labor Day, Michelle and I climbed into the back seat of the beast, drove up to the Capitol's east entrance, and retraced the steps we'd taken seven months earlier to the doors of the House chamber. The announcement by the sergeant-at-arms, the lights, television cameras, applause, handshakes at the center aisle. On the surface, at least, everything appeared as it had in February. But the mood in the chamber felt different this time. The smiles a little forced, a murmur of tension and doubt in the air. Maybe it was just my mood was different. Whatever giddiness or sense of personal triumph I'd felt shortly after taking office had now been burned away, replaced by something sturdier, a determination to see a job through. For an hour that evening, I explained as straightforwardly as I could what our reform proposals would mean for the families who are watching, how it would provide affordable insurance to those who needed it, but also give critical protections to those who already had insurance, how it would prevent insurance companies from discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions, and eliminate the kind of lifetime limits that burden families like Laura Klitschka's. I detailed how the plan would help seniors pay for life-saving drugs and require insurers to cover routine checkups and preventive care at no extra charge. I explained that the talk about a government takeover and death panels was nonsense, that the legislation wouldn't add a dime to the deficit, and that the time to make this happen was now. A few days earlier, I'd received a letter from Ted Kennedy. He had written it back in May, but had instructed Vicky to wait until after his death to pass it along. It was a farewell letter, two pages long, in which he thanked me for taking up the cause of healthcare reform, referring to it as that great unfinished business of our society and the cause of his life. He added that he would die with some comfort, believing that what he'd spent years working toward would now, under my watch, finally happen. So I ended my speech that night by quoting from Teddy's letter, hoping that his words would bolster the nation just as they had bolstered me. What we face, he'd written, is above all a moral issue. At stake are not just the details of policy, but fundamental principles of social justice and the character of our country. According to the poll data, my address to Congress boosted public support for the health care bill, at least temporarily. Even more important for our purposes, it seemed to stiffen the spine of wavering congressional Democrats. It did not, however, change the mind of a single Republican in the chamber. This was clear less than 30 minutes into the speech, when, as I debunked the phony claim that the bill would ensure undocumented immigrants, a relatively obscure five-term Republican congressman from South Carolina named Joe Wilson leaned forward in his seat, pointed in my direction, and shouted, his face flushed with fury, You lie! For the briefest second, a stunned silence fell over the chamber. I turned to look for the heckler, as did Speaker Pelosi and Joe Biden, Nancy aghast and Joe shaking his head. I was tempted to exit my perch, make my way down the aisle, and smack the guy in the head. Instead, I simply responded by saying, it's not true, 
and then carried on with my speech as Democrats hurled booze in Wilson's direction. As far as anyone could remember, nothing like that had ever happened before at a joint session address, at least not in modern times. Congressional criticism was swift and bipartisan, and by the next morning, Wilson had apologized publicly for the breach of decorum, calling Rahm and asking that his regrets get passed on to me as well. I downplayed the matter, telling a reporter that I appreciated the apology and was a big believer that we all make mistakes. And yet I couldn't help noticing the news reports, saying that online contributions to Wilson's re-election campaign spiked sharply in the week following his outburst. Apparently, for a lot of Republican voters out there, he was a hero, speaking truth to power. It was an indication that the Tea Party and its media allies had accomplished more than just their goal of demonizing the health care bill. They had demonized me, and in doing so, had delivered a message to all Republican officeholders. When it came to opposing my administration, the old rules no longer applied. Despite having grown up in Hawaii, I have never learned to sail a boat. It wasn't a pastime my family could afford. And yet, for the next three and a half months, I felt the way I imagine sailors feel on the open seas after a brutal storm has passed. The work remained arduous and sometimes monotonous, made tougher by the need to patch leaks and bale water. Maintaining speed and course in the constantly shifting winds and currents required patience, skill, and attention. But for a span of time, we had in us the thankfulness of survivors, propelled in our daily tasks by a renewed belief that we might make it to port after all. For starters, after months of delay, Baucus finally opened debate on a health care bill in the Senate Finance Committee. His version, which tracked the Massachusetts model we'd all been using, was stingier with its subsidies to the uninsured than we would have preferred, and we insisted that he replace a tax on all employer-based insurance plans with increased taxes on the wealthy. But to everyone's credit, the deliberations were generally substantive and free of grandstanding. After three weeks of exhaustive work, the bill passed out of committee by a 14-9 margin. Olympia Snow even decided to vote yes, giving us a lone Republican vote. Speaker Pelosi then engineered the quick passage of a consolidated House bill over uniform and boisterous GOP opposition, with a vote held on November 7, 2009. The bill had actually been ready for some time, but Nancy had been unwilling to bring it to the House floor and force her members to cast tough political votes until she had confidence that the Senate effort wasn't going to fizzle. If we could get the full Senate to pass a similarly consolidated version of its bill before the Christmas recess, we figured, we could then use January to negotiate the differences between the Senate and House versions, send a merged bill to both chambers for approval, and with any luck have the final legislation on my desk for signature by February. It was a big if, and one largely dependent on my old friend Harry Reid. True to his generally dim view of human nature, the Senate Majority Leader assumed that Olympia Snow couldn't be counted on once a final version of the health care bill hit the floor. When McConnell really puts the screws on her, he told me matter-of-factly, she'll fold like a cheap suit. To overcome the possibility of a filibuster, Harry couldn't afford to lose a single member of the 60-person caucus. And as had been true with the Recovery Act, this fact gave each one of those members enormous leverage to demand changes to the bill regardless of how parochial or ill-considered their requests might be. This wouldn't be a situation conducive to high-minded policy considerations, which was just fine with Harry, who could maneuver, 
cut deals and apply pressure like nobody else. For the next six weeks, as the consolidated bill was introduced on the Senate floor and lengthy debates commenced on procedural matters, the only action that really mattered took place behind closed doors in Harry's office, where he met with the holdouts one by one to find out what it would take to get them to yes. Some wanted funding for well-intentioned but marginally useful pet projects. Several of the Senate's most liberal members, who liked to rail against the outsized profits of big pharma and private insurers, suddenly had no problem at all with the outsized profits of medical device manufacturers with facilities in their home states and were pushing Harry to scale back a proposed tax on the industry. Senators Mary Landrieu and Ben Nelson made their votes contingent on billions of additional Medicaid dollars specifically for Louisiana and Nebraska, concessions that the Republicans cleverly labeled the Louisiana Purchase and the Cornhusker Kickback. Whatever it took, Harry was game, sometimes too game. He was good about staying in touch with my team, giving Phil or Nancy Ann the chance to head off legislative changes that could adversely affect the core parts of our reforms. But occasionally he'd dig in his heels on some deal he wanted to cut, and I'd have to intervene with a call. Listening to my objections, he'd usually relent, but not without some grumbling, wondering how on earth he would get the bill passed if he did things my way. Mr. President, you know a lot more than I do about health care policy, he said at one point but I know the Senate, okay? Compared to the egregious pork-barreling, log-rolling, and patronage-dispensing tactics Senate leaders had traditionally used to get big, controversial bills like the Civil Rights Act or Ronald Reagan's 1986 Tax Reform Act or a package like the New Deal passed, Harry's methods were fairly benign. But those bills had passed during a time when most Washington horse trading stayed out of the papers, before the advent of the 24-hour news cycle. For us the slog through the Senate was a PR nightmare. Each time Harry's bill was altered to mollify another senator, reporters cranked out a new round of stories about, quote, backroom deals. Whatever bump in public opinion my joint address had provided to the reform effort soon vanished. And things got markedly worse when Harry decided, with my blessing, to strip the bill of something called the public option. From the very start of the healthcare debate, Policy wonks on the left had pushed us to modify the Massachusetts model by giving consumers the choice to buy coverage on the online exchange, not just from the likes of Aetna and Blue Cross Blue Shield, but also from a newly formed insurer owned and operated by the government. Unsurprisingly, insurance companies had balked at the idea of a public option, arguing that they would not be able to compete against a government insurance plan that could operate without the pressures of making a profit. Of course, for public option proponents, that was exactly the point. By highlighting the cost-effectiveness of government insurance and exposing the bloated waste and immorality of the private insurance market, they hoped the public option would pave the way for a single-payer system. It was a clever idea, and one with enough traction that Nancy Pelosi had included it in the House bill. But on the Senate side, we were nowhere close to having 60 votes for a public option. There was a watered-down version in the Senate Health and Education Committee bill requiring any government-run insurer to charge the same rates as private insurers. But, of course, that would have defeated the whole purpose of a public option. My team and I thought a possible compromise might involve offering a public option only in those parts of the country where there are too few insurers to provide real competition and a public entity could help drive down premium prices overall. But even that was too much for the more conservative members of the Democratic caucus to swallow including Joe Lieberman of Connecticut, 
who announced shortly before Thanksgiving that under no circumstances would he vote for a package that contained a public option. When word got out that the public option had been removed from the Senate bill, activists on the left went ballistic. Howard Dean, the former Vermont governor and one-time presidential candidate, declared it, quote, essentially the collapse of health reform in the United States Senate. They were especially outraged that Harry and I appeared to be catering to the whims of Joe Lieberman, an object of liberal scorn who'd been defeated in the 2006 Democratic primary for his consistently hawkish support for the Iraq War and had then been forced to run for re-election as an independent. It wasn't the first time I'd chosen practicality over peak when it came to Lieberman. Despite the fact he'd endorsed his buddy John McCain in the last presidential campaign, Harry and I had quashed calls to strip him of various committee assignments, figuring we couldn't afford to have him bolt the caucus and cost us a reliable vote. We'd been right about that. Lieberman had consistently supported my domestic agenda. But his apparent power to dictate the terms of health care reform reinforced the view among some Democrats that I treated enemies better than allies and was turning my back on the progressives who'd put me in office. I found the whole brouhaha exasperating. What is it about 60 votes these folks don't understand, I grasped to my staff. Should I tell the 30 million people who can't get covered that they're going to have to wait another 10 years because we can't get them a public option? It wasn't just that criticism from friends always stung the most. The carping carried immediate political consequences for Democrats. It confused our base, which, generally speaking, had no idea what the hell a public option was, and divided our caucus making it tougher for us to line up the votes we needed to get the health care bill across the finish line. It also ignored the fact that all the great social welfare advances in American history, including Social Security and Medicare, had started off incomplete and had been built upon gradually over time by preemptively spinning what could be a monumental, if imperfect, victory into a bitter defeat. The criticism contributed to a potential long-term demoralization of Democratic voters otherwise known as the what's-the-point-of-voting-if-nothing-ever-changes syndrome, making it even harder for us to win elections and move progressive legislation forward in the future. There was a reason, I told Valerie, why Republicans tended to do the opposite, why Ronald Reagan could preside over huge increases in the federal budget, federal deficit, and federal workforce, and still be lionized by the GOP faithful as the guy who successfully shrank the federal government. They understood that in politics the stories told were often as important as the substance achieved. We made none of these arguments publicly, though for the rest of my presidency, the phrase public option became a useful shorthand inside the White House anytime Democratic interest groups complained about us failing to defy political gravity and securing less than 100% of whatever they were asking for. Instead, we did our best to calm folks down, reminding disgruntled supporters that we'd have plenty of time to fine-tune the legislation once we merged the House and Senate bills. Harry kept doing Harry's stuff, including keeping the Senate in session weeks past the scheduled adjournment for the holidays. As he'd predicted, Olympia Snow braved a blizzard to stop by the Oval and tell us in person that she'd be voting no. She claimed it was because Harry was rushing the bill through. The word was that McConnell had threatened to strip her of her ranking post on the Small Business Committee if she voted for it. But none of this mattered. On Christmas Eve, after 24 days of debate, with Washington blanketed in snow and the streets all but empty. The Senate passed its health care bill, titled the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, the ACA, with exactly 60 votes. It was the first Christmas Eve vote in the Senate since 1895.
A few hours later, I settled back in my seat on Air Force One, listening to Michelle and the girls discuss how well Bo was adjusting to his first plane ride as we headed to Hawaii for the holiday break. I felt myself starting to relax just a little. We were going to make it, I thought to myself. We weren't docked yet, but thanks to my team, thanks to Nancy, Harry, and a whole bunch of congressional Democrats who'd taken tough votes, we finally had land within our sights. Little did I know that our ship was about to crash into rocks. Our magic, filibuster-proof hold on the Senate existed for only one reason. After Ted Kennedy died in August, the Massachusetts legislature had changed state law to allow the governor, Democrat Deval Patrick, to appoint a replacement rather than leaving the seat vacant until a special election could be held. But that was just a stopgap measure. And now, with the election scheduled for January 19th, we needed a Democrat to win the seat. Fortunately for us, Massachusetts happened to be one of the most Democratic states in the nation, with no Republican senator elected in the previous 37 years. The Democratic nominee for the Senate, Attorney General Martha Coakley, had maintained a steady double-digit lead over her Republican opponent, a little-known state senator named Scott Brown. With the race seemingly well in hand, my team and I spent the first two weeks of January preoccupied by the challenge of brokering a health care bill acceptable to both House and Senate Democrats. It was not pleasant. Disdain between the two chambers of Congress is a time-honored tradition in Washington, one that even transcends party. Senators generally consider House members to be impulsive, parochial, and ill-informed, while House members tend to view senators as long-winded, pompous, and ineffectual. By the start of 2010, that disdain had curdled into outright hostility. House Democrats, tired of seeing their huge majority squandered and their aggressively liberal agenda stymied by a Senate Democratic caucus held captive by its more conservative members, insisted that the Senate version of the health care bill had no chance in the House. Senate Democrats, fed up with what they considered House grandstanding at their expense, were no less recalcitrant. Rahm and Nancy Ann's efforts to broker a deal appeared to be going nowhere, with arguments erupting over even the most obscure provisions, members cursing at one another and threatening to walk out. After a week of this, I'd had enough. I called Pelosi, Reed, and negotiators from both sides down to the White House, and for three straight days in mid-January, we sat around the cabinet room table, methodically going through every dispute, sorting out areas where House members had to take Senate constraints into account and where the Senate had to give, with me reminding everyone all the while that failure was not an option and that we'd do this every night for the next month if that's what it took to reach an agreement. Though progress was slow, I felt pretty good about our prospects. That is, until the afternoon I stopped by Axelrod's small office and found him and Messina leaning over a computer like a pair of doctors examining the x-rays of a terminal patient. What's the matter, I asked. We've got problems in Massachusetts, Axe said, shaking his head. How bad? Bad, Axe and Messina said in unison. They explained that our Senate candidate, Martha Coakley, had taken the race for granted, spending her time schmoozing elected officials, donors, and labor bigwigs rather than talking to voters. To make matters worse, she'd taken a vacation just three weeks before the election, a move the press had roundly panned. Meanwhile, Republican Scott Brown's campaign had caught fire, with his everyman demeanor and good looks, not to mention the pickup truck he drove to every corner of the state. Brown had effectively tapped into the fears and frustrations of working-class voters 
who were getting clobbered by the recession. And, because they lived in a state that already provided health insurance to all its residents, saw my obsession with passing a federal health care law as a big waste of time. Apparently, neither the tightening poll numbers nor nervous calls from my team and Harry had shaken Coakley out of her torpor. The previous day, when asked by a reporter about her light campaign schedule, she'd brushed the question off, saying, as opposed to standing outside Fenway, in the cold, shaking hands, a sarcastic reference to Scott Brown's New Year's Day campaign stop at Boston's storied ballpark, where the city's hockey team, the Boston Bruins, were hosting the annual NHL Winter Classic against the Philadelphia Flyers. In a town that worshipped its sports teams, it would be hard to come up with a line more likely to turn off large segments of the electorate. She didn't say that, I said dumbfounded. Messina nodded toward his computer. It's right here, on the Globe website. No, I moaned, grabbing Axe by the lapels and shaking him theatrically, then stomping my feet like a toddler in the throes of a tantrum. No, no, no! My shoulders slumped as my mind ran through the implications. She's going to lose, isn't she? I said finally. Axe and Messina didn't have to answer. The weekend before the election, I tried to salvage the situation by flying to Boston to attend a Coakley rally. But it was too late. Brown won comfortably. Headlines around the country spoke of a stunning upset and historic defeat. The verdict in Washington was swift and unforgiving. Obama's health care bill was dead. Even now, it's hard for me to have a clear perspective on the Massachusetts loss. Maybe the conventional wisdom is right. Maybe if I hadn't pushed so hard on health care during that first year, if instead I'd focused all my public events and pronouncements on jobs and the financial crisis, we might have saved that Senate seat. Certainly, if we'd had fewer items on our plate, my team and I might have noticed the warning signs earlier and coached Coakley better, and I might have done more campaigning in Massachusetts. It's equally possible, though, that given the grim state of the economy, there was nothing we could have done, that the wheels of history would have remained impervious to our puny interventions. I know at the time, all of us felt we'd committed a colossal blunder. Commentators shared in that assessment. Op-ed pieces called for me to replace my team, starting with Rom and Axe. I didn't pay much attention. I figured any mistakes were mine to own, and I took pride in having built a culture, both during the campaign and inside the White House, where we didn't go looking for scapegoats when things went south. But it was harder for Rom to ignore the chatter. Having spent most of his career in Washington, the daily news cycle was how he kept score, not just on the administration's performance, but on his own place in the world. He constantly courted the city's opinion makers, aware of how quickly winners became losers and how mercilessly White House staffers were picked apart in the wake of any failure. In this case, he saw himself as unfairly maligned. It was he, after all, who more than anyone had warned me about the political peril in pressing ahead with the health care bill. And as we're all prone to do when hurt or aggrieved, he couldn't help venting to friends around town. Unfortunately, that circle of friends turned out to be too wide. About a month after the Massachusetts election, Washington Post columnist Dana Milbank wrote a piece in which he mounted a vigorous defense of Rom, arguing that, quote, Obama's greatest mistake was failing to listen to a manual on health care and outlining why a scaled-back health care package would have been the smarter strategy. Having your chief of staff appear to distance himself from you after you've been knocked down in a fight, is less than ideal. Though I wasn't happy with the column, 
I didn't think Rahm had deliberately prompted it. I chalked it up to carelessness under stress. Not everyone, though, was so quick to forgive. Valerie, 